This is Jocko Podcast number 374 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I found myself in a C-130 lumbering through the sky at 20,000 feet one late spring night. When you're inside an airplane or a helicopter, the sensation of height is muted as far as the physical senses are concerned. You might as well be standing in a small wobbly room or sitting in an uncomfortable chair. But once we reached the right altitude, I was in the tail, standing on an open ramp, staring into a pitch black abyss and getting ready to throw myself into it. Did I mention that I hate heights? The fear response is an interesting thing. There are some basic physiological reactions common to most people, an increase in pulse and respiration, dilation of the pupils, but others are idiosyncratic. Mine, I yawn. I know it sounds weird, and I used to think it was too, but what I know, now know is that yawning is just my body's way of trying to re-regulate my breathing, take in more oxygen, and, a set, and, a, and a access my parasympathetic nervous system. Of course, the outward appearance of this suggests the complete opposite of fear, which is handy when you don't want people to know that you're nervous. But I was. I was nervous every time I got ready to jump. I was practicing the most difficult level of, of skydiving, high altitude, high opening, or hey-ho. You jump from around 20,000 feet, count to four, then pull the cord. The parachute opens at about 19,000 feet, which means there's a long flight to a distant landing zone. This training is done during the day and at night with nighttime proficiency being the goal, which is why I was standing at the back of that C-130 yawning in the black sky. Several things make jumping from that height more difficult. One is how cold it is up there. Average air temperature differentials are approximately three degrees per thousand feet. This means that if it's reasonable to 60 degrees when you board the aircraft, you can expect the air to be a bone-chilling sub-zero temperature when you jump out. There's also very little oxygen at that height. At sea level, the air is almost 21% oxygen. At 20,000 feet, it plummets to less than 10%. With air that thin, you're at risk of altitude sickness, which includes a myriad of symptoms ranging from dizziness, fatigue, and headache to massive confusion, shortness of breath, and complete loss of consciousness. This means you have to jump with an oxygen canister and mask. And that's on top of full combat gear, ballistic helmet, and, because it's pitch dark, night vision goggles. That's a lot of equipment to juggle, which only adds to the list of skills needed to survive a hey-ho jump. Yet I'd mastered all those skills. I'd made dozens of hey-ho jumps, yet my nerves quickened every time I stood at that open ramp. And none of those skills mattered if I couldn't force myself out of the damn door. In times of high stress and great discomfort, skills aren't enough. That is where attributes come in. That right there is an excerpt from a book called The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance, written by Rich Devini. And the book 
focuses on uncovering attributes required for success in any endeavor and also how to evaluate and improve those attributes. And the author, Rich Devinney, is a retired SEAL officer, served over 20 years in the Navy, deployed over a dozen times. 11 of those deployments were to Iraq or Afghanistan. He served in leadership positions at every level and also ran the assessment and selection for the maritime component of the Joint Special Operations Command, which we call JSOC, and it's an honor to have him with us here tonight to talk about his experiences and lessons learned, and of course, we'll dive into these attributes. Rich, thanks for coming down, man. Thanks, Jago. Honored to be here. Yeah, glad to, yeah. Glad to have you. Uh, I know we run, ran into each other in some unfortunate circumstances, but glad we were able to link up um, and get the opportunity to, to pass on some of these lessons, some of these hard-earned lessons that you have, which includes <laughs> being in a, the most uncomfortable position f- with gear strapped all over your body on the back of a C-130 in the middle of the night. Good times. Good time. Uh, let's, let's just, before we jump into the book, um, let's jump into just how you ended up here how you ended up there. Yeah. Uh, so where were you born? You're a Connecticut kid, I'm, huh? I'm a Connecticut kid. And it's, surpri- it's, a, it's actually surprising how many uh, team guys that I discovered when I went to SEAL training, how many guys are from Connecticut. No uh, kidding. Yeah, a lot of lot, a big populace. I don't know what it is. Maybe something in the water. I always found it rare. I don't know. I would. Maybe, whenever yeah. I met a guy from Connecticut, I was like, whoa, right on. Yeah, all I know is that when I first joined up within the first few years, I met at least a dozen or more dudes from Connecticut and I was like, wow. Did you ever hear that thing that when they researched who could make it through buds, they were trying to figure out the thing that they figured out, there was two things and they it only improved the chances of making it through buds like almost almost a immeasurable tiny yeah. amount. Yeah. But it was wrestlers mm-hmm. and people from New England. Have you ever heard that? I heard wrestlers. I didn't hear people from New England. Yeah. I also heard rowers and I have a theory on that one too, but we can talk What's about What's your theory that. on rowers? So, well, it's, it's wrestlers and rowers, and what I, I think one of, the, one of the primary attributes required, if there's one most important attribute required to get through BUDS, it's compartmentalization. It's the ability to assess your environment, immediately prioritize what you need to focus on, and then focus on that until completion. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you think about a rower, and I never rowed competitively, but I've talked to many rowers. Um, a rower is someone who's sitting in a boat and is part of a team and has to literally just row until they puke. And if they if they even break their rhythm for a second, they mess up the whole team. So it's literally a selfless sacrifice in in a in a team effort that they just have to gut it out until they're done. I mean it is is kind of one of the most intense compartmentalization moments, I think. What's the average length of one of those races in time? Oh, I have no I have no idea. Uh, are they I, doing 2000 meters? So are they doing I, I'm sure it's like sprinting in terms uh-huh. of they have different uh different um, distances mm-hmm. but none of them are are short <laughs> yeah you're gonna have to keep it together for a long a, a long longer time. period of time yeah. and and to and to and to not to even dip a little bit is going to affect the team which is fascinating to me um and of course wrestlers i think you know and i would actually put any fighting discipline into this category this idea that you are you are in a ring with another human so it's a highly uncertain situation and uh and you have to you have to compartmentalize and you have to basically adapt to everything you're seeing. And you are often being viewed by by the external. Mm-hmm. So to to give up in any capacity is going to mean injury or 
least of or or, or I guess least uh, fa- or least favorite embarrassment mm-hmm. injury or embarrassment. So I think I think those those sports I talk about. I, I, do, I typically don't talk about attributes in the athletic endeavors because most most sports are fairly certain environments, uh, other than a few. And the few that I do talk about are fighting sports, climbing in some cases, uh, rowing is pretty certain. But I think compartmentalization is is definitely affected in that one. But check. Yeah. Um, so you're born in Connecticut. What did your parents do? Dad was a lawyer. Mom stayed stayed home with kids. Um, Professional. She was a semi-professional pianist, so she uh, used to spend most of her days practicing piano, which was either really cool or really annoying. Well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it was. I thought it was. I thought it was annoying, but then I had friends come over. Like, man, that's really nice background. And I recognize. I do love classical music. I don't, you know, I don't over-index on it, but uh-huh. I do have a love for it. And so, uh, so yeah, it was. It was. It was nice. But yeah, really nice childhood. Twin brother. Older sister, younger brother. And was there any military in your family? No, none. Um, my dad was a private pilot, so he'd go flying on the weekends, and uh, so he'd take us all up. And my twin brother and I got hooked from the from the beginning. Um, you know, he'd put us in the in the in this in the right seat, and we'd help mm-hmm. help him steer the aircraft. And so my favorite, my two favorite books growing up were Chuck Yeager's autobiography, mm-hmm. Yeager, and The Right Stuff. And I read those books. I mean a dozen times uh and all i wanted to do was be a fighter pilot and i, I, I well world war II, world war ii fighter pilot that's yeah. all I, but um <laughs> but we had this bent on joining uh, well first air force then we found out that the navy guys land on ships are like well that's really cool uh-huh. right so so then it was navy uh all the way this was pre-top gun and top gun just made it made it even worse <laughs> yeah there's <laughs> so. a wild thing uh, one of my buddies dave burke good deal Dave. <laughs> yes they have this thing where they, they call it getting aboard and and basically there's some people that can't do that yeah that last thing which is land the boat yep. land the plane on the boat and he had this one buddy that decided to go in the marine corps instead of going in the air force and he made it all the way through training was an f-18 pilot and the last thing that he needed to do was get aboard yeah couldn't get aboard and so if he would have been an, an f-15 pilot in the air force or an f-16 pilot yeah. he would have been good to go but he couldn't get aboard it's yeah. just like that last little thing I remember uh, reading an article, Navy pilot, uh, of course I was absorbing as much as I could back then, and a Navy pilot was quoted as saying, imagine uh, putting a postage stamp in the middle of a, of a large rug, turning out the lights, and then jumping and landing on that postage stamp with your tongue. That's what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. So. Uh, what sport, you, you said you didn't row, what sports did you play? Um, I, I, I tried everything when I was a kid. Back then you could, you didn't have to start oh, yeah. a, <laughs> they didn't, they didn't, they didn't put like a baseball glove in your hand oh, yeah. when you were born and yeah. this is the only sport for you. That's right. You're going to be a champ. <laughs> and I, I mean, depending on where you grow up nowadays, you have to start, if you don't start early, you're not going to make the high school team. Right. Yep. So anyway, I tried everything growing up. Uh, when I, when I got to high school, I decided I loved ice hockey, but I couldn't skate well enough to make the team. So I decided to play lacrosse. I felt like it was kind of a, a, a land version of ice mm-hmm. hockey. And so I, I walked on the team freshman year, never having played. Uh, played four years and uh, was captain by the end of the by my senior year. So, That's legit. Yeah. So that was, my was that was that the only sport you played? I, I mean, I did track. I did track in the winter to get in shape for lacrosse. But uh, that was yeah, that was about it. And then when are you thinking about the military? So this is high school. Are you thinking about the military? Oh yes. Yeah. Navy. Okay. We were bent on Navy, um, and so we were the kids in. You know, we were the kids who had na- uh, pictures of of. Jets, you know, in our in all of our notebooks, I had it all over my room. Pictures so. of Tom Cruise, <laughs> not so much Tom Cruise, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, Jets and um, 
yeah, so it was, yeah, we were known kind of, the, those who knew us in high school, they knew that the Vinny boys wanted to go into the military, so. And then, so then your plan was to obviously be a pilot, you have to be an officer, yep. so now you know you gotta go to college. Yeah. And where'd you end up going to college? So went uh, first year to a, an aviation school down in Embry-Riddle. Oh, uh, in down Florida? In Florida. Yeah, okay. Embry-Riddle down in Florida. My brother uh, went to FIT down in Florida. Um, and the plan was let's get our, let's start learning how to fly or maybe get our pilot's license and go OCS. Uh, but after about a year there or half a year there, I realized, for, well, first of all, I, I realized getting, you know, paying $20,000 a year to get your pilot's license right, it makes sense. So I, I majored in avionics, which I wasn't good at at all. Uh, my brother did get his license, but we also realized that the doors, after the Top Gun kind of surge, the doors for slots for OCS were closing. So we we're like, no, we should probably find a, an ROTC unit. And so we both applied to Purdue and then transferred up to Purdue. And um, I joined the ROTC unit, uh, earned a scholarship there. My brother did not, but he went, um, well, after some years of kind of figuring out what he wanted to do, went uh, Marine PLC, joined the Marines, and then flew Harriers for, oh, sweet. for 20 years. Yeah. So at what point did you uh, realize you didn't want to be a pilot? It was never I didn't want to be a pilot. It was, um, I, it was a, after the first Gulf War, there was a, a Newsweek article I, I saw, and it, was, it basically had a guy's face on it, was camouflaged, and said it was like spe- special operations forces, right? And so I opened up this article, and um, it, it, was, it was about seven pages, and it talked about all the spec ops units, so Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. Through those seven pages, there were probably 20, 25 pictures of guys, you know, doing different things like underwater, in the snow, skydiving, desert, jungle. And I recognized that out of that 25 pictures, like 20 of them were SEALs. They were just in different environments. <laughs> and I was like, who are these guys, right? And so I started, I started reading about them. And, um, and then as I went to school, I still hadn't made a decision when I was in RTC, but ultimately I said to myself, well, I know I can be a pilot, but I don't want to wonder if I could be a SEAL. And so... So I went that direction and fortunately got a billet. And then how did you, I mean, this is what, so what year is this? This is, ni- well, I graduated in 96, so this is my mid-90s. Yeah, not and a lot of SEAL stuff. Did you, how hard was it to get a billet? Well, it was difficult. I mean, they were only, they only, my year, they only accepted 11 ROTC guys nationwide. Um, and I think, and it was like 16 Academy guys. And so uh, I was able to link up with a guy in Connecticut who was running. He basically he had just started a program where he just he was a, he was a, a retired reserve SEAL, uh, Captain Bissett, and um, and he had helped a couple guys get through the you know get to the get through the pipeline, and so I had linked up with him. He started you know helping me with the physical test, which I, ironically back then I, I did I think I did eleven pull ups for my <laughs> for my test, which which I mean I wouldn't even have you know gotten close to making it today. Um, but he also, I think what he really did was, uh, introduce me to some active seals. I drove down to DC to meet with a, a captain down there. I got a recommendation. So I, I met with them. They gave me recommendations and then he helped me put together a package, which I then gave to my ROTC unit. Cause they didn't really know how to do the seal thing. Uh, in fact, you know, during our summer cruises, there's, there was something called mini buds. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember, you know, being at my unit, going to my, my unit officer and saying, Hey, can I go to mini buds? He's like, Oh, uh. All right, let me look into that. And so a couple of days later, I said, like, oh, you know, there's no more billets for mini buds. And I was like, oh, okay, check. And so I went on a normal Navy cruise. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I went on a ship out here in San Diego um, and one day threw on my whites and just walked into the buds quarter. I could say, hey, can you show me around? Um, but ironically, I get to buds, I realized that actually there were billets. There were extra billets for ROTC that, that he didn't know about. So extra extra academy guys got to, got to go that year. So I never got to mini buds. But, uh, so this was like 1996, you say. I remember there was a time period where they were recruiting guys like the officers were just kind of like off the charts uh 
you know, Ivy League guys that mm-hmm. rode crew and were captain of the football team and all this stuff. And then they kind of backed away from that because they had these guys that were basically, there's there's several issues that they were running into. I'm sure we could run into the attributes of yeah. what it was, but a lot of them were just, they were just there to do four years Punch a ticket. and get the qual and then get out and move on with the rest of their life. Um, and other guys just didn't have any common sense type thing. And so they, they kind of opened up I think they opened up their minds as to who they were recruiting. So it sounds like, you know, you know, we're laughing. You're saying you only did 11 pull-ups. And it's one of those things where, you know, you look at a bunch of guys and this guy can do 50 and this guy can do 42 and this guy can do 38 and this guy and this guy can do 11. Well, quite frankly, being able to do pull-ups is not necessarily mean <laughs> translate to any part of being a, being an actual seal and yeah. being a seal officer for sure right and so you know obviously you must have had some other characteristics that they looked at and thankfully they did because yeah. you know I was, I was also talking to a, a guy that worked at buds a little while ago and and you know he was basically talking about the fact that sometimes guys that are like for instance bad runners mm-hmm. he's like yeah you know guy can't keep up with his boat and he just gets run out of the boat and that's it he's done and he says, and you and I both know, and we all know, like being a good runner does not necessarily no. make someone a good seal. No, no, you know it's fascinating. I think you can uh, you you can agree with this because you were actually in the pre-war SEAL teams longer than I was. But when I got to the SEAL teams, you know, ninety-seven or so, uh, you go. You, I went to the SEAL teams, and I recognized that all of the quote best SEALs were, or the, those who were considered the best SEALs, were all the best PTers. They were the guys who came up, you know, first on the runs and all that stuff. And PT was kind of the measure at the time because we'd had these massive team PTs every day, uh, which was good from a morale standpoint. I think that's, you know, that's something we lost in the war. But, but what I recognize is when the war started, the, all those guys started to disappear. I mean, it, it didn't, you know, the guys who were actually good at war or good at the job, the, the, those measurements left, right? And so, so I think you're absolutely right. I think the default um, tends to be physical because it's a, it's a measurable and you can see it. Um, but we all know those dark horses, man, you know, you got to, but this, you know, this is why we have a fire in the gut ward at yeah. Buds, right? Because you know, I don't think they have it anymore. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. Well, that's oddly enough. It is odd. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have it anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, when I got to the team, so I went to, I, I got to team one, and I would say there was a little bit of a, there was a little bit of a, of a line between like people that were good at running, mm-hmm. and and then there was people that were considered to be like good team guys, and. Those sometimes the good runners were also good team guys, but yeah. sometimes the team guys weren't great runners, and it really boiled down to like how good they were at doing the job yeah. of being yeah. in the field, and that's what counted. And although I think from like uh, maybe senior leadership would look and go, well, "This guy's the, our best runner; he must be a great seal," and yeah, that certainly is not, as we, as we both know and laugh like that's just not true. As two non-runners here, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we can. <laughs> We can testify. Yeah, right? I've never been. I've never been accused of winning running races. I was. Uh, I was goon. I was goon squad. When I first got to buds. I was goon squad, and I was literally on the weekends practicing my running. You know, on the beach, on the soft sand, because I'd really hadn't done it. Um, and slowly, I got up to the end, to the edge of the pack, or the back, and then into the middle. And you know, but I was goon squad a lot. <laughs> so. so were you? So how prepared were you? What information did you have going? Well, you know, I mean, books back then were you know hard to find. Uh, Brave Men, Dark Waters. Uh, you know, Or Kelly wrote a, a couple. There was one um, called The Commandos, which was probably the most recent. It was kind of the, at the time the most recent book, and it kind of outlined Hell Week. So. So I had a sense of what was going on. Um, the be something special recruiting <laughs> video. There you go. That's I mean, all you need. That's all you need, right? <laughs> um, 
ultimately, I think um, I, I, I can say I wasn't prepared enough. Um, but, you know, when I got there, I just I recognized, hey, I just had to do what I needed to do. And um, even the O course, I mean, you know, again, on the weekends or after work, I was going to practice the O course. I was running on sand, you know, just to get going because I said, like, I just have to have to do it. So and uh, what I knew I could do, I think one of the things I recognized at Bud's fairly quickly was that uh, it actually wasn't about the physical. It was about just keep going, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and you almost come to this sense that, hey, there's only so many push-ups that someone can make me do until I can't do anymore. And at that point, they're going to make me get wet. It's like, okay, so I'll get wet, you know, <laughs> and, I'll be, and I'll cool off and I'll go do more push-ups, right? So, so you almost come to a recognition that you're going to get to zero and just do what you can um, at zero. And I think that's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what they're looking for. Yeah. They're looking for that recognition and that, almost that comfort in the fact that, yeah, I'll just keep going. Even if it's slow. I'll just keep moving. Yeah, so. Not going to give up. Was there anything that was uh, especially challenging for you? Well, running was mm-hmm. probably the most challenging, um, especially beach running. Yeah, I would say, yeah, the water stuff. I always loved the water stuff. Um, so if there was anything, so drown proofing was pretty much my favorite thing to do. Oh, okay. Um, because <laughs> it was a time that no one was screwing with you. Yeah. <laughs> so so I remember they'd have dog and ponies, and you know, you know, as the buds class, they'd have. They'd say, hey, we need volunteers to do these dog and ponies. I'd always volunteer for drown proofing because it was the time they'd leave me alone. You know, for 30 minutes, I could just bob in the in the pool. So, And pool comp and everything, you were just good in the water. Where'd you, where'd, did you grow up swimming? Yeah, I grew up, yeah, I grew up in Connecticut right on the Long Island Sound. So oh, I, I was always a water rat. So, yeah, everything water-related I was comfortable doing. Um, I had, I had uh, learned to scuba dive in college just deliberately um, and just recognized I just loved I just, I loved being in the water, underwater. So pool comp, yeah, it wasn't, right. wasn't an issue for me. I mean, um, yeah, obviously I had the normal st- stress for it, but I, I was able to get, get done the first time. So. Yeah, it's weird. If, if you're lucky enough to have that comfort, I mean, some of the, some dudes are just petrified yes. of every water evolution, yeah. and yeah. usually they don't make it. I mean, yeah. it's not a good way to roll into it. Yeah. You're petrified of drown proofing, petrified of life saving, petrified of not tying. That's right. Just having that hanging over your oh, head all yeah. the time. Well, especially if you fail a few times, and then you have to do it. Uh, you have to wait the weekend and then yeah. do it again. But you know, but you bring up a good point because I think you know uh, a lot of people, and you, I'm sure you've had this. Uh, they've described seals as fearless. And I can't stand that description because it's not, none of us are fearless, you know, because, you know, courage requires fear. And uh, all of us have little things that we're like, it, we, we're, we don't like it. You know, there, there are team guys who love skydiving and they hate diving. There are team guys like me who love diving and I don't like skydiving. You know, climbing is nothing. Is not, I would never climb on my free time, you know, <laughs> um, or bungee jump, right? Um, but I think every single one of us, we learn how to move through it. Um, and so you hope that Every guy has something they like uh, about the, about the job, um, but r- regardless of who you're talking to, <clears throat> that person had to move through some fear. Yeah, dude, yeah. there's some stuff you're going to have to just suck up at totally, some point. Totally. Well, <laughs> and here's another thing because um, I've always, you know, and I got asked by it was a while ago a bunch of sailors they wanted to be seals, and so I was on a ship. I did a sh- one ship deployment as an LNO, and they said, "Hey, sir, could you just give us 30 minutes and talk to us about being a seal?" So I said, "Sure," <clears throat> and I got them all in a room. It was about 10 of them. And I started it by saying this. I said, listen, I want all of you to know, okay, when you're a Navy SEAL, when you're doing the job, okay, there's never any cool music playing. Um, <laughs> and there's no, there's no, like, girls on the side or beers. It, it always sucks, right? They will – the teams will take the, the fun out of everything. If you're diving, it's cold, it's dark, it's dirty. If you're skydiving, it's nighttime, you, you're waddling out of there. 
nothing is ever cool. The coolest part is at the end when you look back at what you did and you're having a beer or whatever. Um, but you have to get that into your head. And I think I think Bud's slams that into your head day one, right? <laughs> you come in with this mythology and you're like, oh, cool. And then suddenly you're like, holy crap, what the hell is this? And so, so yes, I think that's another Supporting one. that whole premise is the fact that it's in Coronado, California. That's right. Which you're driving into. If you ever get the chance to go to San Diego, you drive over to Coronado. <laughs> As you drive over this beautiful bridge, you look down on Coronado, it literally looks like a movie depiction yeah. of of a little heavenly neighborhood. Yeah, it's, and it almost is with a Hotel Del there, and it right? Almost yeah. is. It yeah. almost is, just this beautiful place, sunny beaches, or a sun's out, beautiful beach, and somehow they can take that <laughs> it, well, <laughs> and, and make it suck. Well, and it's, people think Southern California water is, is warm. True. You know, I actually went on a run this morning. I hit the beaches at I, I, my West Coast ritual. I always go down to Coronado and take a run, and so I hit the beach at 5 a.m. I was like, okay, cool, 5 a.m., no one will be on the beach, right? I get there and immediately realize that it's high tide, right? <laughs> so I was like, okay, it's cold yep. because it's cold. It's just it cold. It was 45 degrees 45, this morning. Yeah. So, so I start running. Within the first 100 yards, the waves crash over my feet. The, <laughs> si- the sand is soft, right? And I was just like, I started laughing because it was just beautifully miserable, uh-huh. right? And, um, and I think that's what you really start to, you start to relish that stuff, so. Uh, so hell week, you get done with that. You get done with pool comp. Um, Get done with land warfare. So you, you get done with buds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you get rolled at all? I got rolled from the. So I didn't. I, technically, I, I started with 209. I did their 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 in doc. But before 209 classed up officially, they're like, hey, there are too many officers in the class. We're rolling. We're going to roll the three slowest runners, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I got rolled to 210. So I never classed up with 209. But I, so, I, so I started with 210 and I graduated with 210. Yeah. And then where, where'd you go? From there, what team did you go to? SDV one uh, in Hawaii, but at the time, um, classic budgeting. You know, we graduated April '98, and uh, there were no, there's apparently no, no money to P- PCS officers, and so like, hey, we're going to keep you here, and you'll do your SDV school because back then it was in San Diego. Mm-hmm. So we waited. We lived, in, you just lived in apartments until summer that year. Did SDV school, went to jump school, and then uh, I checked in January '90. January 98 to SDV Team 1, yeah. And then you get out there. What, did you want to go to SDV because yeah. you liked the water? Did yeah, you actually but, put in for it? Well, so, no. <laughs> and I, my plan was to, but when you go to Bud's, as you will testify, everybody, especially back then, everybody was like, don't do SDV. You know, so I got I got worried about SDVs. So on my dream sheet, I put two all East Coast teams because I wanted to go to the East Coast. <laughs> and I got SDV1. So, um, but I wasn't upset. I was like, okay, this is cool because I, I, I did love diving. Uh-huh. And I loved, that, I loved that aspect of it. And to be able to have done that, I thought was pretty froggy. So, And then you get there, you get put into a platoon? Like, um, how's that working? It's yeah, it was, um, it was a little bit, we were a little bit delayed. There was a platoon that was already formed up. My, my, one of my, you know, my best friend, he's an admiral now. He and I were, were, were kind of put in holding. Got to do an exercise with one of the platoons, went out to the Middle East, did an exercise, and then platooned up a little bit late, um, but did one platoon and a deployment um, out to the out to the Middle East. You know, kind of went to the Middle East quite a bit back then. Uh, we're out there, in, and we were actually out there in, in Bahrain when the coal, the USS coal got oh, yeah. hit, so we actually did some response to that. Um, so, yeah, did one deployment as an AOIC um, there at SCVs. And then what was the next stop? SEAL Team 2. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I was I I'd always wanted to go to the East Coast and specifically SEAL Team Two because all the books back then, you know, were older books, so they focused on one SEAL yeah. Team One and SEAL Team Two. And, and so you say you got to you just you and I just missed each other in SEAL Team Two. Yeah, because I got I left there in two thousand, the spring of yeah, the spring of yeah. two thousand. And, and I checked in January two thousand one. 
check. Yeah. So. And is that where did you go straight to a platoon commander? <laughs> no. Yet again, I was delayed. Um, I did a. I the only way I could get SEAL Team Two, you know, interesting. So my my buddy and I we called the detail for detailer from Hawaii, and both of us want to go East Coast. So he gets on the phone first. He's like, I'd like to do an uh, I like an OIC on the East Coast. And the guy's like, Yeah, I have one a teammate. And he's like, Cool, I'll take it. So he's like, my buddy's here. So I got on the phone. Yeah, I want an OIC on the East Coast. Like, that was my last one. <laughs> so I was like, oh, you so missed it by a phone call? You missed it by a phone call. You know, um, but he said, uh, he said, I, you know, if you want, you can do an L&O. You know, back then, uh, they were, we were deploying guys on ships on both carriers and, and MAR platoons, and they usually put a SEAL officer as an L&O on those ships. And so, so I, I said, I said, listen, can I go to SEAL Team 2? She said, he said, yeah, you know, you need to do an L&O. I said, I'll do an L&O, but I want to do a carrier. I don't want to do a bark because I always loved aviation. I just mm-hmm. want to. He said, deal. So I went, checked in, and then did a did my first deployment with the John F. Kennedy Battle Group as an L&O on that carrier. Dude, this is crazy. So my platoon at SEAL Team 2 was the strike platoon, and we went on the USS John F. Kennedy. There you go. So the last conventional carrier. There yeah. you go. So, yeah, it was actually, actually turned out to be a great deployment. We, I mean, obviously 9-11 happened. Um, is that while you were on deployment? No, in fact, we it was before we deployed. We were actually getting underway for Comp Two X uh, on nine eleven. <laughs> um, so the I news... haven't heard the word Comp Two X in a long time. <laughs> I know. It just said shutters. <laughs> I know. I know. These are, Echo Charles. These are big like fleet exercises that you're doing. The whole fleet's out there. All these ships, and you're going to get tasked with all these missions, and it's just. It's just like a operation complication for two weeks. That's right. Have. That's right. Yeah, and 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 the battle group got underway on the morning of of September 11th. Okay. So all the news all the news reports said that there was a, a a strike battle group that got underway within hours of the attack, which is hilarious because <laughs> that wouldn't it wouldn't happen that way, right? It happened to be within hours, and so. Uh, and so we actually steamed right up to the East Coast, off the East Coast of Virginia there. I flew off and went to the teams to check in to see what was going on mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, get a sense of everything. So, And then you guys did that, but then did you go on a normal deployment? Yeah, so I got done? back from there, uh, pl- uh, platooned up as an OIC um, and started that work up. And then, of course, then Iraq was kicking off. And so uh, because we were, you know, our platoon did pretty well in the in the training, um, our CO sent us to Iraq. And when was that? What year was that? That was 2004. Yeah. 2004. Yeah. Oh, so I remember when you guys showed up. You guys, did you guys go up north? Did you guys? So we started up north, and then um, and then came down south, and we took over the the security mission. Uh, yeah. yeah, we started it. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> My, I had a very lucky career. <laughs> like I, I, I got you, wrapped you that up and went home, and a few months later, you guys were doing the uh, uh, the security. Yeah, yeah. And then, so so, how was your work up when you were a platoon commander? It was great. It was it was standard. Um, you know, uh, did the well obviously the the you know uh, the individual trainings. So all the guys went to schools. Then we did our our uh, our platoon training. Did all our, our schools. Um, and, and back then it was all well. As you remember, they had just um, implemented the 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 NSW two thousand mm-hmm. Force twenty one. Mm-hmm. I think it was called. Um, brilliant idea. We we didn't know that it was going to be so brilliant, right? Because it just set us up to deploy in a, such a perfect way. Um, but they hadn't they hadn't changed the the training program, so we did all the regular box, you know, you know, mobility, yeah. diving, CQC, all that stuff, uh, and um, and then went straight to when we, when we went out there, we went straight up to Mosul and started there. Yep. Yeah, So I remember that because we didn't see you guys, so you guys literally turned over with us. I was at Team Seven, right. and you guys arrived in 
well, I went home sometime around April. Yeah. But you guys, I think you guys might have showed up. We, I might have high fived a couple guys that right. I knew from Team Two. Yeah. And then you guys rolled straight up to Mosul, right after that. I think you guys had people that stayed down in Baghdad as well. Yep. I think. Yeah, we had some LNO guys who stayed down, which was also fortuitous based on the fact that we all, after you know, after a few, after about a month and a half, all went down to. Baghdad to start running that that PSD mission. Did you guys chop under the Team One CO? No. Uh, oh, or it was your Team Two CO on deployment too? He was on deployment with us. Okay. So and so what happened was the Team One CO stayed out west to continue running direct action, and our Team Two CO ran the the PSD mission. Got it. Yeah. So both COs were deployed. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yep. Now I'm now I'm remembering, and also the I remember this too the. Marsoc, like Det One, mm-hmm. the first Marine yeah, first showed Marine up. showed up. Yep, and yep. that was cool too because a bunch of those guys I had done when I was an enlisted guy. I did two back to back ARG platoons out here at Team One. Wow! And so we knew all these Force Recon guys, and a lot yeah. of those Force Recon guys became the Det One guys. So we high fived with those guys as well, and uh, had the good times. Yeah. So so that deployment, you do a little bit of. Direct action yeah. stuff up north. Yeah, a little bit of DA up north, only about a month and a half, and then um, get, get drawn down to PSD. And um, yeah, that was the deployment, um, and that was the focus for the teams yep. um, for I think a year and a half before they were able to pass that off. Yeah, yeah. the the mission was there was a bunch of um, Iraqi leadership, government leadership that everyone in the country, well, a lot of people in the country wanted to kill. Yeah, and they had to keep those those individuals safe. I mean, from a strategic level, those guys had to stay alive. And so this was an incredibly important mission. I mean, it was the, the highest level. It was the level. mission. It was yeah. the, the, the yeah. most important mission in the in the Iraq war at that time and was to keep these, was there seven of them, right? Seven, yeah. Uh, the PM, the president, a couple others. Uh, uh, and yeah, and then, yeah, seven with seven different details. Yeah. Uh, it was. It's funny. I, I was um, on a call about a month ago with, uh, well, retired now, General George Casey. And he was out there in charge of the whole effort. And I was telling him, hey, I was out there. And he was like, yeah, I remember you guys. All you wanted to do, all I kept hearing is get us out of this mission. Get us out of this mission. <laughs> Which made sense because, you know, yeah. you know, we can only do it for so long. And that wasn't our primary medal. So, uh, but again, you know, it's, it's this idea. I think um, SEALs, spec operations, special operations holistically are designed to do what you have to do. I mean, you could adapt. You can, you can mod. You can... You just, hey, what's the job? Okay, yeah. we'll do the job. And we might complain and bitch and moan, but um, we'll still do the job well. Uh, and uh, that's what we did. Yeah, I've always talked about the fact that, um, you know, and we're getting better now, but when you and I were in, especially at that time, there was no doctrine on anything. Right. And so you would know how to do a direct action mission because some other guy had come back and taught you how to do it. The Vietnam guys taught us how to do raids. Like, it's all was word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And occasionally you'd get some photocopied thing with some weird stick figures yeah. on it about what your patrol formation could be. But it was all it was all like word of mouth and then you'd go out and you'd do it and you'd adapt and you'd figure it out. And so we didn't have any doctrine, which can be a negative. Right. If you've got some kind of a mission that you probably should have some baseline to do and yet you can't pull out a book. Whereas like the army can pull out what is it? Uh, FM seven TAC eight right. infantry platoon and squad. There it is. It's, right. Here's everyone's job. Here's how you execute the mission. Here's where, where people's fields of fire. Is. It's all laid out for you, which is awesome. Yeah. the The issue is when you have something like PSD, you know, security for a bunch of fit, of high value people, and there's no there was no book on that. No, there was no doctrine. No one had any doctrine on that. 
Well, the only doctrine we, well, again, the only thing we drew upon was that uh, our our specialized unit had been doing it um, up in the in Europe for a, mm-hmm. for a few years, and we had some guys who were from that command who were were like, oh, we know how to do this. We know we, we've we've done it before, and that's why we were tapped uh, to start doing because those guys started training all of us, and and they they were familiar. So so yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the doctrine. I think I think officers, and and I think they do a little bit more of this, but it would you know officers who could come in with a better understanding of just field maneuver and 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 battlefield stuff right it is advantageous but at the same time this this ability to kind of come in almost with a with an infant's mind is is something we do pretty well yeah it takes a certain level of of open mindedness to go oh here's the biggest strategic mission that you've got in the country cool yeah we got it yeah, we'll totally. do it <laughs> and and to pull it off i mean think about that all the thousands and thousands of Movements of individual movements yeah. of these individuals over a year and a half into hostile territory where there's so many people trying to kill them and, yeah. and they all made it. Yeah. You know, they all lived, they and that's a pretty amazing, pretty amazing job yeah. for all the boys. And, and like you said, SEALs don't want to be on defense, right? And that the, the, the crux of that job is you're, you're on defense, you're on defense. Although what people don't understand is the offensive nature of that job. I mean, there's so much preparation and planning. Uh, and I think, I think one of the reasons why the guys did it so well is because we just look at environments differently. We're always hedging our, 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 our situation to the best of our ability. We're comfortable with uncertainty, mm-hmm. but we'll get it to whatever percentage we can in terms of looking ahead and, and certainty before we say, okay, that's, that's the line. We got to be good here. Um, and so I, for me, it was a, a real education on the, on the, on the offensive nature of that, of that type of mission. Of mm-hmm. course, when you're in the moment, you're on defense, but you've, you've offensively prepared the environment so that you are hedging your bets in your, in your advantage, which is pretty cool. Yeah. The, the shift of the mindset yeah. from this is a defensive mission. How do we make it? How can we be offensive as we possibly can? And I remember we, we actually we did, when I was at team two, yeah. we did training for this. We actually did like some scenarios where, oh, we got to protect this guy. And I remember, uh, you know, having conversations with guys that had worked with other units and their, what they were taught, wasn't they told us this? So like, hey, what we, when we worked with these other units that do this for a living, Here's what they would say. Oh, you collapse on the on the person that you're trying to protect. You, it's a very defensive mindset. And he's like, what we would do is, oh, there's a threat. We would attack the threat. Yeah. You know, it's like the, it's like the opposite mindset. Yeah, yeah. And he said, you know what? When they would play it out, you know, with simunition or whatever, the people that were going offense and attack the threat would do better than the people that were just trying to surround the principal and get him out of there. Right. You, you, you do want to do that, but if you've got guys that are attacking the attacker, it, it ends up being a better move. Yeah, you get into their, their OODA loop. I yeah. mean, you get it, you know, as soon as someone, if, they're, if, if, if an enemy is in attack mode and suddenly they find that someone is getting into their space, it puts them on the defensive. And so I think that's a really cool mindset and strategy that, uh, that, that you know, we applied. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so you get done with that deployment and what what's next? So then I screened for uh, the maritime component, the specialized unit uh, for uh, for the Joint Special Operations Command, the maritime component. Uh, screened and got got accepted and went to that selection. And how was that selection for you? I and I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I um, it's, it's about nine months. I enjoyed. Uh, so I would I would describe that. Whereas Buds, the primary responsibility is to not quit. The uh, there there's a performance. I mean, there you have to you have to be able to perform. 
in in the in what they're asking you to do. Um, but I just like I love the I love the um, the precision. So I grew so growing up, you know, I you know, I said my mom classical piano, my dad John Denver. I love all of it, but I started getting into metal, and um, <laughs> <laughs> and and it was probably in the in the late '80s. I heard uh, Master Puppets for the first time, and um, and I was I was hooked. I had been lift, listening to like you know. Uh, Motley Crue and things like that, and I was like, I, I just want something heavier. Yeah. There's, there's got to be there's got to be more. And I um and I, I heard Master Puppets and 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 Justice for All, and I heard those guys, and I realized, uh, well, I, re- I guess I realized this later in kind of this mental autopsy that um, I loved the what I call precision violence, oh, yeah. uh, precision aggression, and and the way <laughs> these guys played, and I love thrash metal, but I mean, the, with the palm muting and the fact that you could hear every single chug on that e-chord mm-hmm. and it was just so fast and so precise and that's what i felt like when i was doing this kind of hostage rescue level cqc it was just so fast and so precise and so i just realized i love it um and, and musically i love it i mean the the rappers who do it you know who, who rap fast and precise i love if it's a country if it's a banjo playing fast and precise i love it i mean i just anything fast and precise <laughs> kind of violent you know precision aggression i love and um and i love the challenge it was you know i, I enjoyed it I met Metallica just like in passing, and I and I w- walked up to uh, James Hetfield, and I told him this story, which was that when I got to SEAL Team One yeah. in 1991, there was a big stereo system in the weight room, and it was had the old school five disc CD changer. Nice, yeah. And it was all the Metallica albums were in there, and it was locked shut. It was the only thing you could listen to. Perfect. <laughs> and it was like, yes, perfect. I knew that's when I had made a good decision by joining the Navy. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, they that so so my so the training reminded me a little bit of that. Uh, just this this very precise aggression, um, which I love because I thought seals were always that way, and and obviously underwater it's a little bit different. But I thought we were just designed differently in the sense that yes, we. We deliver violence, but we do it every single time you move. Every single time your trigger finger moves, it's with a thought. It's it's thought through, and I um, and I really enjoy that that level. So, so then you get done with that with the training, yeah. And now it's time you're you're get put into a squadron. And you yeah. start going on deployment, yeah. yeah. And and what are those? What are the, how many of those? How, what's your what's your op tempo like? Yeah, back then it was um, it was a nine month cycle, three months uh, three months training, three months what's called alert, and then three months deployed, um, and then rinse and repeat. Um, but because the war had started, it was basically uh, you know it. Well, I guess prior to the war, it was it would be basically six months of training, three months alert, and then it became three months training, three months alert, three months deployed, and um, and so the training cycles got got crunched, uh, and it was just very fast uh, and and tough. Tough but cool because the op tempo when you were there was so intense. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I did. I ended up doing um, two deployments as a troop. I, I did a deployment as a – I was kind of the opso for the squadron, and then I did two deployments as a, as a troop commander there. Were, um, those, were those Iraq or Afghanistan? One, one, well, two, uh, two Iraq, one Afghanistan, yeah. And then what? What time frame were these? This was uh, 05 through 08. Yeah. Oh five. Oh yeah. So you and I may have crossed over. I'm there sure too. we did. I, I, I'm, you know, I, in trying to think through it. I mean, we may have crossed paths here because I, even when I was running training, I came out here. And I, I, we probably sat down mm-hmm. in some of the same training conferences to talk about stuff, right? But uh, yeah, you never know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> so you're out on those deployments. How's that? How's that from a leadership perspective? 
It's um, I mean, you're learning the whole time, and I think uh, I think you try to when you in any in any SEAL platoon, um, especially as a new officer, you go in there, and if you're not willing to just listen first, you're you're going to be screwed, right? Especially when you have guys who've just been there, done that, uh, and so. So to go in and listen first and watch and, and hear the expertise, and it was almost like getting into a machine that was already moving, and you just try to say, okay, how can I help this move better and faster? And so it was a tremendous lesson in leadership for me because that's when I recognized that you have to you have to be a part of the machine. It's not necessary. I mean, the, I think I always say kind of leadership is not a, a position. It's a behavior, right? And and I talk about this concept uh, called dynamic subordination, which is really decentralized leadership. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and the story of this, kind of me thinking about this, comes after I left the teams. I was talking to a bunch of executives, and, and they asked me, I had a flip chart next to me, and they said, hey, Rich, can you draw the task organization, what the task organization looks like for a, for a high-performing team? And so I was stumped when they asked me that because I had the models in my head. But I was like, this, these models don't apply. I had the pyramid model, of course. And I was like, well, that doesn't apply because, you know, that's too slow and bureaucratic. The flat model, which was a mild rebellion to the pyramid. And I said, um, that doesn't apply because, you know, in a flat model, first of all, it's hard to know who's in charge. And second of all, it, because it's flat, something can happen on the right side of that line that doesn't, it's not seen or heard by the left side of the line. So it gets siloed. Information can get siloed. And a high-performing team, information never gets siloed. So flat model is out. And then I had the Robert Greenleaf servant leadership model, where the leader, it's the upside down pyramid leader sits on the bottom. And I always tell people, I was like, if you're going to land on any one of those, philosophically, that's the one you can land on. It's a, it's a good one. However, it's still not a how a high-performing team operates, because in a high-performing team, a burden is distributed. It's not all in one. So, so really, in frustration, I basically drew a blob on the board, an amoeba. And I said to the group, I said, where do you think the leader sits in this blob? And I got answers like, you know, front, back, top bottom center. I said, You're, all of you are correct. The leader is wherever the leader needs to be in the moment. And and this is what I call dynamic subordination, which is literally this idea that a team understands that issues and challenges and problems can come from any angle at any moment. And when one does, the person who's closest to that problem and the most capable immediately steps up and takes lead and everybody follows. And then it swaps. It's also, also called alpha swapping, that alpha position swaps. And so I know you and I as officers, we were pretty much in charge of every op we were on. But didn't mean we were always being supported. In fact, it was usually the opposite. We were supporting other people. Um, and sometimes the environment would shift and they'd have to support us, right? But but it was really, uh, and, and I, this really hit me when I was actually in training and I was watching close quarter combat training because in close quarter combat, you'll see a group of four guys outside a door and they'll go at, you know, number one man, number two man, number three man, number four man. They'll go into that room. They're suddenly clear. They're everything all clear. Well, the next threat might be close as the number four man. So guess what? Number four man becomes number one man. Mm-hmm. And so you see this. And so no CQC run is ever the same, you know, and it's just this, this just amazingly beautiful, <laughs> violently beautiful dance uh, between leadership positions. And I think that's what I recognized the most and, and fell into quite, quite, you know, quite well, because that's kind of how I liked leading. But, you know, funny story, um, first deployment as the troop commander. I'm in Afghanistan, and uh, we get this, we get this, it's our first mission, It's and it seems fairly fairly good. The compound's not too far away, easy drive there, relatively easy. So we get this thing planned out, and um, and as we're planning, we're, you know, we're getting little things, like, uh, you know, change the crypto, or this thing didn't line up. Hey, the gear we need is not there. So these little things, little ticks. And, um, and I'm, you know, just little enough, you just brush them aside, right? But they're adding up, and I'm, I'm kind of keeping a count in my head. And so we start rolling out, and, and now we're driving, and the first route fouled, right? So we have to go second route. That's fouled. And now we're just like, okay, wait a second. You know, 
okay, we could probably get this third route. We get the third route. Okay, finally park. Now we're a little bit late. Timeline's a little bit skewed, walking towards the target. Finally, we're walking towards the target, and we start hearing whistling. And we had just read a couple days before some intel on a, a unit that had been ambushed, and they had heard whistling. So I stop everybody. <laughs> I call my troop chief. I'm like, hey, uh, I'm not feeling good about this one. You know, I, I, I've got there's too many ticks. And fortunately, he was a great guy. And he's like, I agree. And so I always joke on on my very first op at that command as, as troop commander, I called the CO, <laughs> the, who was a ranger back at the the base, and said, Hey, we're turning around. We're we're quitting the mission. You know. And I actually wrote a blog on this. It's it's, it's okay to quit, but but just never give up, right? Yeah. Because because if you're seeing this situation and you're not paying attention, and I realized it was really it was really good for me to understand that that's my job as the leader. I mean, we've got so many guys who do so many phenomenal things. If I'm not keeping abreast of all this stuff, and of course there were some guys who were pissed and you know, you have to, you have to take that, that hit too, but, but that's my job. And it really taught me, I think in the hundreds of missions I did, I turned around on three and everyone felt like I was quitting and everyone was hard. And on every one, we had guys who were pissed off and upset, but, but I recognized that that's, that's the job, you know? Yeah. I used to have the, um, we used to joke about it. So when I was a platoon commander, when I was a Troop commander, I called it go go criteria because mm-hmm. you know in the SEAL teams they have no go criteria. If you don't have this many vehicles, it's a no go. If you don't have this air support, it's a no go. If you don't have comms with this people, it's a no go. So we have all these no go criteria. So my joke would always be, it's for me, it's go go criteria. We're fucking going right. <laughs> and but the but the interesting thing was there was same thing. Like there'd be a mission where it's like, hey, we're going. Okay, cool. Hey, we uh, we actually just lost the air cover for this mm-hmm. part of the insert. Okay, we're going. Hey, it looks like the uh, army that was going to support us with their vehicles for QRF for the first half an hour, they're not going to be on station for an additional three hours. Okay, we're going. Hey, uh, the whatever uh, LNO for that unit that was supposed to be here for the brief, he actually didn't show up. You know what? We're not going. Yeah. So so yeah. eventually you got to make that call of. Hey, you know what? For me, it was just the the universe trying to tell me yeah. that this was not a good op. Well, and you and I, we've read these after action reports of these these tragedies that happen, and these tragedies never happen with one big thing. Yep. It's always a series of little things, and so hindsight's always twenty twenty. And I think if we're not as leaders understanding that we're looking for those number of ticks, and, we, and no one knows how many ticks it takes. You can't yep. say, well, it's ten ticks, right? No, it's just a, it's what the tick is, and how does it affect the mission, and then eventually, what's your What's your no-go versus go-go, you yeah. know? And I think that's a, that's one of the jobs. Yeah, the uh, the other, as far as the leadership goes, you know, I've had this conversation with so many civilian companies, and one of the ways that I would explain it to them is, you know, we are on an assault, and we go over the wall, and there's a guy that's in charge of opening the door. Mm-hmm. He's a breacher. And guess what? Whatever he tells me to do as the breach team leader, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. I'm the overall guy in charge out there. I'm the ground force commander. All these people out there actually work for me. And when he says, hey, step back 10 feet, and go around that corner, I say, roger that. <laughs> That's right. When the point man says, hey, we're gonna shift to a different route, I say, cool, roger that. When my vehicle commander says, hey, I'm gonna bump up and you know, and, and get, get up on this corner here, I say, cool, roger that. Yep. So you're constantly, people are gonna lead what they have control over. And that's what I actually want. As I want everyone on my team to be a leader and step up and make things happen. Yeah. So yeah. That's it's like a, a, it's like a school of fish or a flock of birds. I mean, we were literally amoeba. We're not we're not this this hierarchy or, or line. And, and that the position, all the position tells you is what your 
<clears throat> you know, your responsibility circle is, you know, for, for making shit happen, you know, so, uh, and I think that's important. So. Yeah, yeah. So you you're do these deployments, and then at, at some point here, you get uh, tasked with running the selection for this JSOC group, this Navy JSOC group. Yeah, not before I volunteered to go back out to the teams. I um, oh, okay. so one of my great mentors, you and I both know him, um, and he was he was uh, he's now retired, but he was my uh, CEO at SEAL Team Two, and then he was also a, a deputy there. He had been my CEO at SEAL Team Two, and he had been at that command, and and I just loved him so much, and I yeah. saw what he get back, and I didn't, I wanted to make sure I I stayed. In both communities, kind of, or both both venues. I, I volunteered to go to SEAL Team Ten as uh, Ops XO, and you know the other the other component was my wife was uh, she. Is this much, when he was a group commander? He w- well, no. When I did it, he was the deputy commander uh, before he took group commander. Got it, yeah, got it, got um, it. Uh, but we're tracking on the on yeah, the yeah, guy, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but my wife was also sick of sick of the command. Someday I mean, I'll have him on here. We have guys, we've got some good stories to oh tell. Oh my goodness, yeah, he's yeah, what a phenomenal guy. Um, <laughs> But my wife was also sick of the command, and she basically, uh, back then, um, I mean, they wouldn't even let wives near the compound. I mean, she, you know, she had to drop me off at the at the fence mm-hmm. and I would walk in, and so she was she was pretty pissed off. <laughs> and she sat me down. She's like, "Listen, you know, I don't think you, I don't think I can take you staying there." Um, and that's a pretty big um, thing because the, because you know, typically, especially as an officer, if you leave. Chances of you're coming back are, you know, you know, you don't know, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a gamble. And so, but I, you know, how that, long had you been married for at this point? We got married in 01. So this was, uh, this was now 08. We so had, you got married when you were, when you got to team two, basically. Yeah. Well, like she, that? So I met her in Hawaii though. Okay. And, um, and then I got to team two. She moved, she was, she's from Pennsylvania, but she moved from Hawaii back to your Virginia beach. And so. And we had two kids by then. Um, so she's already pissed, bro. You took her out oh of my Hawaii gosh. and brought back to Virginia Beach. <laughs> so, so I tell this story. It's funny. Um, it was it was probably 07. Um, and I was, um, yeah, 07. And I came back from one of my deployments. And it was very successful deployment. And, you know, and my wife's pretty sick and tired of hearing how awesome her Navy SEAL husband is. <laughs> she's at home with our one-year-old and our three-year-old. Oh, yeah. And it's a couple of days I've been home, and You're I'm just a freaking loser, <laughs> total loser, <laughs> total loser, total loser. And I come home, and so I'm at home. I'm doing some projects, and I hear her from the back of the house. She's like, "Hey, Rich, can you grab the?" She's in the, doing something with the kids. Can you grab the Q-tips? Now, admittedly and embarrassingly, I didn't want to drop what I'm doing, so I'm just like, I don't know where they are. And and then she's like, "No, they're in the bathroom." I was like, "Okay, I better drop what I'm doing." So I kind of begrudgingly drop what I'm doing. I go to the bathroom. I, I step in the bathroom. I'm like, "They're not here." And she's like, they're in the closet. I open the closet door. They're not here. She's like, they're right there on the shelf in the closet. I'm like, I'm telling you they're not here. So now I hear her footsteps. I was like, okay, I'm going to prove her right, right? Her arm comes from over my shoulder, grabs the Q-tips, puts them in front of my face and says, they are right here. <laughs> and as she's walking away, she's like, it's no wonder you guys haven't found Bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> she's, like, she's like, you guys are probably going in these caves and you're just sitting there. You have male eyes. You're not seeing anything. Which ironically, I say, ironically, it was a female. I mean, it was a team, but a female who found found him, right? So we just went and got him. <laughs> the wives, seal wives, are badass. They really <laughs> yes, are. And indeed. I know you could testify to that. It's, um, but yeah, so it was, uh, it was 08. Volunteer to go back out to Team Ten was did an ops ops then XO deployed with them, uh, so that was about a two year tour. And then and how'd you like that? I loved it. Yeah, yeah I loved it. Loved the CO. Loved the Master Chief. Loved the team. Um, uh, again, you're back on you know six month deployments, mm-hmm. which are <laughs> rougher. Um, but uh, but I was I recognized uh, I recognized the, the 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 healthy nature of seeing 
both sides and staying connected and and um, and uh, and and of course it, it helped you know at, at the home it helped on the home front. Um, uh, but then was asked to go back to to run training, and you know my at that point they changed the command. You know there was there was issues. The command had started to and actually NSW holistically had started to do a lot more for the families and the wives, bring the families in. They said which it was a great concept, right? And so. <laughs> So it was a it was a better it was a better situation, and I was happy to go back and and went back in um, uh, early 2010 and and took over selection. Yeah. So this point when um, you take over selection, this is kind of the kind of the beginning of this book that you end up writing. Yeah. And uh, with that, it's probably a good time to to just jump into some sections of this book. Um, well, I'll just jump into it right here. Here we go. You say this, I learned about attributes the hard way, on the job and under pressure from the top. In 2010, I was in charge of training for one of the premier special operations units on the planet. Our command selected candidates from other spec ops teams, men who already proven themselves to be exceptionally skilled and committed. One Friday afternoon, I was sitting across a small table from one of those men, still sweaty in his fatigues from a long day of training. He was a Navy SEAL with eight years of experience behind him, a seasoned warrior who'd completed dozens of missions. His record was saturated with glowing reviews and recommendations from his superiors. He was also recognized as a mentor to younger, less experienced guys, and he'd been promoted at every available opportunity, often early. So you're sitting across the table from this stud. On paper, he was perfect. But three weeks into a nine-month training program, we already knew he wasn't gonna make it. The selection and training class had just finished a week of close quarters combat exercises or CQC. You've seen it in the movies and on TV, a SWAT team or a squad of soldiers busting into a building, staring down the barrels of weapons they're waving around, one of them shouting clear every few seconds. The Hollywood version is much noisier and sloppier than reality though. In real life, CQC is a complex sequence of movements, the exact order and timing of which have to be improvised in a fluid high stress environment where mistakes can be fatal. The lead man focuses only on the door and waits for the signal to squeeze or word from the second man then he goes through the door and turns left or right sweeping his sight line down the wall 90 degrees toward the center of the room the second man goes the opposite direction left to the lead man's right or vice versa and does the same visual sweep the third and fourth men keep alternating directions each of them scanning the room for any bad guys who need to be neutralized or good guys who don't all that happens in a few heartbeats the guy sitting across from me had, in his career, cleared more rooms than he could likely remember. But each special operation team had its own habits and techniques, and we needed him to learn our particular ones. The candidate at the table had started strong, but after the first week or so, things began to get a little shaky. Little mistakes morphed into bigger ones, and his confidence was taking a hit. He knew he was falling behind, and he tried to like hell to catch up. He stayed late, walking through scenarios, practicing techniques, asking instructors for feedback. None of it was working. One of the most highly trained warriors in this world, a man specifically recruited for this specialized unit, just couldn't keep up. What was I supposed to tell him? That, that at least he wasn't the only one, that more than half of the other candidates washed out too, that wouldn't do. No matter how gently words came out, you're not good enough is a hard blow to anyone's ego, let alone a guy of his caliber. And then there were my superiors. There's an att- a high attrition rate for candidates who want to get into special operations units in the first place, and that is by design. About 85% of prospective candidates, for instance, don't complete basic SEAL training. But we were recruiting men who'd already proven themselves to be among the very best special operators. When only about 50% of those guys made it through our training, commanders farther up the chain understandably wanted to know why. On that day in 2010, I didn't have any satisfying answers. 
I told this highly experienced, highly decorated, and highly competent SEAL the only thing I could. I'm sorry, you just didn't cut it. He wasn't happy either. So that's sort of uh, you figuring out why is this happening? What can I do better here? Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah rough. Rough and, and disingenuous, especially as a, I mean, you know, the leadership was obviously needing some answers uh, and wanting some answers. But as cadre, I mean, you just, we could do so much better. Um, and I think the collateral effect of that was that these guys were leaving. These guys would leave and go back to their the regular to their teams and they didn't feel good and they were they were they hated where they just came from and so so we were we were looking at um a a real problem in the community of of uh of hurt feelings mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, i say yeah. and i say that i mean i don't mean that in a well like way. animosity animosity or whatever. Yeah, yeah yeah and so so yeah my leadership said hey rich uh <laughs> take a better look at this what, what's going on and so i really had to start deconstructing performance yeah as you do this, um, you say you say here in the book, and obviously get the book. It's called the attributes. I'm reading little chunks of it. Um, you say this to begin figuring out a better way to explain why so many seemingly well qualified candidates weren't cutting it. I decided I needed to examine our roots, so I went back to the beginning, 1943, and here you talk about World War II. You talk about Draper Kaufman. Uh, you know the the NCDUs. You you go through some of that history and a Have you read uh, by by water beneath the walls? I've yet? read yes. <laughs> yeah. Outstanding, yeah. outstanding. Ben, what up? Ben Mulligan, go get Ben Mulligan's book. Yeah, I try to give him a shout out every time. Yeah, awesome. Uh, just an incredible job he did on that book. Um, so you start looking at that. You say your Kaufman understood though that being a strong swimmer who could sneak across a beach wasn't enough for his recruits. He needed men who could think on their feet, men who could adapt adapt and flex as fast as the environment did, men who had the ability to be aware of multiple aspects of their surroundings, could work together as a team, and learn things quickly, and do so while under unfathomable stress. Kaufman realized, in other words, that he wasn't looking for recruits who knew how to do the job, but rather men who could do the job. The difference in that single word between how and could is enormous. The required skills, diving, cartography, demolition, and so on, could always be taught. What Kaufman needed were men with certain innate attributes, traits that are hardwired into each person's core. So there you go. That's what you started looking at. So I thought about, at the time, you know, now it's 2010, I... I'd already been on hundreds of combat missions, and I thought about my own Bud's experience. And, you know, in Bud's, we spend hundreds of hours running around with big boats on our head and hundreds of hours running with 300-pound telephone poles and exercising with those and freezing the surf zone. And I thought about the hundreds of missions I'd been on. Never on one of those missions, or thousands of training evolutions, never on one did I carry a big heavy boat on my hood or a telephone pole, right? (laughs) So what they were doing to us was not training us in the skills of these SEALs. And so that's where I started to distinguish this this difference between skills and attributes. Yeah, um... I did do one op one time. <laughs> I did an op. I did a training op in off the coast of North Carolina. We came across the intercoastal waterways. We ended up. It was low tide. Everything was a disaster. We're in this mud flat. We had to carry our freaking zodiac in the mud flat for <laughs> like a long, long ass time. Did you put it on your head? No, we didn't yeah. put it on our head though. We did a low carry. Low carry. We did yeah. a low carry. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So you say this. Uh, skills and attributes get conflated all the time, yet they're inherently different things, right? Yeah. Um, 
and and again, you got a whole section on this. Skills are learned. These are some of the high points. Skills are learned. Skills direct behavior. Right. Uh, explain direct behavior. So so skills tell us what to do in in known specific environments. So here's how and when to ride a bike or throw a ball or shoot a gun. There's a target. Here's the here, skill. Here's that you what need. to do. Here's what. To yeah. Do. Here's what to do. Here's here's when to write. Here's what to do. Here's when to write. Right. And and then finally, because they're they're visible. They're very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. And you can put scores and stats around. This is what we go into organizations and hiring. It's like you can put them on a resume. And this is why we get seduced by skills when we're hiring, right? But they don't tell us how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. And so that's when we lean on the attributes. And the attributes are innate, right? We're, all of us are born with levels of patience or situational awareness or adaptability. Now, you can certainly develop those things over time and experience, but you can see levels of this stuff in very small children, which means there's a nature nurture element. And then attributes inform our behavior. They don't direct it. So in other words, my son's levels of perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning how to ride a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. Uh, and then finally, because they're hard to see, they're difficult to measure and test. You can't, it's hard to test someone's levels of patience or whatever. And so they're the most visible and visceral during stress, challenge, and uncertainty, which is what made our laboratory, my laboratory was a specialized commander, even Bud's, the perfect laboratory for seeing this stuff. I mean, Bud's really ultimately is an attribute selection course. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. You learn some skills, certainly, but that's, ultimately. That's questionable. If that's questionable. Really, SQT is where you learn. Yeah. You really, And then you go to your team, and then you start really learning. But it's an attribute selection course. And so, uh, and so these attributes, these inherent qualities, are really what drive the the distinction as to whether or not we can operate in these environments. You know, here's a funny story. I'm not sure if you heard this one because I heard it when I first got to Bud's because it ha- obviously happened sometime before me, maybe even way before us. But the story goes, that, and, and back then, the story goes this kid shows up and he wants to be a SEAL and they basically say, well, you need to swim, you know, 50 meters. And he's like, okay. So they take this kid to the pool and it's going to be 25 meters one way and 25 meters back. And um, the kid jumps in the pool and sinks right to the bottom and starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one end and then walks across the bottom of the pool back to the other. And he comes up and he's gasping for air, nearly drowning. And the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid, who's still casting his breath, looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor, I don't know how to swim. And the instructor pauses for a second, looks at the kid and says, that's okay, we can teach you how to swim. Yeah, right? Go. And it's because the, the, the instructor knew. This, if this kid had the, the attributes, the balls, it was, that's one, I guess that could be an attribute, right? <laughs> but to show up to Navy SEAL training not knowing how to swim, teaching him to swim, the skill was going to be the easy part, right? Yeah. And so, so the idea is, and, and you know, we go into business, obviously, I don't, you know, some skills are necessary just for basic entry, right? But if you want teams, if you want the highest performing teams on the planet, which are teams that not only do well when things are going well, they do well when things are, are not going well, you have to look at attributes. And so I, I, in the book, I talk about this dream team paradox where you, you, you hear it all the time. These teams are put together, best graphics designer, best marketer, best lawyer, whatever, best, best, best. And then they slowly turn, you know, and they go, they go well when things are going well, right? Yeah. But as soon as the environment changes, as soon as things go, go sideways, the team turns toxic. And if you don't, if you haven't built your team on the attributes, you're not going to have a team that, that survives. Yeah. Uh, I'm questioning if I should tell this story, but I'm going to. I've told, I think I've told it before. So my uh, my daughter was having her birthday down at the beach, and um, I ended up taking all of her friends and like organizing them into teams and having them compete against each other <laughs> of a bunch of things. And this was at uh, San Alejo State Beach, as a matter of fact. And there's a river up there. And so I was having to do these contests. You got to, you know, drag this log because there's all kinds of fun stuff. You drag this log, and who can do it faster? Who could build the tallest, you know, sand tower in five minutes? Ready, go! Mm -hmm. And the cool, one of the cool thing was that 
as I'm watching them, I'm like, I see like one person that steps up and starts leading. I see someone that doesn't care. I see someone that's lagging. I see someone that will do whatever they're told to do yep. as soon as they're told to do it. I was like, this is a freaking little seal platoon of eight year old girls. Right. This is crazy. Like it's the same exact humans. Yeah. But then the funny part is my daughter, I said, okay, you guys go across the river. Whoever can bring, bring the biggest rock back wins. And so my, my daughter, she swims across the river. They're all swimming across the river. And everyone's grabbing, you know, rocks that are the size of a baseball, maybe the size of a grapefruit. My daughter, uh, this is my middle daughter, Rana. She picks up like a legit rock that is, you know, like a, bowl, a small boulder. <laughs> and she starts back across. And she clearly she's not going to be able to swim with it. And I'm watching, I'm like, well, this is gonna be interesting. And she just, like like this kid that you're talking about in the pool, she just goes and her head just disappears. Mm-hmm. And you know, five seconds go by, six seconds go by, then her head pops up and she's she barely gets her head, mouth out of the, grabs a breath of air, goes back down, keeps walking, yeah. comes back up again, grabs another breath of air, comes walking, and then finally like her head rises up on the other side as it gets more shallow, she walks up and just drops the thing at my feet. Known <laughs> victory. <laughs> and she wasn't, she didn't win that, did she? She oh, wasn't the first, was she? Oh yeah. no, she was, freaking won like by a <laughs> heartbeat. She was like, you wow. got the biggest rock. It was like known victory. Oh, yeah. She dropped it like whatever. Yeah, I got this. I got this. I was yeah. like, okay, yeah, you definitely won that one. It's to- it's um, I mean, this is this is where a lot of teams hiring uh, they get they get confused. They conflate these things, and they yep. think someone with the with the best skills is the best person. And um, and this is why I think uh, you can you can pick certain environments where just attributes show up more than skills. And uh, and you know, obviously, spec ops is an environment like that. This is where I talk about like different sports. And in in many sports, skills take predominance, right? But Things like fighting, you know, and I don't fight. You know, just I, I know people who do, and I, you know, I, I look at it with interest. But uh, but you can't predict necessarily what the other person. It's, it's uncertainty. So there's attribute, there's adaptability, there's perseverance. There's all these things coming to play. Climbing would be the same thing. And so so I think these are this is where you start. I'm really, if I'm obsessed with anything, with anything, I'm obsessed with who we are as human beings at our most raw because that's the real us, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and we always hear it. You know, it's when when the shit goes down that the real us shows up. And I'm like, okay, who's that? Because we had the we had the the great gift in our careers of understanding who that person is and understanding who that person and all the people around us and and that allowed us to be the teams we were. I mean, I know you you would agree. I mean, I knew my guys. I mean, I could see a silhouette and I knew that guy. That's how well we knew each other because we'd seen we'd lived each other at the most raw. And a lot of people don't get that opportunity. And you don't have to go through SEAL training to do it, right? It's just understanding these these qualities because because these attributes. We, when we fall back to, to like our most raw, it's what these attributes are what's running. <laughs> so we should know what we're high on, what we're low on. So, uh, As you start talking about uh, uh, attributes here, you say this, uh, but the right stuff by Tom Wolf basically meant things hardwired into skills, into skilled pilots that allowed them to function at the highest level no matter how badly circumstances went sideways. He meant in these three words, attributes. That's what the right stuff That's means. Right. Um, and then it's the things you talked about. They're elemental. They they inform rather than direct what you're going to do. And attributes are difficult to uh, assess, measure, and test. And, and that is the truth. And that's why, you know, like, um, you don't know. They don't know who's going to make it through SEAL training. Through no. basic SEAL training, they don't know who's going to make no. it. In despite, and listen, there is a... There is a an element of if this guy does great on his PST, the the physical standard test. If he does great on it, 
it it does indicate that this guy had the discipline to work out. He had the wherewithal to stick to a program. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there, it does indicate some of their attributes. Sure, but it's not necessarily. There's also people that are just really good athletes and they like to work out, and right. therefore they show up in great shape. Right. We every single seal has a story of the guy in their class that was you know a Olympic this or a whatever college athlete that, and they just quit. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I um, think if you and I went to buds and. Um, and this is just a hypothesis. There's there's no way we'll be able to prove this. But And we could sit down with a class of, of candidates getting ready to start, and we could interview each one of those candidates about what their journey was to get there in the first place, right? I think that the guys who had the longest journey, the toughest journey, we could say that guy's probably going to make it through. You know, because I think th- th- this is – these are the, because it's, they were executing attributes to, to get there in the first place. I always say – Bud selection starts when you decide. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of attrition that goes on because people are like, oh, I wish I could do that, but then they stop there, yeah. right? And so, so there's a journey whether you're enlisted or officer to even get to the beaches of buds, and then it's then bud starts, right? And so, so I think the the, the folks, and again, you know, there are there's always exceptions, but the the folks who have practiced these attributes and developed the, and of course, we all have to come up, we have to, we have to enter the game with a little bit of a level, right? We all have to have a level of compartmentalization at day one of buds or else we're not going to make it. We'll hyper develop it in buds, but we have to have it. But there's, we could, I think every single one of us could tell stories from our past. It was like, oh yeah, that was, that was great right there. That was, that was compartmentalization. I mean, I, when I was playing football in eighth grade, my dad didn't like, he didn't want my mom driving us around. So he's like, you have to ride your bikes everywhere. So my brother and I would have to put on our football gear and ride our bikes through town to get to football practice and then practice and then ride our bikes home. You know, uphills, all that stuff. And <laughs> uphill both ways. Uphill both ways, right? But, but there's elements there that, you know, you're just powering through. And I think we could, you know, there'd be, there is, you know, we'd never get it right. But, you know, I think we could. We could pick some of the guys. Yeah, and we'd miss some of the guys. We'd miss some of them too. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's it really is crazy the the demographics of people that make it and don't make it. Yeah, there's it's like literally oh this rich kid from wherever uh, from Boston that yeah. grew up you know with a silver spoon. Oh, he made it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, and this poor kid from the ghetto that grew up you know without a mom without a dad grew up raised by his you know his grandma who didn't have a job and lived off welfare. He made it. Mm-hmm. And you can also say, oh, this rich kid from Boston that went to a private school and had a silver spoon, he quit. Yeah. And this poor kid that grew up in the ghetto quit. Yeah. It, it, like, it doesn't make any sense. It's one of the things I love the most about that training and one of the things I'm most grateful for. It's because um, I don't think there's a process on the planet. There are very few processes on the planet that allow you such a zeroed out start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you hit those. I remember literally getting there and I, I felt relieved because I, it it took so many people, like I had to get interviews and recommendations just to get a billet, right? Uh-huh. And I remember getting there, I was like, all right, it's now it's on me. And I felt relieved because it was, now it was literally on me. No one there was going to force me out. And um, and we, we, we had this opportunity to zero out everything and just start moving through. And it's just cool. Yeah, Admiral McGuire was telling me that um, he would tell when he was the CEO of Buds. He would before Hell Week. He'd say, "If you guys don't make it through, it's because of you." Yeah, like yeah. like pretty much we're not going to drop you. Look, look, people get dropped, right. but vast majority of people, right. they quit. Yeah, very few performance drops. Yeah, yeah, you and, got, and those are out. Those are towards the end, and it's all the times in SQT, but yeah. very few. And those are, am I correct in saying those are attribute drops? I would think so because if you're talking about very basic, like you know, I remember we had a guy who got 
who got dropped because he just he was unsafe with his weapon. Right, well, right. being safe with your weapon has nothing to do with the skill of hitting a target. <laughs> it has to do with the attributes of being safe with your weapon, right? right. I mean, it's a it's a situation awareness, it's adaptability, it's it's um it's all this. It's, a, it's I'm going to name off a, a bunch, right? That's what he didn't have, and right. so uh, and it's so buds just like this training I was running, and we used to say, I, I remember briefing Olson when Olson was SOCOM. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, sir, this training we're running, it's nine months long, okay, but. But it's an attribute selection course the whole nine months. We're, there are attributes that we're assessing that's, that are going to take nine months to see. How can I see someone's level of integrity, for example, if I can't watch them in a myriad of environments? I can't get feedback from their peers who tell me how they are out in town, you know, who tell me what they do, right? Who tell me if they they just clean their their stuff and, and leave, right? They don't help out. I have to – so so some of these attributes do, do take a little bit of a long time to assess, but I think the – the beauty of buds and then this process is it is over a long period. And so we have all these, we have time and we have different environments inside of which to see these because they can be in some cases contextual. And even the ones that we're naturally high on, sometimes we're just not. Sometimes we're on an off day, right? And so so even just one data point is not a decision point. You have to you have to see that across, across some time. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the book here, you talk about the uh, kind of grouping these things together you say the the ones that follow are grouped into five categories. This is the attribute you're actually gonna talk about in the book. Grit, mental acuity, drive, leadership, and team ability. That does not mean that any particular attribute is relevant in only one context. For instance, empathy and accountability are not reserved exclusively for those in position of leadership, and open-mindedness certainly is useful regardless of whether one is especially driven. Rather, the attributes are organized on the page in a way similar to how they tend to cluster in real life. People we think of as gritty, for example, generally have healthy amounts of the four attributes in that category. But again, this is simply an organizing tool. It is entirely possible to have a sizable amount of courage, yet not have a notable amount of grit. And that's an interesting dynamic, (laughs) isn't it? Um, So now we're going to get into this this little segment. You start talking about the attributes themselves. Um, I just kind of went through what the, the major ones are. And again... The detail that you give, you give stories around all these things, uh, examples, you talk a lot about the neuroscience behind it. I know you're friends with Andrew Huberman. Yeah. There's all kinds of great information in the book, so get the book. Um, but to, to hit some highlights, uh, the the first section is the grit attributes. And number one, courage, the ability to manage fear in order to confront danger, difficulty, or pain. And you have this, this chapter is actually called Beware of the Fearless Leader. Yeah, that's a very good, you know, if you've ever worked for someone that it doesn't seem like they're scared of anything, you should be a little bit nervous. So the, so the officer we've talked about, but haven't named, he told me that he was the guy who said, beware the fearless leader. Um, he's going to get because he'll like yeah. to get you killed. He's no. the one that has the go, go criteria. No, 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 go yeah, criteria no, no, at go. All. yeah, yeah. Uh, courage is not an absence of fear, but rather the ability to function despite being afraid. This is you. On a C-130 <laughs> in the middle of the night at 20,000 feet, getting ready to jump off. Right. Uh, fear comes 100% from the brain. This is, you're talking about Andrew Huberman. Yep. Andrew Huberman quote. It's a state of mind, which is why people are afraid of different things. Heights might not bother you at all, but they make others uncomfortable. Or maybe you have a debilitating phobia of snakes or rats, both of which many people consider delightful pets. Fear, that's not to say, however, that fear stays in your head. Fear is considered by neuroscientists to be the subjective label that is put on the stress response, Andrew says. And stress is more than just a state of mind. It's a physiological response to our environment. 
but fear does start in your head. It begins with your brain detecting a threat, a process which happens in the amygdala. In very simple terms, the amygdala is a sort of tripwire for sensing danger, assessing both existence and severity of a threat. So that's talking about what fear is. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think you got used to overcoming fear? Yes. I think yeah. we all do. Yeah. We all do. Um, and, and again, it's this idea. And so there's a, there's a couple ways. So when we start talking about the phys- f- physiology of fear and the 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 rise in our autonomic arousal system, when the things start, you know, our, our breathing starts getting rapid, our vision starts to focus in, um, we were, a, we, all of us have, well, I think we're wired. First of all, our courage, our courage circuits are wired. So our, our courage attributes are wired. So we're, we're slightly above boiling point. If I were to say boiling point is the average or our autonomic response trips, I think most SEALs, ours trip a little higher than boiling point, right? Which means we don't, it takes a little bit longer for us to get that response. But even when we do get the response, we're, we also, I think, unconsciously train ourselves to manage our physiology in a way that, that keeps our frontal lobe online. So what happens as we as we approach amygdala hijack or autonomic overload, um, our frontal lobe starting to take a back a back seat. Our, our limbic brain, our lizard brain, starting to come forward. Which when we reach full autonomic overload, overload, we're acting without thinking. It's a lizard brain just survival. So this is this is advantageous for certain things, right? When we touch a hot stove, we don't want to have to think about pulling our hand away. You know, our brain takes over, pull our hand away. In most environments, however. Um, we want to think through challenge and stress, right? We want to think through the environment. I think that's what we do. We manage our physiology. We, we keep our frontal lobe back online, uh, and we're able to start thinking through the process. And so, and I know all of us have this, and it's funny, you know, again, I'm in, I've lived in Virginia Beach now for, you know, 22 years. Same house, by the way. Uh, and um, I have a seal who lives across the street from me. I have a seal who lives down to the right, <laughs> down to the right, and a seal who lives down to the left. And I remember my wife saying, you know, I'm so glad these, these guys are here. Because if something happened, I could go to them and they act like you act. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, whenever something happens, they just calm down and they just start working the problem. And and this is what we practice doing. So we don't we don't have less fear. We have just practiced the process of moving through the fear. Um, every time I jumped out of an airplane, I felt fear. But I just knew the I knew and understood the process of going through that. Um, and part of that process is we understand what to focus on in the moment. We don't overwhelm ourselves. And we basically, and so, my, so I'm, I'm writing the next book right now. The next book is called Masters of Uncertainty. I'm going to basically walk through this process. But, but it's, it's the idea where we say, okay, out of all of this, what do we focus on in the moment? How do we move our horizons? You know, we pick a horizon that we move to. And oftentimes we pick the appropriate horizon so that we can actually move. And it can be Anything. It can be the next ten seconds. In surf, in surf torture, it might be ten seconds. You know, in hell week, it might be. I'm going to make the. Ne- I'm going to do the next meal. But we pick whatever that horizon is. And so it's interesting. I was having lunch with a couple of guys who I served with in in the squadron. We, of course, we did a ton of these hey hos together. And we're talking about hey ho, and we're talking about like being on the ramp, and it's an unknown DZ, and, and you know, for the audience, an, undo, an, an unknown DZ is like basically you look at a map and you're like, oh, that looks like a good place to land. <laughs> and you don't have any other, you know, intel on it. It's like, okay, that's where we're landing, and you're hoping it's good. So it's, there's, there's some stress involved. And I remember he was, and my buddy was like, yeah, you know, we're on the ramp, and I can remember it be an unknown DZ. We have this mission ahead of us, all that stuff, and, and there's only one thing I'm thinking about, just one. I was like, what's that? He's like, nail the exit. You know, that's the horizon. Nail the exit. And then once you nail the exit, the next horizon is, okay, pull my chute. Okay, that's the next horizon. Okay, what's the next horizon? Get on heading, right? I mean, so, and, and we, we are trained to think that way. And we do so in almost all 
areas and elements of stress, challenge, uncertainty. That's what we do. And that's what combat is. And we yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, in a, uh, the, the very first book that I wrote about leadership was like, uh, we call it prioritize and execute. Yes. Like what's the biggest priority you've got right now? Right. That's what you need to focus on and get that thing done. Yeah. If you try and focus on 14 different things that are all going sideways at the same, same time, you're gonna be a disaster. Yeah. Um, you're not gonna have the resources to get it done. You won't probably likely have the cognitive capacity to get it done. It's going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, and there's neurology, right? What you're doing right. by doing that is you're, you're you're deliberately engaging your conscious mind. You're deliberately bringing your conscious mind back in your frontal lobe back online to focus and make a decision, move, focus, make a decision, move. So I love this. So this idea of, of and I know Huberman and I have talked about this, you know, in, ad nauseum, but this idea of we we have this. We kind of have this big picture. So you talk about stepping back, which is which is exactly what happens. We step back, we open our aperture, we start. We say, okay, what about this environment? Can I control in the moment? And then you pick something and you go like this, and you you, you focus in, you do that until completion, then you go back out again and you ask the question again. And one of the things I loved again, CQC was such a great uh, laboratory inside which because CQC is this just extremely rapidly. You're going into a room with big focus, then you're focusing in, you're shooting, you're going back out, then you're focusing, you're shooting, and it just goes one after the other, one after the other. This is exactly what we do in all environments. And anybody can do this. And this is going to be what I talk about. And this is how we become masters of uncertainty because master of uncertainty is not, oh, I, I know all the environments. No, it's not about training into environments. It's about training the process by which you, you operate in an environment. And that's how you start moving through chaos. So did you go through the Navy free fall school? No, I got, fortunately I got to go, well, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, I went to Yuma. Yeah. Okay, so I yeah. went through the old school Navy free fall school after my first platoon, and it used to be the better you did, the less jumps you got, oh. and because you just didn't have to repeat jumps. Yeah. So if you've screwed it up, you gotta do it again. You screw it up again, you gotta do it again. Mm -hmm. And I did fine, I think I screwed up one jump, and I had 19 jumps at free, at free fall school. And so I'm totally incompetent, right? I mean, basically, completely incompetent. <laughs> no, just enough to get yourself yeah. hurt. Yeah. And yeah. so then, then I'm in. Then I'm jump back into a workup, and now I'm going through workup. We go to land. We go to. The, so now it's been. So I've done 19 jumps, probably in whatever two weeks, mm -hmm. and then I I don't jump for, I don't know how long it is. Lo long time, long time. Don't jump. Yeah. Like like a year, probably like a yeah. year. Yeah. No jumping. And then, then I get on a jump. And we're like, well, there was a guy there that was a very experienced jumper, and we we're we we're just doing a jump at the command at Team One. We're doing a jump at the command. We happen to get a bird. Like, hey, you guys want to jump? Yeah, well, hell yeah! Haven't jumped in freaking a year. You know, I only have nineteen jumps. Yeah, I want to jump. So we get on this bird and we go up. We're supposed to be jumping at whatever twelve thousand five hundred feet, normal jump, you know. And there's there's a, a ceiling, right? There's cloud cover, and. <laughs> and and so well, we can't get up to 12.5. And so, you know, we're like, oh, we're gonna go down low. We're gonna take it to whatever, six. Still not coverage. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay. So now we're down to five. We get down and finally, and this guy is a great guy. He's like a, a guy from, from the Special Operations Command. Great dude, you know, he's a Master Chief. And so he's like, hey guys, this is it. Like we're, there's, there's just, we gotta get down low. We're going out at, at whatever it was, we're going out at twenty two hundred, and uh, and I was like, which just what just <laughs> let me. That's usually pull out. Yeah, it's, it's usually like forty five. I mean, it's usually four thousand is pull out. So now you're going. And down. I was like, I was yeah. like, what? And you know, we're friends. You know, he's a master chief, <laughs> but like we're friends. I'm like, I go, what are we going out? He's like twenty two hundred. He goes like twenty two hundred, just a hop and pop, and I was like, 
he could, and it was actually not just me. There were several of us that were all in the same platoon, all had just gone yeah. through free fall school a year before, all of us inexperienced. So, so finally, I go, I'm like, what's, what do you mean hop and pop? <laughs> and he's like, hey, go out, get stable, count to two, and just pull. And you know, he's like yelling in the aircraft, and he's, you know, just got a smile on his face. He's trying to be cool. And, and I was like, Roger that. He goes, you've never done one of these before? And I was like, negative. And, he, and he's like, what about you guys? They're all like negative. And he goes, hey, don't worry, guys, you'll be fine. Just don't ziggy the exit is what he said. Just don't ziggy the exit, which I'm thinking like, I, I mean, I can barely get out of a freaking right, aircraft yeah. at this point. Yeah. So, and went out. I didn't ziggy the exit. I'm still here, still alive. But, yeah. uh, and, and that's all you're thinking. Yep. Yep. Nail the exit, and then you'll worry about out. the two count. That's, that's yeah. what made me think of it was you yeah. said the guys thinking just like just just <laughs> get just get just don't ziggy the exit. Yeah, that's which right. is pretty pretty good instruction, man. <laughs> just don't ziggy the exit. That's yeah. a good uh, piece of advice. So after fear, perseverance, constancy in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. You know, it's one of those things. Seems real obvious, right? Yeah. You say this, if courage is the ability to effectively move through fear, challenge, or discomfort, then perseverance is the ability to keep doing it over and over again. To persevere, though, does not mean simply to endure. Every challenge, every uncomfortable situation and fearful episode has its own contours. Some might require only stoicism, a quiet quiet suffering until the moment passes. Others might call for an active, aggressive response. Those are two... You know, you get those situations where, dude, you're just hanging on. You're just going to, like, suck it up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I talk about there, I, I break, that's one of the attributes I break into a couple different things, right? And so perseverance is actually a combination of both persistence and tenacity. And with a little mental fortitude thrown mm-hmm. in the mix, right? But but persistence is, hey, I'm going to uh, do this thing, this same thing, until it, it's accomplished. I know it's, it's the rock, it's the stone cutter approach. I'm going to tap on this rock 100 times because I know on the 101st tap it's going to break. Uh, tenacity is I'm going to try something. If it doesn't work, I'm going to try something else if that doesn't work. And so so you don't want a tenacious stone cutter, right? You'll never get the rock cut. And you don't want a persistent car mechanic who just checks the belts and checks the belts. and check. But what per- perseverance allows you to do is allows you to modulate in between those two. And we all know that any environment might require either. Uh, and and the, the, the kind of the mental fortitude piece is can I decide which. But, um, but yeah, it's this ability to just keep stepping through and modulate yourself as you go through. You know, you get into this at some point in the book, um, you know, and I wrote a book called Dichotomy of Leadership with Leif, Leif, and it was the idea that if you take any of these, what we weren't calling them attributes, but if you take any characteristic of a human and mm-hmm. you take it to an extreme, it's probably going to be a problem. Yes, 100%. And, you know, one of the examples that I wrote about leadership strategy and tactics is this is something that when I was running training, we'd put these guys like in a hallway, you know, and at the end of the hallway, there'd be a barricaded shooter. And the platoon commander be like, two guys go. Those two guys get shot up with paintball, they're dead. Two more guys go. Those two guys get shot up with paintball, they're dead. Two more guys go. Those two guys get. And you'll have those guys stuck in that mindset Mm -hmm. of, number one, they've been trained to never quit their whole life. Like, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. And all you have to do is step back, like, two feet, look around and be like, oh. And, you know, sometimes I have to be like, hey, man, how many more guys are you going to send to their death? Do you think there's maybe another way to get to that room besides this hall, this one hallway that, right, that you're right. in right now? And it was amazing how tunnel visioned people get and experienced guys, you know, platoon chief, like the guy's got 15 years in, like two more go, mm-hmm. two more go. And you're like, hey man, flank this dude, man. Just go outside, throw a grenade in the window, do something else. So that the idea of 
and I think when I wrote about it in um, leadership strategy and tactics, I think that's called the chapter like when to quit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> yeah. hey, this is not this is not working out, man. <laughs> you might want to try something new. <laughs> Stop what you're doing. <laughs> might want to be tenacious versus persistent on that one. Yeah. So uh, another one, adaptability. The ability to quickly and calmly adjust to changing circumstances and situations. And you have a little ode to the frog here. Yep. Chapter six is called Be Like the Frog. Um, adaptability as amphibians, frogs are built to live a double life. If it isn't safe or suitable on land, they can hop into the water. Nothing to eat in the pond, wander out on land and grab a bite. Frogs have adapted f- to environments on every continent except Antarctica, from low-lying deserts to the slopes of mountains at 15,000 feet. In, uh, in the Australian outback, the water-holding frog can wait up to seven years for rain. Damn. <laughs> uh, thanks to their cold blood, frogs can change their body temperature to adjust the temperature to the surroundings, and their legs provide a mobility that is extremely advantageous, allowing them to leap up to 20 times their body length. The evolution of frogs, of course, is classic Darwinism. Survival doesn't necessarily favor the strongest, Fat lot of good that did the T-Rex, but rather those life forms that are most adaptable. This is the same for us. And therein lies the secret to making through buds. It's not about being the strongest, right? You have to adapt yourself and um, to whatever's going on. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all, all all team guys are high on adaptability, I think, um, because we can, uh, we can just, the environment changes and we just okay how do i adjust you know you know you don't fight it you adjust to it yeah i should have brought you this book uh i did i think i did four or five podcasts on this book called the psychology of military incompetence and it's written by this guy who is a world war ii guy who became a psychologist and he wrote this freaking awesome book but one of the main dynamics of the book is that when you look at the military from the outside you know if you're a young sort of person with an authoritarian mindset and you like things to be a certain way, you look at the military and you're like, oh, that's the place I need to be. Yeah. People will have to listen to me. Everyone's going to look the same. Everyone's going to have to wear the same stuff. Everyone's going to have to do what I tell them to do. It's a really promising looking environment mm-hmm. when you have an authoritarian mindset. And that authoritarian mindset in garrison works out really well. Yeah, right? Or on the drill team. <laughs> yeah, right? on the yep. drill team, it works out well. <laughs> But man, when you don't have that open mind and the adaptability and you get into combat where all of a sudden things aren't gonna go the way you want them to go, right. it's gonna be mayhem. Yes. And you can't, and people that have trouble adapting to it are gonna be not good no. combat leaders. So I've always, there'd always be some of those uh, folks rolling to buds. So a lot of times, um, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but I've heard stories of guys that were prior Marines, prior army, you know, had and and squared away like these guys, an infantry officer, a special operations guy from the army, whatever. But those environments, the Marine Corps and the army, they have a, a they're, they're going to favor someone that has a little bit more authoritarian mindset. Yeah, yeah. And they show up to buds and they're like, this is freaking mayhem. Right. And they don't even, they don't like it. It's too crazy for them. Yeah. It's too chaotic. This is not all army guys. It's not all Marines. I'm just saying, I've heard stories of guys like, oh, what, I heard that, that guy was, you know, that guy was a freaking uh, a platoon commander in Iraq in, in the army. What happened? And they'd be like, oh, dude, he just, he just 
it was too crazy. Yeah, it's, too, uh, it's a structure thing, right? And so I talk, you know, we'll probably get into cunning. I mean, this, but this is team guys. We all hate rules, <laughs> you know. I mean, our, and um, and so we actually like lack of structure in many cases. It it can be our downfall. It has been yep. as leadership, as leaders in the teams. We have to actually monitor that because it can go awry quite quickly. But um, but it's this looseness that we approach environments to. Because again, one of the things that you learn, and I always say, you know, people ask me a lot of times, hey, how, does, how do Navy SEALs stay humble, right? And I say, well, listen, there are some SEALs who aren't very humble, but most of us, for the most part, are humble dudes. And I said, the, the biggest, the most, the primary reason is because we're in environments that will kill us, right? I don't care what kind of swimmer you are, the ocean will kill you if you, ch- if you turn your back on it, right? Same with uh, jumping out of airplanes at 22,000 feet. I used to tell my guys, you know, Somalia, a nine-year-old with an AK-47 and just pulls a trigger and just happens to aim will kill a 35-year-old expert Navy SEAL in a second with, a, with, a, with an unaimed shot, right? So, so, the, so, in a, so in a world where the environment requires deep humility, and the ocean's just a perfect example. I mean, look, you, you surf, right? I mean, when you, get, when, you, when you get churned up by a wave, what do you do? You relax. You just let the you kind of you go with it. You don't fight it. You adapt to the water, right? And so, so I think this is a, a huge asset in in um, in in any type of uncertainty. Uh, and just like you said, any of these attributes over-indexed mm-hmm. is a bad thing. Too much adaptability means you're limp noodle, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and so, what we, in fact, what we're trying to do right now in the work we do with organizations, we're taking each attribute, and we're, we have about 46 now, and we're actually defining, okay, what does too much look like? What does mm-hmm. too little look like? Because it's a pretty cool project. You know? Yeah, that's that's uh, we at, at at my company we do the same thing. We we do a balance assessment, yeah. and like, where are you out of balance? Yeah. Do you? micromanage to a point where people have no say in what's happening or are you too far in the other direction where now no one knows what's going on right and we do that with every characteristic of leadership so yeah yeah balance and not being extreme that was the the bummer about our book extreme ownership is we put the term extreme in the in the <laughs> so, title so the assumption so people was like, like oh yes we got to be extreme it's <laughs> yeah. like no actually that we'll, we'll run another book to, to make up for that right right uh next one resilience the ability to rapidly return to one's baseline emotional and mental state after a stressful, traumatic, or even triumphant event. And you've got a story in here, and get the book to read the story about your uh, buddy Hank, who oh, was yeah. who was uh, wounded badly in Afghanistan, and you just talk about his resilience. Um, yeah, you gotta meet Hank, oh, just an awesome guy. Um, I was trying to, I was actually, I was reading about, I was like, oh, who is this guy? I, yeah. I was trying to, because he, he was your you, you, troop SEA? Yeah, you may know him, we'll, we'll, talk, we'll go yeah. offline, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I was, I was figuring, I mean, he's gotta be, I mean, uh, if he was in for uh, the same time period, he's gotta be around yeah, my time yeah. frame, actually. Yeah, he was, yeah. So, we'll talk offline about that, <laughs> but you have a great, great story about him, obviously a very inspiring story, and it's a legit story of resiliency. Um, but this is a, an interesting way of looking at it. You say this, uh, imagine your life represented by a line plotted on a page. Line moves from left to right, from the past into the present, extends a little bit more with each passing day. If your life was uniformly calm and pleasant, neither aggravating nor exciting, the, f- the line would be flat and level. We'll call that your baseline. And it's where you're at. It's where you're most comfortable emotionally, mentally, and physically, but the line is rarely flat. Of course, it undulates, rising and falling in an irregular wave to mirror the highs and lows of your life. Occasionally, the line spikes, representing your greatest achievements, and sometimes it plummets. Maybe your spouse divorces you, or maybe you get fired. It's difficult to function in either of those deep troughs or at those dizzying peaks. 
what you want, what you need is to return to the baseline, to that state of pleasant calm that's neither aggravating nor exciting. That's what it means to be resilient. Um, and you got a story in here from one of your skippers who... Who you know, who uh, I will say, because we, we mentioned him on the McRaven, Pete Van Hoosier, um, when you know, I mentioned him when McRaven was on. Uh, I mean, one of the best yeah. officers. I mean, he was, yeah. and I was so fortunate. He was my CEO when I was running training. Got it. Um, and yeah, he, t- he used to talk about the two-minute rule. And, uh-huh. um, you know, he said, my grandfather taught it to me. And, uh, you know, something bad happens, take two minutes and just, you know, wallow, swear, whatever you need to kick the dirt, you know, feel sorry for yourself. After two minutes, get back to work. Something good happens. Celebrate, rest on your laurels, pat yourself on the back. After two minutes, get back to work. You know, um, and it's such. And again, I people say because I've I've put this on social media. I've gotten some people like, well, it takes a lot more to, than two minutes. There's a lot of things in life that take a lot more than two minutes to come back to baseline from. But but the two minute rule allows you practice in those small tragedies. You know that that you might have, um, and practice the resilience muscle. And again, resilience is not necessarily growth. Or growth to to grow from ex- something like that takes a little bit more effort. Um, and you can kind of you can up that baseline. Some other stuff that Hubert and I were working on as well. Um, but resilience—if you can get back to baseline, you know—then you you are you're getting yourself back into a steady state where you can not start making decisions again. And I think that's another thing that Navy SEALs do very well: is we get back, we get ourselves back to baseline. Um, sometimes to our detriment, because if we come back, because we we might come back from a low so fast that we don't allow ourselves the appropriate healing time for that to happen. But you know, again. Sometimes we have to. If, 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 we're in, if we're in a combat environment, you know, we have to get back, right? But uh, but resilience is also often conflated with perseverance, you know. But resilience is not perseverance. Perseverance is moving through and, and, and going through. Resilience is snapping back. It's that rubber band stretching and then going back to uh, the original shape. shape so know? would it be a uh, – how does this play out? I'm, I'm imagining what I, what the answer is, but when you have someone that's really good with perseverance but not really good with resilience, yes. so they're in a, sh- in a bad place but they keep going? Yeah, they keep going, but what happens is they slowly they slowly fall into entropy. They're, so if you if you imagine, so the way you, you look, if people imagine that line and that sine wave, and a nice sine wave that kind of goes up and down mm-hmm. and stays that with that with that line center, someone who does not is not resilient. Will that but that that curve will slowly lower, go lower, down, lower, and that yeah. line will so it will fall. So you'll fall into entropy. Whereas if you can become anti fragile, you can actually get that line. You can actually have that that curve start moving up, and that line starts moving up. Right. Yeah. So, so any one of these, one of the cool things that I, I you know was exploring and continue to, and the way I actually distinguish these attributes is can they exist independently of each other? So can you be perseverant without being resilient? And the answer is absolutely yes. Can you be resilient without being perseverant? Yes. Um, so, uh, but, and, and there's, there's manifestations of each of those, mm-hmm. those combinations. Yeah, no, that's what kind of what I thought. That's why I said, I can imagine what the answer is. Yeah. And, and the reason I think this is because I think you and I both have known guys where they're going to keep going, Yes, but you can see that they're not they're not where they should be. They're going to keep going. They're going to keep going on deployment. They're going to yes. keep working. They're going to keep driving forward, but everything's falling apart. Yes. I think I think out of all the grit attributes, resilience is where a lot of team guys fall short, and you actually see it in the, in the civilian sector with very high performers, and there's a reason. The reason is because high performers, to include team guys, love the uh, love the feeling of getting getting the shit done. Oh, God, I got it done, right? What's the next thing? Okay, give me the next thing. Give me the next thing. And, and resilience, one of the things re- resilience requires is a recovery. It requires a, a, an assemblance of recovery to get back to baseline. If you maximize that recovery, you'll get to antifragility, but you at least need enough recovery to get back to baseline. A lot of top performers fall into the trap of not recovering, and we know mm-hmm. team guys <laughs> are pretty bad at that. Yeah. You know? 
Uh, next set of attributes that you talk about is the mental acuity mm-hmm. attributes. Mental acuity is basically a measure of how sharp the mind is. It has little to do with education or even raw intelligence. It's not a matter of how well-read or quick-witted you are. Rather, we're focusing on the ability to effectively absorb and understand information to concentrate, focus, and remember. You give some uh, some definitions in here. This is via Huberman. Yeah. <laughs> um, we talked a lot while I was putting this one together. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> You've got scripts. These are Think of these as the lines of code your brain is constantly writing to make sense of the world. You've got patterns. These are collections of similar scripts that build familiarity and certainty in our environment, such as every time I touch a hot stove, I get burned. Patterns are how we learn. Categories, the hippocampus, which is in charge of long-term memory groups, patterns into categories for easier retrieval, using a stove, climbing a tree, driving my car. And then context, these are broad versions of the categories, cooking, climbing, driving, and they can be applied to a variety of environments. For example, and this was, I thought this was a great example, if you jump on a tractor or slip into a go-kart or take the wheel of a boat, your brain will recognize that context as driving. So. Yeah. These are it, it, it gets it gets complex. It's funny, you know, you write a book, and I, I recognize I wrote that book, and afterwards I was like, ah, oh, this is pretty dense, and you have people who resonate with some of the details. My wife writes, she's like, there's too much neuroscience in here. I don't like that part, right? Um, other people are like, I love the neuroscience. I think when you talk about those definitions, it speaks to mostly that task-switching capability. Our brains are focus points, and we're hopping between category, contexts and categories uh, all the time. Um, ultimately, these attributes just describe how we – process the world around us. And they're my favorite because I think even though I would say compartmentalization is the number one thing you need at SEAL training, it's that it's really the mental acuity attributes that start defining how you perform in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. And so and so when we start going through those like situation awareness, compartmentalization, task switching, um, how's our brain working in those environments and, and how quickly and effectively are we able to do certain things? Um, and there's pros and cons for both. So the one you just mentioned, the first one of these situational awareness, the ability to absorb and process meaningful information about our current environment. Yeah. And man, this is... <laughs> in, in short, vigilance, right? Yeah. 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 And then, you know, you get into, and, and, and you get into this as well, um, the fact that, you know, you, here's what you say. As with any attribute, extremes can be detrimental. Like I said, yeah. you get into it yourself. You know, I wrote a book about it. This book has it as well. Extremes can be detrimental. Too little situational awareness risks obliviousness to real danger. Too much hyper or hypervigilance can wear out the nervous system and perhaps even mask an underlying paranoia. So this is this is the um, seeds oftentimes of PTSD for those of us coming back from the combat zone. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm someone who literally walks around New York City, and I love New York City, right? I walk around, I notice everything. I notice dark alleys, I notice hands, I notice faces, I notice cars. You know, everything. And my wife's not next to me, and she doesn't notice anything, right? And yeah. now, again, let me just make sure I set the context. All of us have all of these attributes. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each, right? So so adaptability, right? Um, I, you and I would be a level eight. Environment changes around us. We, sh- we, we shift, okay? Someone else might be a level three. It's difficult for them. They're still adaptable. It's just difficult. So, And if we were kind of line all these up like a dimmer switch on a wall, we'd all have different dimmer switch settings mm-hmm. as to where these things fall, which starts to speak to our performance, okay? Um, so there's no judgment in this, right? It's like you're like judging your hair color. It's just who you are. Um, so when I say I'm, we all, SEALs tend to be high, you know, very high, high situation, pretty vigilant. And when you go to a combat zone, as you know, 
Um, you're wired. I mean, you get you get high. I mean, everything. You you just notice everything. You're on key, and so when you go home, if you can't turn that off, that's when you're walking around New York City. And it's like, okay, there's a guy like two feet behind me. I can't, and he can't. It's like, okay, it's gonna be okay, right? So, so I've I made I had I took deliberate efforts a lot of times to just freaking relax. <laughs> I'm just what, what what efforts did you take? Just to just to to recognize where I was being too hyper vigilant and say, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine, right? Um, and and in some cases, just enjoy the moment of obliviousness. You know, uh, put my headphones on, maybe a couple times, which is hard <laughs> for me. Like I like I'm like you. I don't run with headphones because I usually because I like the environment. But mm-hmm. I see people running with headphones on the street. I'm like, what the hell are you yeah. thinking? I mean, you're gonna get hit. I'll by put one ear in. That's it. Yeah, two ears in. I've never. I no. That's yeah. not happening. That's not happening. Yeah. That's not yeah. happening. My, my sons do one. Do the one earphone yeah. headphone. But uh, but anyway, I think um, uh, situation awareness again. Too much is hyper. Mm-hmm. Sees a PTSD. Too little. Well, I mean, you're not going to notice stuff, and that's it's important too. Sometimes. So. Yeah, um, it's weird too. I was thinking like your wife. If you you're in New York City, she's with you. Her vigilance is way low. But I bet. You walk out of the grocery store at night to your car, which is far across the parking lot. You're not thinking that much about it. Your wife, the other hand, you know, walking out at night from the grocery store to the car, she's probably more vigilant than you are, yeah. just because there's a she probably perceived threats higher. Yeah, threat. I think threat definitely definitely affects this, and um, and this is where it gets attributes get interesting because context matters. Um, and I think what the the best way to describe this in a general sense is where you default to, you know, and. And I just, I default to noticing stuff. I mean, just, it's just who we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just noticed. Actually, Huber and, I, Huber and I were joking about this. We were traveling. This was, well, before COVID, we were traveling to do a talk. And so we happened to be traveling together. And um, and we show up and, and I'm just like, okay, we got to go here, here, here. I know what's in my bag. I know I get through security. Like everything's just, I just know. I've, I've thought through everything. <laughs> and, and I think I did TSA pre-check too. Meanwhile, he goes through the regular security, and I walk over to see where he is. And his bag is completely opened up. The <laughs> security guard's ticket. You know, there's protein powder and all that stuff. And we were joking about that because we're just we're just constantly yeah. thinking that way. You know, yeah. noticing stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the one that you've mentioned already several times: compartmentalization, the ability to effectively chunk an environment or situation into meaningful pieces then focus on that which needs immediate attention and again in the book extreme ownership is we call this prioritize and execute you got to focus on what's happening Um, compartmentalization is a three-step process assessment prioritization and then focus so you know for me it was prioritize and execute it's it's interesting one of the stories that I tell in the book is Seth Stone was the platoon commander. I was task unit commander, and we're out doing vehicle immediate action drills. Mm-hmm. And when the guns would the guns would start shooting, the targets would pop up. He would like lock up. You know, this is just we're in our workup. Yeah. And I'm watching him, and, and he's not making a call. And so I took my sharpie magic marker, and I like we got done with the run. And I was like, Hey, bro, next time I want you to do this. And I wrote one like on on the windscreen uh, or the windshield of his Humvee. I wrote one. Relax. Two, look around. Three, make a call. I said, when you hear those guns start shooting again, just follow these steps. Yeah. And he's like, Roger that. Yeah. And so then, sure enough, you know, I'm like sitting behind him in the vehicle, and the targets pop up, and the shooting starts. And I, I'm looking at him, and I see him like, you can't hear anything because the 50 cal's going. But I look at him, and I see him like take a breath and exhale. I'm like, okay, cool. He's got step one. He's relaxing. <laughs> and then he looks around. He opens the door, looks at the vehicles behind him. I'm like, okay, there's two. And he gets on the 
on the horn and makes a call. And I was like, there you go. Um, that was kind of the original version of prioritize and execute yeah. and, and also taking a step back. Like you gotta take a step back, you gotta relax and, and look around and make a call and that's what, that's what you're talking about here. Well, and compartmentalization doesn't work without situation awareness. I mean, and that's, so what you're talking about is that, that stepping back, is you're stepping back, you're getting situation aware again and then you're compartmentalizing and then you're getting a situation where this is that, that out in yeah. motion and they just work in tandem in the best way. Yeah. It's such a freaking cheat code. Really. Oh my God. It's yes. such a yeah. cheat code. And, yeah. and again, another Seth Stone story. So he broke his neck during workup. I remember hearing that. Yeah. And so now he can't do land warfare, but I'm like, Hey bro, let's, you know, come out. I'm going out to, to do FTXs with your guys. We're going out to watch him. He, I said, come out with me. He's like, Oh, of course. So we're standing there and, his guys are pinned down. We got the the laser tag system on, mm-hmm. and his guys are pinned down in this ravine. And he's like, "Let me help him." And I was like, "No." And we're we're literally standing like a foot away from these guys, and it's so obvious what call needs yeah. to be made. It's yeah. just completely obvious. Yeah. And no one's making the call. They're all looking down their gun and yelling and screaming, and just it's just chaos. And finally, you know, I, I to, go ahead help him, and he tells him, "Hey, do this iad or whatever." And he looks at me once they're out. He goes, "Man, it's so easy from way up here." Yeah. And I was like, bro, look where we are. I go, you know what this was like for me when we went through a workup together? I said, everything was like this because I was never freaking staring down the barrel of my gun or the sights of my weapon, like freaking out. Right. I was just like looking around. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's an out over there. Cool. Mm-hmm. We could, oh, I see the bad guys. We don't want to go in that direction. Let, hey, let's do this maneuver. And it's just really easy. It's like a freaking superpower. Yeah. The detachment. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, so you go into this compartmentalization and also worth noting. You say this is an endless process. Compartmentalization is not static. If you silo your thoughts into a tight box and keep them there, or, or sorry, as if you silo your thoughts and keep them there. It's ever-changing. The script is constantly updating with information. And we actually have a word for this in the military. Target fixation, Yes. right? This is like, oh, you're gonna prioritize and execute, but then you forget about everything else. Now you've only got one thing you're looking at. Yeah. We call that target fixation. Not, and it's, it's not, not gonna job, work out it, well. Not a job of a leader. <laughs> yeah, a leader should not be doing that, yeah. Um, the multitasking myth, this is chapter <laughs> 10, task switching, the ability to shift focus among tasks or contexts. Most people believe they can multitask. Most people, in fact, believe they're very good at it. In one famous study from the University of Utah, a statistically absurd but remarkable confident, remarkably confident 70% of participants thought they were above average in their ability to do multiple things at once. <laughs> they weren't, and you aren't either. When people try to do several things at once, almost everyone, a full 98%, according to the Utah study, gets worse at each individual task. Another study at Stanford found that people who habitually multitask actually do more poorly over time. So this is this again falls into compartmentalization yeah. because if you're not prioritizing and executing and you're trying to do a bunch of things at the same time, you're actually going to fail at all of them. Yeah, and a recognition that we just, we can't focus on more than one thing. I mean, we just can't. And so, and again, people will be, people will be listening to this podcast and say, you know, Rich and Jocko, you're full of it because I'm listening to this podcast and driving my car, right? right? It doesn't count if you've relegated that task to your unconscious mind. You can do that because you don't have to think about driving your car. But if you're listening to this podcast, driving your car, and someone swerves in front of you and you have to take evasive maneuvers, you'll have to rewind the last 15 seconds of the yes, podcast you because <laughs> your brain will have hopped context, right? And so, and so the people, so there are some people who are really good at this, you know, who can go from the email to the conversation to this to that and go all around and just hop really effectively. Other people, when they when they get hop or get hopped, it takes them a while for their brain to kind of engage in that new activity. And mm-hmm. so and so it's really just about understanding where you are. Um, I just realized I do something. Echo Charles. Mm-hmm. 
you're not gonna like this because I've probably done it to you before. I don't doubt it. So let's say we're rolling. Mm-hmm. You and me rolling jujitsu. We're struggling, right? And all of a sudden, I just like start having a conversation with someone, or like I, or like I go, or you know, like we're rolling, yeah. and all of a sudden I say to someone that's else that's carrying on a conversation somewhere else, and I go, I say, uh, you know, actually no, there's no class this afternoon. Yeah, yeah, chime in. And I'm doing that. I literally do that psychological warfare yeah. to let you know that whatever you're doing right now, I'm yeah. not even thinking about it. It's yeah. kind of a joke. Yes, I know that. Okay, I just yeah, made yeah. sure you do that. I was fully that. aware of your intention too, so it kind of like mitigated the effects a little bit. It's like the ultimate cool guy thing. Yeah, but a lot of people do that, and. It's kind of like because some jujitsu is like I that. I feel like I just, I just kind of gave up some of my. I know now you know the yeah, now you know the gap. I no, he's you know, not, he's not the only person I do it to. <laughs> yeah, well, I already gap. knew he did that. Yeah. He does other stuff too. It's way more mean. <laughs> but it's uh, but jujitsu is the kind where sometimes you can do that because a lot yeah, of it is just natural, totally. you know, muscle memory, or whatever. And so you can see, you know, especially in the early rounds where you're warming up or whatever, like people do it, and that's kind of the reason he'll do it because yeah. it's kind of like, oh, I don't even have to think when I roll with you. Yeah, they yeah. just <laughs> relegate to the subconscious mind. I see what you're doing. That's my point. Yeah. That's good. That's what yeah, made me think good. of it when you're like, oh, you can drive a car, you'll have to rewind the 15 seconds. Yeah. So you know you had to think about it. I don't want to think yeah. about what you're doing. So now, watch, next time he does that stuff, I'm, I'm going to like go hard or whatever, increase his sense of urgency. Work the gap. Yeah, you got to interrupt his little psychological thing. Yeah. There you go. Um, <sighs> this is the one, the, be, between that one and, comp- so the compartmentalization thing you talked about for buds for basic seal training it's mm-hmm. just like oh you just need to focus on whatever you're doing right in front of you right now right you, know, move, you need to effectively move your horizons yeah and but and the focus of this one is the task switching so recognizing that you can't do two things at the same time you need to focus on this one yeah and if you have to focus on the other thing go ahead and focus on that other thing so so it gets this is where it gets fun and a little bit complex is that the the people who do this very well and, and what we've seen in our environments can um can compartmentalize while keeping a little bit of situation awareness to the environment because because as they as we monitor the environment at least, and and actually Huberman will, will will testify to this in terms of the human brain can't necessarily focus on two things at once but it can keep awareness of a second thing while you're focused on one thing and so and so we keep awareness because if if in that awareness the priorities change then we task switch, right? And we we, we, work, we say, oh, now the new priority, we're coming off of this, even though it's incomplete, and shifting that shifting to a new priority. So, so they they can they can dance. These attributes can dance with each other. And I don't know what the optimal levels are for you know a seal or someone you know t- depending. I would I would imagine fighting is the same way because you're you're constantly gauging the environment, and you might be focused on one move, but you're, you're gauging what, what's happening. You may have to shift or adapt, but th- these, types of, these types of exercises can allow for, for a good uh, practice of yeah. these. Yeah. One, of the, um, one of the things that I, I think it's really useful to be able to do is like press into a, an issue, and this is what I used to tell the young SEAL officers that were going through my training. I'd be like, hey, you might need to get in there and solve a problem, don't stay there. Right. Like get in there, look in that room, look in that building, look at that, what, what that squad is doing, make the adjustment, and then get back out of there. Mm-hmm. And now I, I, well, with the OODA loop, when when people fail with the OODA loop, it's because they get stuck in one piece of that. Right. They're looking around too much, they're not making a decision, or they're, they can't figure out what decision to make, or once they make a decision, they don't act on it. I also do this whole uh, leadership loop of decision making, 
And the final point that I make is don't get stuck in any one of these things mm-hmm. because then you're stuck in that one thing. Yeah. So the ability to press in, look at a problem, solve the problem, give a, give a direction, give a solution, and then get out of there is 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 a key to anything that you're doing really is from a leadership perspective. The minute, and this is another thing I've been saying a lot lately, the solution to the problem is not in the problem. Right. Like you're, you're, you can go in there to figure out what the problem is and then back out and find what the solution is. Cause most likely when you're in that problem, you're not gonna, you're, <laughs> you're not gonna see the solution. You're in the fishbowl. Right? Yeah. That's yeah. like when you're up in the catwalks and you know, you're watching, when you're watching other people do CQC, oh, it's like so easy from up here. Mm-hmm. When you're watching somebody do an IAD, you're like, oh, there's the out over there. Or that's where the, that's where they should flank to. You can actually get there while you're doing it. As long as you exercise that detachment mm-hmm. and taking a step back and looking around, so important. This is what, uh, again, the the advantage, I mean, again, I think you, you would agree with me, war sucks on all levels, um, but the advantage of being able to uh, be in combat or, or be at these these units where we're learning this stuff, um, if you're not doing this as a leader, you're, you're out of the game. You're going to be outrun. I mean, you have to. You recognize that this is your job. Your job is not looking down the gun and pointing and, and shooting. I mean, I, 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 I maybe kicked a couple doors when I was <laughs> out, out in, in Iraq and Afghanistan because my job was task unit commander. I was running the environment. And my guys expected me to do that job because they, they said, hey, you do that very well, right? So, so the job is to maintain that awareness so that the guys who have to be target fixated for a little while can do so and understand that their backs are covered. Yeah. Um, learnability. The ability to absorb, process, and apply new information to a current or future context. Among the mental acuity attributes, the most important is learnability. It's a sort of catalyst that allows those other cognitive traits to be put into effective use. If we didn't have the ability to update and adjust the scripts, our brains are constantly writing or apply and remember the appropriate patterns and templates. That is to learn, then compartmentalization and task switching would only help make us make the same mistakes more efficiently. So if you're not looking at what's going on and actually adjusting to what's happening, then although it doesn't matter if you're compartmentalizing, right. you're not learning anything, you're not, you're not, not making adjustments. Yeah. Well, and I would say this is actually one that I admit that I'm a little lower on um, because the, the people who are really high on learnability are the people you can tell how to do something once or show them once and they got it, right? Mm-hmm. They just, they pick up things really fast. And I, for me, well, it was buds, but probably more the the selection when I was going through it. And we would finish a day of training, and there'd be guys are they clean their gear and go drinking. I'd have to stay back and like think about what I did, and and, and I'd make the same mistakes a couple of times. And so it's really it's an adjustment to where you are. Um, but if we're not if we're not able to recognize where we fall on this particular attribute, it's going to be tough to actually metabolize these lessons. I think something that I learned watching when I was a young guy. And I'd see guys that were older than me, you know, with experience that have two platoons or five platoons or whatever. And they would be, this is the way you do it. Mm-hmm. Something, whether it was a room entry, whether it was immediate action drill, whether it was, you know, how to put your weapon at high port, low port, whatever. There was a way that they had been taught. And in their minds, that was the only way mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah. It was the only way to do it they usually couldn't articulate why their way was better. They would usually use their rank or their authority, their experience to say, no, I've always done it this way. This is the way we learn. And I remember, I have to try and try and remember where this kind of lesson solidified, but I remember thinking to myself, I'm not gonna be like that. Mm-hmm. 
And there is definitely 100% more than one way to skin a cat. Like you can go into a room, you can do 28 different things and they can all be right. Yeah. Like you can go, you could go left, you could go right. You could, there's a bunch of different ways to do things. And to, to get st- stuck on one way and not ever make adjustments, to me, that's a lack of learnability. 100%. <laughs> well, so when I got to SDVs, you know, again, late 90s, we had, as you recognize when you're at SEAL Team 2, a bunch of the old Vietnam guys were still in the teams, great dudes, most of them running training. And I remember we did a, we did an island trip um, as SDVs because we were going to deploy out to the Middle East. And so we're doing this insane, like, seven-day hump or whatever, and, and they're, they're contacting us and things like that. And they're contacting us in open terrain, middle of the desert, right? And they're like, okay, peel right or peel, peel left. They're using Vietnam like channelized, you know, tactics in an open desert. And I remember thinking that doesn't, it just doesn't compute right now. I mean, are, are there other ways to do that? And in fact, the teams started to see that too. I remember, you probably remember IMT, the whole IMT stuff, right? That, that came from, or at least when I saw it, or it would seem to be born from this idea that, hey, we need to start learning how to move in a different way. Because yes, some of these channelized tactics are great. They work for jungles, but you know, we need some different tactics. And th- but this is the dinosaur mentality we always you know, are combating. Yeah, there's been some, there, there definitely was some um, strange evolutions that happened. And I mean, literal evolutions. I, you didn't go to OCS. Um, I went to OCS, and when I went to OCS, they had uh, you had to polish your. You got these issued these belt buckles, mm-hmm. they're brass belt, they're some kind of brass, right? And they came with this coating on it that meant it didn't erode. Right, it just stayed beautiful and shiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you got it issued to you, they would make you polish that thing until that enamel came <laughs> off, and now it could erode. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, like, this lost its, this lost, this got lost yes. somewhere. Yeah. Uh, the IADs, so as you know, at our land warfare on the West Coast, the desert training facility, there's areas in there that are closed terrain. Yes, you right. can go and you can do jungle tactics yep. in closed terrain. And what, what happened is some things over time, they lost, they got lost. And I'll give you a great example. Um, when you're doing, for instance, like a, like a peel right, and when you do a peel right, you ever, you ever seen that thing where it looks like you're doing a, a pirouette, they call it, which is like a dance move, you spin around? Yes. So you'd be, like, if you were gonna peel right, or if you're gonna peel left, and it was your turn to go, you would turn the opposite direction. Turn and to the right and spin. Spin around. Yeah, like an about face, yeah. And so, if you're on a range in America, there's almost no place where you can do what you're actually supposed to do. And the Vietnam guys, no, I, this got I missed this for like my first platoon. I was like, I didn't really understand. I said, Hey, why are we doing this spin? And guys, were like it's for safety. And I was like, Okay, I didn't really understand why this was safer. Maybe you're kind of high porting or whatever. And then a Vietnam guy was, you know, I asked a Vietnam guy. I was actually, I think it was Roger Hayden. <laughs> and uh, I was like, Why do you spin like this? Why don't you just get up and go? And he goes, Oh, if you weren't on a range right now. If you were, if you had 360 degree, you would, when you got done shooting at the target, you would then turn to your right and dump more rounds on your flank. Mm-hmm. Then you would turn behind you and dump rounds behind you to make sure that you're not getting someone behind you. And then you'd tag your next guy and go. 
So what it looks like when you can't shoot is it looks like you're just spinning for no reason. Mm-hmm. And so I've explained that to many, many people over the years. Like, oh, here's what's actually supposed to be happening. You're supposed to be doing this. So what happened is when you got guys that went from like doing the um, closed terrain where you can move because you're behind cover and concealment. Well, when you're in the desert, it's a long way to travel. And so what do you do? Well, well, just kind of going through the motions. So in order to go through the motions, just get up and run. And that became a thing. And it's like, mm, that does, why doesn't that feel right? Well, it doesn't feel right, because it's not. Right. Now listen, if you are if you're have distance and you have cover fire, sometimes it does the right thing to do. And you can, you got guys putting down massive cover fire, hey, you get up and move, you're trying to get out of there. But yeah, there's some of those things that over time, they, the next thing you know, you're polishing <laughs> the enamel off your belt buckle. <laughs> That's right. And, That's right. and things just get lost in translation over time. That's one of the negatives about not having Doctrine like we talked about earlier no one to say hey the reason that you spin like that is if you were in a a Real contact in a closed environment you'd be dumping rounds so that you're not getting flanked and you're not getting anyone coming up Your six which is what you know, there's when you're online in a gunfight everyone's online facing in one direction Yeah, so somebody's got to occasionally dump some rounds behind you make sure no one's crawling up your ass Which is going to be a bad scene I'm I'm really appreciative because I never knew that. So I've 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 learned that now after 21 years in the Navy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, and, that's and and again I got lucky, like caught that, and I, I always had those questions. You know, like wait a second, why are we doing this? Wait, why does that? Yeah, what's that? Where's that come from? And yeah, usually there was a reason, and unfortunately sometimes it would get lost in the translation over time, which is, which is terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then a lot of lessons we relearned in 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 the our war. Um, right on. What do we got next here? After learnability, drive. I think the drive attributes. Uh, we all have needs, and the drive is how we try to fulfill them. If you're hungry and thirsty, to use the easiest examples, you are driven to find food and water. Those are admittedly much easier tasks now that we can satisfy those needs by opening the refrigerator and turning on the tap. But for many millennia, eating and drinking required expending a considerable amount of time and energy. The more driven among our ancestors were the least hungry and thirsty. There are two kinds of human needs, intrinsic and extrinsic. Explain those to me, intrinsic and extrinsic. Well, it's from Dan Pink's uh, book, Drive. So okay. the intrinsic needs are those, um, those uh, you can almost talk about like, physiological needs. I mean, the, the drive to drink is from a physiological need mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to, because you're thirsty, you need water. Extrinsic are those, um, you know, I need, to, I need to make money to pay my rent, right? So, so they're just coming from the external environment. Um, but, uh, but yeah, drive, the, the drive as opposed to grit. I mean, grit I would define as the, that that ability to kind of set and pursue those shorter term or acute challenges and objectives, and then drive as those longer term challenges and objectives. I mean, what are those? What makes up the driven person? What are those attributes? Um, and there's some counterintuitive ones in there. Mm-hmm. So, um, self-efficacy, a belief in one's ability to achieve a goal, especially when the path is uncertain or unknown. And you have this chapter titled. This chapter about self-efficacy is titled uh, Mastering the Pivot. Mm -hmm. You say, like some other attributes, self-efficacy can be dissected into components. It's a combination of confidence, initiative, and optimism. I I, I like these little, I like that um, 
As soon as I read that, I was like, hmm, that's a good, a good way of explaining it. It's not as simple as, I got this. That's usually bravado. Self-efficacy is thoughtful and serious. It's, I know I can do this because I'm willing to take the first step, and even though I don't know yet all the answers or how this will unfold, I'll continue until I'm successful. And then you go through talking about confidence, talking about initiative, and talking about optimism. Yeah. And it's really interesting to try and, you know, if you're, if you're entering any kind of pursuit in life, yeah. and you think, all right, how confident am I about this? Can I take the first move? And in order to take that first move, you gotta have that optimism that you're actually gonna make it happen. You do, and, and so we, 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 we throw those other attributes into our mix when we're doing this stuff with, with organizations, because all, all these attributes are meaningful, but, <clears throat> but they can be inert. By, the, by themselves. You know, I, I talk about in the book, I mean, you know, I've always wanted to be a pilot and my dad was a pilot. My brother was a pilot. Uh, I know pretty much at this point I could fly an airplane. I know everything about flying. I've been through ground school a couple of times. I mean, I know everything. I could get into, I got my brother's sim and I could fly the thing, right? I've never gotten my pilot's license. I've, I'm confident I could fly a plane. I've never gotten my pilot's license, right? So there's lack of initiative there. Um, and so initiative on its own is frenetic energy. I mean, you just, you know, oh, I'm just going to go, right? But if there's no if there's no confidence, if there's no optimism, you're just you're just expending energy. And then optimism on its own. I mean, you and I could plant gardens and and say every day that weeds are not going to grow. Um, and sure, you know, sure enough, three weeks later, weeds will grow. So so optimism on its own can be inert. Um, and so it's really the combination that makes up the self-efficacious person. And and if you have if you have uh, an optimal level of that, you will that that adds to your drive quite a bit. There's got to be. A, I, I we had a, a friend of mine. Travis Mills on this podcast, and he's just a freaking, probably the best human ever. I don't know. You think Travis is the best human <laughs> ever? Do you know who he is? He's a quadruple amputee oh, from I've Afghanistan. Heard, I've heard of him. Yeah. He's his attitude is bar none better than any uh, anyone I've ever known. I yeah. mean, just absolutely freaking awesome guy. And we were talking, you know, we we're going through his life and his history, and he joined the army. And, you know, we're talking and, you know, he like was a stud in high school, freaking football athlete, just a stud. And he's a beast of a human, just a total stud. And I kind of was like, hey, man, why didn't you go and like, you know, like, why don't you try for special forces or do you didn't go ranger or anything like that? And he goes, man, I didn't know if I could make it. And I, like this guy is, I mean, I was the most average person, like the <laughs> most average high school kid across the board, like. Average to low average in everything that I did. I was just like, but for some reason I had this idea like, oh, SEAL training, toughest training in the world. Why not? <laughs> Let's go. I bring it. <laughs> and you have a total stud like Travis being like, yeah, I wasn't sure if I could make it. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's like he he might have had a little negative on the optimism. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. There's a balance, and, and but there's also we can. We'll throw throw a little cunning in there. We don't like rules, so don't tell me what to do. Uh, there's some rebel nature in there um, that I think causes guys like you and I to to try for seals. Uh, and we'll talk about this. There's a little bit of narcissism too. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a question. Go. So, and like Travis Mills, you you mentioned the Travis Mills thing, yep. where he was like kind of a higher level, like a high level athlete, like in high yep, school and yep. stuff, and got used to it. And we talked about this about buds too with Jason Gardner a little mm-hmm. bit where he was talking about you have high level athletes who are really used to being high level and mm-hmm. winning, winning, winning. Yeah. Right. So, but then they go through buds and they start losing and then they're, it shatters. Them, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you get someone like how you just said, like you were just average. So you're kind of used to taking <laughs> yeah, yeah. L's. You I'm know? ready for a beat down. Oh yeah. Ready for that beat down. So <laughs> do you think that it's like, 
if you kind of consider like why is that? So it's kind of like the uh, the the high level athlete, so to speak, mm-hmm. is used to a certain standard of of what winning is. And then I wouldn't even say winning. Like, I would say I would say, and again, success, I, I, th- I think it's a it's a level of performance. I mean, yeah. the, the the high level athlete designs his or her entire day and system uh, around being a hundred percent for the moment. Right? It's it's this idea of a peak performance, hundred percent for the moment. Um, and uh, and so when they come into an environment where 100% doesn't exist, or they say, "Oh, great, you're 100%. We're going to take you down to zero. Right. They're just not used to it. And so yeah. I think I think a lot of the the the, the Div One athletes who, who go and don't make it are just not used to being at a performance level of 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 not 100, let alone zero. I was like, you know, we we love to be 100, but like if someone came to us before remission and said, you know what, my um my shoulders kind of 90. percent I think I'm gonna sit this one out. We're like, what? Yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, no it's more like said. telling a guy that like has a freaking broken leg, like, hey, bro, you cannot, you cannot go. go. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, no, I'm good, I'm good bro. This. I'm good. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know what it is? The difference between rugby players and everybody else, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Seals are more like rugby, rugby players. But yeah, I think it's that. It's that level of performance. Yeah. So like the, and, and not to put too fine of a tip on it, but so like, let's say someone who's so used to winning and so used to performing at their best, more mm-hmm. or less, it's almost like their level of standard of what they would call success in their mind is like so high so anything below that threshold is kind of like oh i might as well not even exist in this environment i think you're i think you're onto something again we can't we can't dig in the minds of these folks but this is again you know i i I keep on saying fighting like fighting is a is a sport you go into and you're literally going in and expecting to get hurt you're going to go i mean the the whole game is you're going to go from 100 percent down to whatever percent knocks you out right or Mm -hmm. you're not got that other guy that is a whole different mentality than a lot of other sports, right? And so I think mm-hmm. I think these types of distinctions are really interesting to me. I'm sure, you know, you have to be careful you don't put labels on things, but right. um, I don't know. I like d- dissecting that stuff. Yeah, that's the scary thing too, because whatever example you bring up, there's a counter example. Yeah. For every example yeah. where you're like, well, this guy was a, a stud and he quit. And there's a stud that made it. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And yeah. there's a stud that failed whatever, and he was like, yeah, cool, I got it. Like, right. well, it, there's just a counter. There, there's just a counter to every example that you can come up with. Yeah, and I don't mean necessarily like the whole guy. Right. I'm just saying that element that of element, their brain. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. If we could, if if we could figure those things out, then you'd start to be able to figure out who's going to make it through. I think, uh, but you have to look at the whole. You can't just look at their their life in athletics. You'd have to look at their whole mm-hmm. life. I mean, because there's because all those grid attributes, all those mental acuity attributes, all those drive attributes, they're all executed in other areas of life too. I mean, mm-hmm. I talk about. It. I mean, seals are gritty, yeah, but there are some gritty people out there who are way grittier than seals. Right. I mean, so so these contexts of life can be training and proving grounds for people yeah. and athletics. That's why the, the top athlete might have had a, a whole different context inside of which he or she just just nugged it out and was used to being at zero. And then right. they make it. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, that would make sense with the wrestlers because they're cutting weights yeah. day oh, of yeah. and all yeah. this like oh crazy God, starving yeah. themselves like that. So yeah. that would make sense. Yeah. For and sure. they still quit, by the way. Division they, one wrestlers yeah, do. Some go do. and freaking quit. Some do. Yeah. That's what happens. Crazy. Actually, I heard a story from one of the instructors was telling me like they had a guy that was a total stud, like just an awesome, fast, freaking strong, just a stud. And the they had like they do things like uh, put you on runs where they're supposed to be four miles, but it's actually four point six or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or they make you do a bunch of exercise before, and and so they fail everybody. They'll they'll, they'll yeah. let they'll let three guys pass or whatever, yeah. and be like, see those guys did it, and this guy like. I think it was like first day, whatever, of first phase. So he's gone through all the pre-training, and then he failed. They're like, "You fail," and he's like, "You got me. I quit." 
<laughs> they were like, well, okay, well, see know. ya. Yeah. Which is, it's actually crazy when you think about guys that sign up for the Navy, enlist in the Navy for six years of their life, yeah. tell their girlfriend, tell their parents, tell all the friends, I'm gonna be a Navy SEAL. And they show up there on the first day, they freaking quit. Yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. I, I think part of that's the mythos, though, because because even even reading about the training, you read about how we go, you don't, you just don't experience until yeah. you hit the beaches that that first day. I uh, was telling some young guy the other day, you know, like, you know, his dad or whatever. Someone was, it was a, it was a family context, like like a family had met me or like a father and son or something. That, yeah. And the kids like, he, the dad's like, he wants to be a seal, and I was like, yeah, you know, uh, it's really hard. Most people don't make it. Most people quit. And um, and he's like looking at me as if, bro. <laughs> You know, I mean, uh, what are you? Yeah, look and at I, me. Yeah. I go and I go, and most people look at me like you're looking at me right now. Like, clearly, it's not going to be. I go, I go. Everyone shows up there thinking they're going to make it. Yeah, and eighty percent of them ring the bell. So, I wish you luck. Don't quit. That's my advice. Yeah, I was I was in a group of uh, again, good dudes or company we're working for about ten of us, and they were all you know talking about SEAL training, and and um, and almost all of them were like, oh, I'd love to be a SEAL. And I, I think I could do it. If I did, I think I could do it. I think I could do it. And I looked at him and I said, listen, there's 10 people in here, okay? <laughs> About 85% quit. So the and I, and I already got through. So the odds aren't good for you. <laughs> so you got point, point 0.5 from <laughs> one of you point, is going to make it. Point 0.5 from one of you is going to make it. So, yeah. uh, um, all right. Here's a topic I'm always a fan of. Discipline. Yes. The ability to remain focused and steadfast to achieve a result. But what's interesting, this is called, the, the chapter title is The Self-Disciplined Loser. Yes. And what's interesting is, is Echo and I talk about this, you know, people that have high amounts of discipline in certain areas mm-hmm. and, and they just don't apply it to other aspects of their life. It's that difference between what I call outer and inner discipline. So and, talk about them. Yeah. And so, and so the discipline I talk about in the book is really outer discipline. The... That's making, uh, uh, choosing or, or deciding upon a goal uh, that the outside world has a say in whether or not you accomplish. Okay, that could be a Navy SEAL, writing a book, becoming a best-selling author, being a great chef, whatever, whatever that might be. The outside world has a say in whether or not you can accomplish those. So, so, the, so the discipline required to accomplish that takes a different level. It takes adaptability. It takes flexibility. It takes an understanding of you have to shift, you have to move, right? But then there's self-discipline, okay? Self-discipline uh, uh, speaks to those goals that the outside world has no say in whether or not you accomplish. So that's like me saying I'm going to eat healthier and I'm in Vegas next week. Well, I'm at the buffet. The buffet's not going to throw pastries at me, okay? It's all on me, all right? Again, this is where it gets interesting because I ask myself, can these exist independently? I have known people who are highly self-disciplined. They have a routine. They work out every day. They eat right, blah, blah, blah. They can't get a, a, a long-term goal accomplished for their, to save their lives, right? I've seen people, I'm actually one of these, who's, I'm highly disciplined. Like, I can get audacious goals accomplished, you know, and I'm good at it, right? My self-discipline sucks. I have to work <laughs> on it. So it was really hard for me, right? I always joke. It's like, I don't even like to tell myself what to do, let alone, you know, be told. Um, the best is a balance, right? But again, when you start separating these and seeing that they can live independently, you start really understanding your performance. And so if you have the, the, the ability to say, listen, I'm really high on self-discipline. Get, get a, really high self-discipline people love structure. They love routine. Guess what's going to happen if you try to be a Navy SEAL or be a best-selling author or be whatever you name the outside goal. Your routine is going to get screwed with. You're not going to be able to work out one day. You're not going to be able to eat the same thing you want to eat, right? So, so that's why they fall off. 
the 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 really well disciplined person, people who have audacious goals, we're really good at adapting. We're like, oh yeah, throw it at me, yeah, I'm good, bro, right? But like now I say, hey, you got to be structured. It's like, oh, don't tell me about structure. <laughs> I hate that, right? And so, so obviously the the the, the best. The best is having a balance, or at least understanding where you may fall higher on lower on those scales, so that you can affect you can affect each side uh, uh, indep- uh, or affect each side independently and get yourself to where you need to go. Yeah, I think uh, you know. So I, I wrote a book called Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, <laughs> but I'll talk about when when I'm talking to companies. You know, I'll talk about hey, this, this is a dichotomy as well. Mm-hmm. And inside of a team, if you're overly disciplined as a team, all of a sudden people don't, they stop thinking. Mm-hmm. They, oh, we can only follow the rules. You know, the DMV in many ways is a highly disciplined organization. They're going to follow that rule. Oh, you're in the wrong line. Go get in that other line now. <laughs> they don't go, hey, cool. Hey, we can just move you over here. Uh, I can do it this time. No, they're highly disciplined and therefore highly ineffective. That's right. <laughs> uh, so you can go, just like any of these things, you can take it to an extreme and it's going to, it's going to cause problems someone real quick someone asked me about once uh, about discipline equals freedom I said, what do you think about Chaco and discipline equals freedom and I said I said he's absolutely right I was like the only thing that we have to add on the tagline is discipline equals freedom to be undisciplined right yeah. um, because if you if you discipline yourself to a degree you allow yourself the freedom to once in a while be undisciplined you know yeah. and that's the dichotomy and it, and it happens with teams as well and this is the example that I give all the time is if we're out on a target and there's another building that needs to get taken down. And I, I can just look at you and go, Rich, go hit that building too. And you'd be cool, got it. You didn't need to tell me mm-hmm. the people you're gonna take or what method right. of venture you're gonna use or what right. you're gonna do with the people that you captured. You didn't tell me that because we had discipline standard operating procedures, which gave us all kinds of freedom. Right. So we have the discipline, which gives us freedom to then move and maneuver quicker. Mm-hmm. And then on a personal level, this uh, occurred for the first time. I was at this uh, a kid's birthday party, little kid's birthday party, and they had cake and or ice cream cake which i think that's one level up because cake won't <laughs> a lot of times cake cake is generally in my opinion dry okay right sure uh, the frosting yeah. good but a lot of times the cake itself dry it's not it's not enough to br- bring me over the edge i understand ice cream cake different story <laughs> different. right okay <laughs> so anyways the ice cream cake rolls out the ice cream cake gets cut up and i slap a slab of that thing right on my <laughs> little plastic uh party plate and the grandma who you know this is like friends of the family the grandma and she's from uh, Germany and she's like Jocko I thought we were disciplined (laughs) and I said ma'am this is the freedom part like you said right yeah like like Rich just said you got to have that discipline so that occasionally when that ice cream cake shows up with the with the ground up kind of Oreo scenario on the bottom you know what I'm talking about yes yes, you know what I'm talking about right they make the crust of Oreos (laughs) type thing yep they did the right thing yeah Yeah. they did they made good moves across the board mint mint chocolate chip ice cream in there so yes we have the discipline it'll give us freedom ultimately to do what we want Mm -hmm. that's what that's what we want was the tagline you added on uh, discipline equals the freedom to be undisciplined once in a while. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. I put I put freedom and undisciplined in the same category, right? In a way. So yeah. there we go. Yeah. Uh, discipline. Next one. Um, Open mindedness, a willingness to consider and accept new ideas, opinions, or perspectives. This is again com- coming from that book, the psychology of military incompetence. This is the major downfall of leaders that have authoritarian mindset mm-hmm. is their mind is closed. They don't want to hear your idea. 
Not only do they want to hear your idea, they don't want to hear the Intel report that just came in that's saying something. Right. They don't want to take the feedback from the guys that are on the front lines. That's how close-minded they are, and this causes all kinds of problems. It does, and I, you know, it's funny. I put open-mindedness specifically in the book to speak to optimal performance. There's another attribute called curiosity, which I don't talk about in the book. And the difference between the two is is really a uh, an activeness and a passiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, curiosity is is proactive open-mindedness. I'm going to go, whereas uh, open-mindedness is is passive. So that's you and I going to Thailand, and you know, we meet our local friend. The local friend says, "Hey, I'm going to take you to the most authentic Thai place," and you're like, "Cool, we're all we're good. Good, that's open-minded." Or we go to Thailand, we meet our local Thai friend, we say, take us to the most authentic restaurant, right? That's being curious, right? And so very interestingly, these can exist independently, right? So the, you can be curious without being open-minded. You can be open-minded without being curious. Being open-minded without being curious, that's okay, okay? It's not too bad. You're just passively open-minded. If you are curious without being open-minded, it can be dangerous as a leader. This is the seeds of conspiracy theory, right? I know what I want to believe, and I'm curious to find out why it's right, right? <laughs> and um, and the leaders who are curious without being open-minded stand the F by. Yeah, it's yeah. bad. Those are, that's an interesting one. Um, open-mindedness then can, to some extent, be a debilitated, delib- sorry, deliberate process. This is what I like. We just talked about this on one of our other podcasts where I was saying that having a contrarian mind Mm-hmm. If you take it to an extreme, obviously it's bad, and I've worked for bosses, I'm yeah. sure you did too, they were contrarians, and so it just became a drag. Everything was like, well, there's another way to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if it didn't make any sense, we're still gonna do it a different way. But I like this idea of open-mindedness, making it a deliberate process, and what I said was, being a contrarian, it's gonna let you see the counterintuitive mm-hmm. yeah. options that you might not see if you didn't actively try and say, okay, let me get deliberate about what's another way to make this happen. I just listened to that. And it was, I totally agree. Okay, I mean, right this, right. Is, this is the idea of the devil's advocate. And I always said, hey, I, I really wanted the occasional devil's advocate, but it had to be a productive devil's advocate, right, not right. a not a, just a, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had, exhausting. A, yeah, I had a boss that was very contrary on everything. It yeah. looked great guy. But, uh, you know, eventually sure. you're just like, yep, got it. Yep. Wow, that's crazy, yeah. boss. Wow, that's nuts. Mm, yep. Cool. Yeah, Can we yeah. move on now? Right, right. Um, uh, next one. You've mentioned this one already. Cunning. The ability to consider problems and circumstances from unusual and unorthodox perspectives in order to achieve a goal or objective. The story that you tell in here is is uh, pretty cool. And everyone on this podcast will appreciate it because it's about Chuck Liddell. And basically you're talking to some of your guys and who could beat Chuck Liddell in a fight. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, kind of knows the deal. You know, if you train combatives at all, you know if you go, and this is at the time period when Chuck Liddell was the light heavyweight champion of the world. And so you, if you've trained, you know that Chuck Liddell is going to beat your ass because he's way better than you are. Mm-hmm. And you got one guy that's like, I'll take him. And everyone's like, oh, what do you mean? How could you take him? And he says, I'll take him as long as I get to dictate when and where we fight. Mm-hmm. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, I want to fight him at 2 a.m. in the dark in the ocean down at 50 feet. And then I'll take Chuck Liddell. I was mm-hmm. like, mm, makes sense. Yeah, that's yeah. your uh, that's your cunning. The cunning mind um, approaches a problem and immediately asks three questions. The question it asks is: first, are there rules and boundaries? Second is: are they real or are they perceived? And the third is: if they are real, what happens if I break them? And then goes about looking at different ways. And this exact it's the, it's one of the primary qualities of Navy SEALs uh, is the cunning mind. Is we 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 are not constrained 
uh, by rules and objectives. Yeah, you have in here, cunning is a pejorative word, implies sneakiness, deception, using trickery to an unfair advantage, but I'm using it in a broader sense as a neutral term. It might include deception at any given time, but not always. Rather, I mean an ability to disregard the unspoken and often artificial rules when appropriate to consider objects and circumstances from unorthodox perspectives. This is a weird one in this day and age. Okay, so you're in BUDS, basic SEAL training. And you. I heard two things when I went through BUDS. One of them, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Mm-hmm. And the other one, if you're cheating, you're only cheating yourself. And I've, you know, there's been obviously, you know, BUDS is pretty high on the radar um, f- as far as what, what's going on there. But that's a difficult balance, but there is like, there's no right answer. Mm-hmm. You, you want to have guys that are like, wait a second. Well, the classic example, you know, the instructor will go out and say, all right, uh, you know, you're doing log PT, which means you all have, you're, you're on your squad with six guys or seven guys and you're carrying this log. And I think this is in this book. I don't know. I read a lot of books. Yeah. Is it the one? Anyways, the guys, the instructor comes out and says, okay, take your team, run down around the berm and run back. Mm-hmm. Don't do anything that I don't do. Just do what I told you to do. Take your team, run around the berm and come back. And so all the teams pick up their logs and run. And one, one leader says, all right, let's go, guys, and leaves the log because they didn't get told they had to take it. So that's a person that's like thinking outside the box. Right. Good job, right? right? Good job. And uh, I think you talk about in this book is the, the dragon, right? Yes. Go, go rescue the dragon who's guarded. Go rescue the princess who's guarded by the dragon. And what the seal mindset is, well, can we just avoid the dragon completely? Like, right. well, how can we just not even have to deal with the dragon? Go, you know, deliver a pizza to the princess and then sneak her out. Yeah. Th- throw some slices of pizza at the dragon too and he's all good. As opposed to going to fight the dragon where we take casualties. Um, so that, what, do you, what do you think, what do you make of that balance that they look for in buds of someone that's going to break the rules without breaking the rules. Yeah, it's so so Hank and I talked about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were having coffee and it was actually in the context of the the recent controversy of of um, of the students at steel training using using substances. And and in the the common uh, thoughts for most of us is like that's we feel like that's stolen valor, right? I mean, if you're not going to do it the way you're supposed to do it, then that's stolen valor. And but there's a reason, right? Because this is different than cheating and and the, what we came up with right or wrong, but mm-hmm. I'd like your thoughts is that if you're cheating and it's hurting the team, it's bad, right? Um, if you're cheating in a context to get the team to accomplish a mission, right, that's different, right? And what 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 we what we were looking at in that conversation about substance abuse is you are you are doing you're you're cheating the you're cheating the process by which we will understand that you can go to combat with us and do anything we need you to do, right? Because you're you're giving yourself physical support or whatever you're yeah, doing, right? Yeah. Um, so so you ain't cheating, you try, you're trying is about is about looking at the problem differently for the purpose of making the team successful. Mm-hmm. And there's no selfishness involved with it, right? And I think that's the key. Um, again, there's benevolent cunning, right? That's that's Oscar Schindler. There's there's malevolent cunning, right? That's Bernie Madoff. I mean, so 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 even being um, 
divisive or, or devious, right? It, it, you can do it in a benevolent way. And th- these guys who, I would be curious, I mean, the, the guys who ran around the, the berm without the log, they probably got beat up because, you know, the instructor's like, but they probably, you know, the instructor's probably like, actually, that's a pretty good yeah. idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they're seeing, they're seeing some different ways of thinking as long as it's in service to the team. Selfish cheating is where we draw the line. I was at team two. We were doing CQC at whatever Blackwater is now called. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. It's changed. And they had this one of the one of the mount towns. They had like a facade. One one side of the street was just a facade. So there was only this. There was a street, a fake street, mm-hmm. and then there was like a Hollywood for you, Echo Charles, like the front of buildings. Mm-hmm. But they had windows and doors and all this stuff. And we had some target that we were supposed to hit where we had to like go right in front of that street and the few runs that we'd done already, the guys were hiding in those facades and just shooting the shit out of us. So, you know, we're just doing quick iteration runs and I'm like, all right, here's what we're gonna do. And we moved a few guys, like the bulk of the platoon just ran right down the field to the mount town and started doing the clearance towards the target. But we sent like four guys ran all the way around the berm, all the way around to the back of the facades, and as we initiated the target, they just shot all the mm-hmm. op four in the back. You know, just killed yeah. them all, like immediately. And it was one of those things where the where they were like, hey, good job, guys. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you, 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 yeah. we, we weren't watching our six, and yeah. you, you kicked our ass. They were stoked about it. So I, the, the, what I wrote down was like that theory of, uh, kind of like the spirit of the rule. Mm-hmm. Like if you break, I think there's something where you have to judge like, wait a second, are we actually doing something that's breaking the spirit of the evolution? Like yeah. in buds, yeah. you yeah. know? Hey, are we doing something that actually is is just not the right thing to right. do? At the detriment of the team or at the detriment of, of true training, right? I mean, you know, there's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and what I thought you were actually gonna say when you were talking about you and Hank talking about uh, doing steroids or whatever in buds. I, what I thought you were gonna say, and I, I agree with what you said, but also if we're in a boat crew and I'm on steroids and you're not, I can go a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. And now you're having to keep up with me and you you don't have the benefit of being juiced to the gills, as they say, <laughs> which is right. a problem. Now, I, I mean, from what I understand, the, the 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 steroids as a whole are not going to help you get through buds. No, and no. it's going to be a detriment. Yes. So, hopefully, uh, guys are hearing that message. Well, and what what baffles my mind is the guys who are doing it. They they haven't got it because it's not about looking good. It's not about winning it. If you can win things, great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a even if I mean, there's no <laughs> score. I mean, the the guy who wins nothing but still makes it through still becomes a Navy SEAL. Right? Well, what I was mean, thinking about what you said earlier is like, hey, you can do, let's say you and I get dropped down. I'm juiced to the gills and you're not. <laughs> cool. You did 117 push-ups before you f- went f- face first and yeah. hit the surf. I did 130, <laughs> right? I did an extra 13 <laughs> push-ups. No one knows. No one cares. We both end up wet. I and cooled off faster yeah, because you I got off the, faster. Yeah. So, I saw my buddy who's who's running who's in first phase told me a story. He said it was Hell Week and they were doing this Evolution Hell Week. I can't remember what it's called. It's called I think it's called a double up where they run. They have the class run two miles, and then when they they have a certain time to do it, and whoever fails that time has to do it right over, right, 
uh, do, do it again right immediately, do mm-hmm. another two miles. Yeah. And he said um, this class, it was this class, they were basically, apparently they, they got in word and all that stuff, but they were, they were super prepared, right? They go to this two-mile run. They, they Every single person passes. It was like, holy crap, every single person except one dude. And this dude is like way far behind. He's just like struggling. And so the whole class passes, and they're sitting there, and the dude finishes, and they're like, okay, you know, um, tell this dude who's, who's, um, who, who didn't pass, okay, um, you know, go, go over there, get some water, or you're going to do it again. And so he walks over to the, the class. The class kind of circle him, huddle around him. About a minute later, the, co- the kid comes back to the instructor and says, hey, uh, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm going to DOR, right? So he quits. And so my buddy goes to the, the class leader and says, hey, uh, you know, what, what went on there? It's like, well, you know, we... I don't know. We, he just he, we we were all prepared to win that, and you know he um you know he didn't he didn't live up, and we kind of uh, we felt like it was probably his time. He's like uh, my buddy's like um, you guys are idiots. It's like what? He's like you guys could have been sitting around doing nothing while he ran another two miles. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Did you ever think about that one? Now you're gonna get beat. <laughs> So this is this is thinking outside the box, right? In a different way, right? Yeah. So it's it's this idea of. Are we breaking the paradigms of our thinking? Because this is what Spec Ops was designed with, with first base, and, and this is how we, we 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 conducted the war. I mean, I remember we were changing tactics all the time to try to stay ahead, uh, because you know we had to, you know. And so I think the cunning mind used benevolently and used in service to others is a, a huge asset. Yeah. Um. Definitely. What 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 the SEAL teams and like you said, well, that's what special operations is. Four, yeah, you know, to look at a problem and say, "Hold on a second, what were those three questions you had?" Those are three good questions. Yeah, first question is, "Are there rules and boundaries?" Yeah. Uh, second question, "Are they real or are they perceived?" Third question is, "What happens if I break them?" If they are real, what happens if I break them? <laughs> That's cool. Those are good. Uh, Echo and I just did four podcasts about the game. game yeah. yeah, we're just about the game, mm-hmm. the, about the, all the different games that you're playing, and life is a game, and job is a game, and jujitsu is a game, and relationships is a game. All these things, but those are three really good questions, mm-hmm. and and we actually ended up talking about the infinite game versus the finite game, yeah. and I know you mentioned that in here as well, but yeah, always checking things out and saying, wait a second. You know why are we even doing this? That's kind of the contrarian mind that I have. I was like, why are we even doing this? Mm-hmm. Why, what, what if what if we don't do this? It's healthy skepticism. Yeah. And I think that really is is a valuable asset. Healthy skepticism, powerful. Yeah. Um, now we get into the this one, the fun one. Yeah, you mentioned this one. Uh, it's all about me. By the way, closing line of the book, leadership strategy and tactics is, it's on you, but not about you. Um, narcissism. The desire to stand out, to be noticed, to be recognized. When I was lying on a California beach in the dark, the cold Pacific surf crashing over me at the miserable height of Hell Week, I was not driven by selfless service to my country. I did not lean on my deep patriotism, and I was not inspired by a sense of sacrifice or duty. To be honest, none of those high-minded ideals were even the primary reason I wanted to be a Navy SEAL in the first place. All those are part of me, but of course, all those are part of me, of course, but they aren't why I signed up for Bud's training. So why did I? For the same reason every SEAL does to see if I could be a badass special operator, to prove that I was good enough, tough enough, strong enough to be recognized as a member of an elite fraternity. In a word, I was motivated by narcissism. That's another one of those words that typically is considered pejorative. An excessive amount of narcissism, in fact, is 
clinically recognized personality disorder. But in the layman's version of the term, narcissism is one of the elemental engines of human behavior, the innate attribute that urges us to strive, to succeed, to be noticed. In healthy doses, it's important for optimal performance. Yeah. I got a, I got a copy of the DSM-5, which is the psychological mm-hmm. Bible. So yeah. I want to make sure I was looking at this correctly. And in the DSM-5, they have a couple pages on narcissism and, and, the, and the disorder. And, and they have nine criteria in there that you read, like sentences. And, and the, the idea is if the, if the doctor reads these nine and five, and the patient, you can say yes to five or more, <clears throat> then the patient is, is, is considered disordered, right? And so I started reading through these nine. And as I read through them, I did not have five or more, but I was not innocent of all that I was reading. <clears throat> and so I said, okay, I asked myself the question, why did it become a seal in the first place? And it was because, you know, all those things exist, but I wanted to see if I could do something very few people could do. Um, and the idea, and, and the, the other thing is when you look at the neurology, the neuroscience of this, uh, an infant that's getting recognized and adored by its parents is getting bursts of dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, all very powerful feel-good chemicals, right? It feels good to be recognized and noticed. It doesn't change when we're adulthood. So so the, the, the thesis is... Um, it's the impetus to some very audacious goals that we set for ourselves. It has to be metabolized in a healthy way. And the way we metabolize it in a healthy way is we surround ourselves with people who tell us the truth. You can always tell the disordered narcissist because they surround themselves with yes-men, people who tell them what they want to hear, people who put them on a pedestal. And it's interesting because those groups are very transient. So someone who can't bend the knee for very long will leave eventually. Well, that person who just left immediately becomes enemy number one to that narcissist. That's just the way it works. And so... So we can set, so, you know, a lot of people would, wouldn't argue the fact, and you, we could debate this, but that Hollywood is generally considered a narcissistic uh, uh, town. Um, but you look at some of the, the most uh, kind of the, the healthiest, most stable Hollywood actors and actresses. Um, they are people who've surrounded themselves with people who, who they're just normal around, right? And so, and so we just surround ourselves with people who don't put us on a pedestal, who tell us the truth, who keep us humble. That's our teammates, by the way. That's our wives, if we marry the right person. Um, and we can really use narcissism to great advantage because why else would I want to be a Navy SEAL? Why else would I want to write a best-selling book? Why else would I want to be the best surgeon, the best athlete, the best teacher, whatever that is? Um, so the idea is understand our humanness. Recognize our humanness. Don't, don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. Just recognize it, embody it, and try to metabolize it. You say this. People who fall too high on the narcissism scale, however, can be dangerous. In a simple sense, those more narcissistic types favor the quick hits of serotonin and dopamine over the longer-lasting oxy... What is it? Oxytocin. Oxytocin. They need those constant reinforcements because their self-esteem is either very fragile or very low. Despite presenting as arrogant, they generally feel unsafe and insecure. They're extremely sensitive to perceived injuries from criticism or defeat, and they very easily feel humiliated or degraded. To prevent that, highly narcissistic people try to put themselves at the center of small, tight, sycophantic tribes. They are rarely loyal. Loyalty requires trust and a sense of safety, so their tribes are inherently unstable. Healthy members tend not to stay long, and new ones that are let in only when they show the requisite deference. Those who do leave usually suffer a disproportionate amount of wrath from the person to whom they once deferred because defectors are considered enemies. 
So beware the highly narcissistic people in your sphere. Their energy and effort will, more often than not, be to prop up their fragile egos rather than to achieve shared objectives or serve a common purpose. They are, by definition, not team players. Yet if they sense you are distancing yourself, if you are not obviously on their team, they'll likely lash out, diminishing you in an effort to inflate themselves. Worst of all, narcissism doesn't show up clearly in the mirror. The more narcissistic a person is, the less likely it is that they'll recognize that behavior. This is one of the biggest um, things that we try and teach, you know, as uh, one of the key components the most important characteristic for a leader to have is humility. And the reason that we, the reason that I found that we have to lean into that is because when you're working with people that are in leadership positions, the tenant, they got there because they have confidence, right? right. They got there because they, they, not only did they have confidence, they did well and were rewarded. And when they got rewarded, they did even better, and then they get promoted, and then when they get promoted, they're confident, so they do well again. And so they get this, so we have a tendency when we're working with, and it was in the SEALs, like occasionally we would have a young officer that was over-indexed in humility, like mm-hmm. just lacking confidence, right, right? Right, right? Occasionally that was. Way more often than not, it was someone that was, you know, hey, I already know how to do this. Hey, I don't need, we did this my way. Like, that was the normal. And it's the same thing in the business world. Like, you don't become the CEO of a big company because you were overly humble. You got there because you were confident. And then the more good decisions you make and the more success you have, the more that ego gets out of control. And that's when we run into problems. So, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, and and honestly, like confidence, I, I almost tend to s- sometimes separate confidence because I, I consider arrogance the opposite of humility. Um, and confidence and arrogance, the way I talk about those when I when I talk about organizations is um, is arrogance is or confidence is I know I can do this. Arrogance is I'm better than you. Um, <laughs> co- confidence is is internally focused, and arrogance is ex- externally expressed. Yeah. Um, and so obviously, confidence is quiet. Arrogance is loud. Arrogance almost always comes from a place of insecurity. Yeah. And so and so you can have a very very humble. You can have a very very confident person who's very humble. Right. I mean, the, the, most of the masters out there that we we've, we've we've encountered are very confident, but also humble. And humility, in my in my mind, is really just a. It's not a. It's not a, a deference. It's really just an understanding that I always have something to learn. I always I have I, I oh, there's always someone who can teach me something, and I'm open minded to do it. I'm not necessarily right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so uh, and so so people so so a lot of these a lot of these folks again. If you if you look at the studies, a lot of the top like entrepreneurs, like the very successful, they're a little bit higher on the narcissistic scale. But it's because those endeavors required a little bit of that to get it going, kind of kind of the, to spark that. But if you want to keep on going, you just have to manage it. Yeah, and that can bite them in the ass too. You know, we yes. see these people, yes. impl- you know, self destruct yep. because. Yeah, it takes a level of confidence leaning towards arrogance to get to like, hey, I'm going to take this money from you and I'm going to kick ass and we're going to create this thing that's never been done before. That's it. You got to be, you got to have some level of arrogance pushing in that direction. But then they grow to a point or they get to a point where all of a sudden I'm not listening to you. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking, like I said before, I'm so confident in what I'm saying. I'm now into arrogance. Now I'm not listening to my advisors. I'm not listening to the market. Hey, people just don't know what they want. You know what I mean? They just don't know what they want. (laughs) I'm going to educate them. That's when you have people just self-destruct, which is uh, always crazy to see and unfortunate. All right. Time to roll into 
the leadership attributes. Leadership is not a position, it's a behavior, and you don't get to decide if you're doing it well. I really like that. You don't get to decide if you're a good leader or not. Leaders are identified and defined by those whom they lead. You can't declare yourself to be a leader. That's like announcing that you're funny. (laughs) You might think you, you might think so, but if you can't make anyone laugh, you're not funny. Whether you're actually a leader, not just a person in charge, is entirely up to other people. Um, great leaders, we're told again and again, are trustworthy. They listen and they care. They're selfless, authentic, and accountable. Some of those answers describe skills. Listening, for one, is greatly unappreciated skill, but most of them are attributes. There are five that are key to leadership. Empathy, selflessness, authenticity, decisiveness, and accountability. Certain skills like time management, delegation, and listening will enhance those leadership attributes, but they are not critical. In fact, mastery of any particular skill is not required. So here we get into these leadership attributes. The first one, empathy. The ability, whether deliberate or not, to join the emotional state of another person to feel what what someone else feels. Definitely important. I think it is, and... um and overlooked quite a bit. I mean, you know, I, I always def- define um, team guys, especially team team guy leaders, but I think team guy holistically, holistically as, as the best guys having kind of an empathy dimmer switch. So we know when to dial it up and when to dial it down. And this just stems from this idea that we were out, out there doing combat and in one second you're, you're killing a terrorist and the next second you're caring for, you know, mother and kids, right? And so it's a, it's a dial. But, um, but if we don't as leaders – Take a take the time to feel what other people feel, then they will not feel cared for. And if mm-hmm. someone doesn't feel cared for, uh, they don't look at you as a leader. What's interesting about these attributes is that you know when I got out of the Navy, I, so a good friend of mine, Simon Sinek, uh, uh, author, he linked me up with a great leadership organization called the Chapman uh, uh, the Chapman Leadership uh, Institute. So I went around teaching leadership and kind of their style and things like that. And we'd go around the country, around the globe, and we'd get in front of these audiences, we say, just ask a question, what do great leaders do? And we'd have a, a flip chart next to us, and we just have people yell out things, and we just make a list of about 25, 30 things. No matter where we went, the list was always the same stuff. Always, It doesn't matter what country, what, what state, what, what generation, it was always the same stuff. And always within the top 10 were those five, were those five things, selflessness, accountability, empathy. Empathy, a lot of times, was number one, you know, or number two. So um, so it matters to, to take that time and it does take time it does take effort but when you expend time and effort that's also a display of caring you know a good friend of mine used to say time is the currency of leadership because everybody has the same and and when it's spent it can't you can't get it back mm-hmm. uh, and so when you when you spend time to help another uh, they will feel cared for so yeah and then even the pragmatic perspective of understanding what other people's perspectives are mm-hmm. and is so important like if if we're gonna plan a mission and you work for me and I see some kind of resistance like you don't want to do it or you've got some some qualms about Mm -hmm. doing it like for me to actually say wait a second what does he see that I don't see what does he know that I don't know even from a pragmatic perspective that's like tactical you know empathy about what are you actually seeing is is so important and and I always tell people you know I've got a I talk about not making emotional decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, don't make emotional decisions, obviously. And I always ask groups of people, you know, who here, who in here has made an emotional decision? Everyone raises their hand. Who here has made a good emotional decision? Everyone's <laughs> hands goes down. So we don't want to make emotional decisions. At the same time, 
you have to put emotions into the calculus of the decision that you're making. Yes. So if my team is mad, I need to think about what we're doing. If my team is upset about something, if they're overly aggressive mindset, I've got to take those emotions into account when I'm making a decision about what we're going to do. So it's not totally void of emotions, but you've got to understand what other people's emotions are, understand what their perspective is, and that's what uh, that's what empathy is all about. Well, and one more quick note, and this is really important. Empathy does not require agreement. Um, and, and we have to understand this. And our country could, could do, do right by understanding this. So here's an example. Um, we were in Iraq, and uh, uh, we saw an unfortunate event that, that happens, unfortunately, too often. It was like a 12- or 13-year-old kid attempted to fire a rocket-propelled grenade at a, at a convoy and, and, you know, unfortunately got, got killed doing so because they can't have that happen. And I remember a bunch of us team guys, at the end of the day, we were around a fire like we always do out, out, out over, overseas. We were around the fire just chatting, and this thing came up. And we, we kind of said, well, let's, let's walk this thing back for a second. You know, this kid... 12, 13 years old. He probably has no father. His father's probably gone or dead. He's probably, it's probably him just taking care of his mom and his sisters. Uh, no school, no loud music, no sports, no parties, no girls, nothing to get his testosterone out on. One day, the bad guys come and say, we will give you 100 dinar to go fire this rocket propelled grenade at this U.S. convoy. Every single one of us Navy SEALs said we would be that kid. If we had been in that environment, we would be that kid, right? That is empathy, right? And that's empathy without agreement. We don't agree with what the kid's doing or what the kid did, but we can totally put ourselves in that person's shoes. And so so the act of empathy does not require agreement. It really just requires effort. Well, that also reminds me of, you know, when I was in a leadership position in a SEAL platoon or a SEAL task unit, I would look at these guys, these young SEALs, that are 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, and they would do some knucklehead stuff. Yeah. And I would always remember, yep, uh, that was me. <laughs> I was that kid. Yes. You're talking about being that kid. That's right. I was that kid. So the uh, just remembering where you came from mm-hmm. and remembering where other people's are, people are and understanding where they're at, that's what that's what this, why this is so important. Um, such an important attribute for leaders to have, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, selflessness, placing the needs and well-being of others above one's own, despite real or perceived risk. You know, I had this. I was on a podcast with uh, Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. and and what I ended up saying was, I forget what led to the conversation, but I was trying to explain what made a good seal. And you know, I explained the fact that. Look, you can be a great shot, you can be a fast runner, you can be a great diver, you can have all the parachute skills, but if you are the type of person that doesn't put the team first, no one wants you in the platoon, Right. period. Um, and that's exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah, and there's a difference uh, because another attribute is generosity, and we have that in our, in our kind of a full attribute list, but there's a difference between generosity and selflessness, and the, the difference is that risk factor, right? Generosity is, can be done without risk, mm-hmm. and that's fine. It's great to be generous. Selflessness is at risk. There's, you're putting yourself at risk in some way, and when people see you doing that, they, they tend to say, this is someone I want to follow. Yeah, there's a whole theme that I've been talking about for the past couple of years when it comes to building relationships with people, what does a relationship consist of? Well, if trust, you know, if mm-hmm. I trust you, you trust me, we have a relationship. 
if I respect you and you respect me, we have a relationship. Contrarily, if you don't trust me or I don't trust you, we don't have a relationship. If, if I don't respect you, you don't respect me, we don't have a relationship. If I, if you don't influence me at all, and, and, and you're not influenced by me at all, we don't have a relationship. I mean, if we have a relationship, we should influence each other, mm-hmm. and the last one is listening. If I don't listen to you and you don't listen to me, we don't have a relationship. But the, the final one, which I just added the other day, and it's one of those ones that was so sitting in front of my face that it, I didn't say it, and that's, of course, care, mm-hmm. which you know we've mentioned, which is, but the interesting thing, and this kind of reflects on what we're talking about, for every one of these, if I want you, you to listen to me, how do I make that happen? I listen to you. Yes. I want you to treat me with respect, I treat you with respect. I want, to be, I want you to be influenced by me, I better allow myself to have an open mind and be influenced by you. And the caring, of course, if I take care of you, in most cases, you're gonna take care of me. Look, if you're a narcissistic bastard or whatever, there's always gonna be people that, you know, I trust you and you screw me over. I listen to you and you, there's a small amount of people out there in the world that are just, well, their egos and they're, they're just dented, mm-hmm. dented souls, right? right. They're, they're terrible people, unfortunately. Uh, but for the most part, you take care of other people that take care of you. you. You show that selflessness and sacrifice and they'll be willing to do the same thing for you. And this, by the way, is the only time you can use leadership as the noun. Leaders go first. They go first in behavior, right? You model the behavior you want to see more of, and then you reward the behavior you want to see more of. If you want more empathy in the, in the people you are that are in your span of care, you model empathy, and then you reward empathy. And that's the problem. If you don't understand that, you're not going to – because people will automatically, you know, they'll, they'll do what you – where the rewards, you know, flow, and they'll, they'll do what the boss does, right, if they if – they, if they feel good about it. So that's the only time you go first as a leader. <laughs> so, uh, Next one here, decisiveness, the ability to make decisions quickly and effectively. You say decisiveness is the ability to make clear, well-informed, and timely decisions. The last criterion, timeliness, is what separates the person with a high-level decisiveness from a person who merely makes solid decisions. Mm-hmm. In any dynamic environment, taking too long to make even a good decision is ineffective because the environment changes so quickly. So this is one that I've, I wrote about this one in Leadership Strategy and Tactics, and I, I talk about the fact that it, I was decisive mm-hmm. in the SEAL teams, but I always cheated. And the way that I cheated was I would make very small decisions very quickly. Yeah. I wouldn't try and figure out everything that was going on at, in the next four hours of a, of a scenario. I would figure out, okay, what's going on right now that I can see and I can get, we can make a move, Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna do that pretty quickly. And then I'm gonna pay attention to the feedback, run that OODA loop, pay attention to the feedback, and make another very quick decision. And that's a very, I call it the iterative decision-making process. Yeah. Lots of little decisions quickly. That's your compartmentalization loop going on too. I mean, it's it's really effective. And one of the things I do wanna uh, highlight here, and and I I didn't say this earlier, a, a great way to determine whether something's a skill or an attribute is to ask a simple question. That question is, can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's probably a skill. If the answer is no, it's probably an attribute. So so someone could come up to us and say, hey, I wanna learn how to shoot a pistol and hit a bullseye. Well, we could take out someone out to the range and teach them how to do that in two hours, right? Someone else could say, I wanna learn how to be more patient. We can't teach you how to be more patient. And so to develop an attribute you're low on requires a, uh, it requires three things, a, uh, a knowledge that you need to develop it, a motivation to develop it, and then a deliberate 
a, a deliberate effort to step into environments that test and tease and develop that attribute. So if you want to develop your patients, for example, go find environments that test and tease your patients, whatever that looks like for you. It could be, I'm going to deliberately go drive in traffic. I'm going <laughs> to pick the longest line of the grocery store stand in. I always say have kids that'll develop your patients, right? But the reason why I bring that up is because I want to separate making decisions with decisiveness. Dis- making decisions is a skill. You can actually teach someone to make better decisions and how they gather information. You can, it's a skill that can be taught. Decisiveness adds a speed and efficiency factor to it. And some people are just higher on the decisive attribute than others. Uh, but but no, it's it's rare. I, I don't like to be, be uh, definitive, but it's rare that leaders are looked at as leaders if they are indecisive. And there are some people I've served with and served under who are really great decision makers, but it was a long, pro- <laughs> to, to get them there was a painful process. And you're like, oh my gosh. I mean, and, and again, it's, it just did, didn't feel like leadership. You know what was wild uh, that you and I both got to experience being pre-war and mm-hmm. then living in the war, the uh, the ninety six hour planning cycle, <laughs> and that was, yeah. you know, what we, I wouldn't say it kind of entered into the scene in the mid nineties. Yeah, it became a thing mm-hmm. where like this is, and we probably eventually caught that. You know, it got passed down through the army and eventually made it into the SEAL teams and eventually got into a freaking lowly SEAL platoon where I was, and it was like, yep, it's a ninety six hour planning cycle, and man, I remember my boss when I was at SEAL Team 7, he's like, how much time do you guys need to launch on a mission? And he, you know, he's like expecting, I was like, 15 minutes. <laughs> he was like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, 15 minutes, sir. And I had a great relationship with my boss at SEAL Team 7. I was like, yeah, 15 minutes, we'll roll. He's like, how, how can that be? I was like, tell me where the target is, tell me the friendly uh, unit that's in the area and what frequency they're on, and we roll. Mm-hmm. And we, we can make this happen. Um, Big difference from the 96 hours. I tell you, when, <laughs> I, when I got to Iraq the first time we started doing ops, <clears throat> I was so happy that that, because remember how many briefs? It was oh, like, yeah. you had to do like seven different briefs and it was all like painstaking. And we get to Iraq and it's like, hey, con op, go, con op, <laughs> yeah. go. And even the con ops, in fact, in fact, that was actually a, um, a real challenge in combating complacency. The, the speed with which we could move mm-hmm. really showed me and it made me really think about, okay, we've got to make sure that we're actually thinking through yep. things versus just snapping on what we usually do. Um, but all that said, you know, I just, I didn't like the 96 <laughs> yeah. planning cycle. You know, for for that, you know, the the way to combat that, a good little protocol to, to combat the, hey, we got into a groove and getting complacent is just, uh, as often as I could, I would have my subordinates come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you guys, hey, here's the mission, come up with yeah. a plan. And that way I'm detached, I'm looking at it from a distance. If they start throwing it up there too quick, or you're just gonna see the holes in it, that's powerful. The other thing I was thinking about when you're th- talking about teaching skills versus developing, learning or developing, developing yeah. attributes, an interesting, uh, metaphor that I use in jiu-jitsu or when I'm teaching a move in jiu-jitsu let's say there's 10 things that you have to do right to make a move actually work in jiu-jitsu there's 10 things that you have to do I can only teach you like five of them Mm -hmm. maybe Dean Lister can teach you six Uh, maybe a a echo can teach you four doesn't have (laughs) quite have it but there's going to be things that you have got to put yourself in that situation and you've got to experience mm-hmm. yourself in order to get better at them. So I think that when you were talking about putting yourself into these situations, because look, I know for a fact, and I know you do too, I would see guys over time improve in all these attributes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would. 
I should say. Right. Not always. Right. But sometimes you get someone that is, you know, they're, they're, they're just not very decisive. They're just not. But then you'd see, you put him in that position, you talk to him about it, you can tell him a couple things like, hey, you need to, hey, figure out what three things you could do and pick which one's the best one. Like even that little help, it's a move that you can teach them that they can kind of start, that can become part of their personality. Yes. And, <clears throat> and so you can teach some of it, but ultimately, You've got to develop it over time. Does, well, that, does that line up with what you're totally saying? It totally lines up, and, and, and it actually brings up a good point, and that is when we – I kind of often uh, relate or relate us as, as like automobiles. Humans are like automobiles. We're all different types, right? Some of us are Jeeps. Some of us are SUVs. Some of us are Ferraris. And there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do, and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. But it, it behooves us to lift our hood and figure out what kind of engine we're running with. And there's no – again, there's no judgment on that. Um, it also means that we don't necessarily have to be high on every attribute. In other words, I, I use stand-up comedy, right? The stand-up comic who's too high on empathy is not going to be a very good stand-up comic, right? So it, so being too high may be detrimental to what you want to do in your specific niche. Um, but bottom line is when you start looking at developing these things, if you find that you just can't develop something, that means you adapt and you adjust. I mean, and they can start playing off of each other. So I think I remember uh, – in fact, I think I remember hearing one of your – examples on one of one of the podcasts about talking about a guy who was not uh i think he, he wasn't very loud wasn't he, loud yep wasn't loud right yep. um and so and and you said hey you encourage this guy hey, you gotta be louder you gotta be and he just, just wasn't getting it. So basically, he pulls the loudest guy over and says, hey, tell the guys to do this, right? That's adaptability. Adap he's using his adaptability to buttress his low whatever loudness attribute, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and so you can – some of these so, – so for example, um, low adaptability – can be buttressed by high open-mindedness, mm -hmm. right? And you can actually, that, you can even out your performance yeah. that way. That's why understanding these levels in, in yourself and your team is really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, that guy was that guy was a freaking smart guy and did a good job. I was like, yep, he just solved that problem. <laughs> and that's why building complementary teams, when you know what your attributes yes. are, and you're like, look, I'm not the guy you want doing paperwork, mm -hmm. right? I always find the guy in my platoons or my jobs that are good at paperwork. I'm fine that guy. Yeah. I'm gonna take care of him. He's yeah. gonna be my best friend because I'm not doing paperwork. Right, right. Um, next one, accountability. Taking responsibility for and ownership of your decisions, actions, and the consequences thereof. Extreme ownership. <laughs> I agree with this very much. <laughs> and, and by the way, a buttress to decisiveness, right? You can't be effectively decisive if you haven't buttressed it with accountability because you have to look at those decisions and say, okay, was that the right decision? What are we doing? Did we, we need to make a different decision? So incredibly important. Um, you say in here in complex environments, take a taking action is paramount. Even if the action is making a decision to do nothing, it's important to understand what you're doing and why. Just as important as recognizing that any consequence of that action any consequences of that action are your responsibility. You have to fully own those decisions. Being accountable and owning our decisions and actions serves several purposes. One, it requires that we understand why we're doing whatever action we've chosen, which in turn helps us to be fully committed to it. Which I, which I've, I, lately I've been talking about this thing. What am I calling it? Uh, the explanation effort meter. The EEM, the explanation effort meter, which is if it is if it is so hard for me to explain to you mm -hmm. why this makes sense, I should probably really consider if it actually makes sense or not. Yeah. It shouldn't be that hard. Look, I'm fairly articulate. 
I've got a good grip on what I'm trying to explain, and if I can't get through to you, there's probably something wrong with my idea. Now look, there's a chance that you just have a big ego and you're, you're, you know, everyone loves their own idea the best, but if it's really that, if my idea is that much superior to yours, mm-hmm. I should be able to explain that and articulate it, and you should probably end up nodding your head and going, yeah, you know what, you're right. And if I'm expending all this effort trying to explain something, and it still isn't getting landing with you and you're still not nodding your head, well, then why? How much effort is it worth? Right. Because right. let's face it, you know, I, I've, I've explained this to many people. You and me arguing about how to hit a target when neither one of us actually knows where the enemy's <laughs> going to be, you know, what they're, how they're going to be set up. What we don't, we, We've got ideas, but they're going to get a vote. And so you and I disagreeing and being combative and finally I say, you know what? Shut up. I'm in charge. You do it my way. And then we go on on a target where there's a, we have no idea what's actually going to happen. And you see this in, in the business world too. Right. People want to make an investment in this thing over here. This other person doesn't want to make that investment. When the reality is no one really knows what's going to happen. And if I can't convince you, you know, if that explanation effort beater's just redlined, just all I'm saying is just consider, just consider maybe it might not be worth the squeeze. <laughs> well, and, and the, the hack to that, the hack to that is if you encourage or you allow someone to make a decision to do something, it, it, automatically makes them accountable, right? They, they own that in yeah. a way. You know, the other thing I tell leaders all the time, because this is a, something that sometimes they don't quite get, is that leaders leaders can always delegate responsibility, but never accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really important because I've had leaders who delegate both, <laughs> and it's not good. I mean, it's not good. They, they, they Something goes wrong, and, and they, they back away, they push away. It's like, no, no, that's... We're always accountable. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, because some people are like, well, no, the people you're giving response, they're accountable too. It's like, yeah, sure, yeah. But you are still accountable. And by you owning it, it just it's the behavior you're modeling that they need to see more of. They will also own it in their own way. But but we can delegate responsibility. We cannot delegate accountability. Yeah. Another, uh, another problem people run into when they want, you know, if I want Rich to take ownership, so what do I do? I say, okay, Rich, here's the mission. Here's the vehicles I want you to take. Here's the people I want you to take with you. Here's the weapons I want you to use. Here's the route I want you to take to the target. They go through the whole thing and say, now, now that's the plan. Take ownership of that plan and go execute. That's right. It's yeah. like, it's just not happening. <laughs> one of my favorite Metallica songs. So one of my favorite albums is End Justice for All. Uh-huh. One of my favorite songs is um, Eye of the Beholder. And the line in that is, you can do it your own way if you do it how I say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's yeah. like, yeah, take ownership of this. It's a song about oppression, Here's by the, the way. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> and it's so easy to say, hey, man. Hey, Rich, here's the mission. How do you want to do it? Right. So much easier to say that. I don't have to get you to buy anything into anything. And yes, is there a chance that you present to me a plan that's completely insane and makes no sense? Sure. Yeah. But if we've been working together and I've been showing you how we do this and I've been letting you run little parts of the operations prior to this, you're going to know what to do. Yeah. And you're going to give me a decent plan that we're going to be able to run with. So give ownership. You go on to say here, purpose provides clarity. It's nearly impossible to truly own an action if you aren't clear why you're taking it. If you fully own your decisions, you will better be able to explain the reasons behind them. Being accountable allows us to look objectively and critically at the results of a decision, which helps us assess the results more accurately and make the next decision more effectively. The mission, if the mission plan ends up not working as well as possible, the accountable officer and men will studiously figure out what could have been done better rather than dismissing any flaws as the boss made us do it that way. Mm-hmm. Better decisions will be made next time and everyone will improve a far better outcome than repeating a cycle of 
grudgingly doing what the powers that be demand. Finally, taking responsibility for a decision and its results immediately engages the learnability attribute. Remember, we human beings are wired to make sense of our environment. While much of that happens automatically and unconsciously, part of that process is very deliberate. So, and this is where the uh, the humility comes into mind too, because yeah. if you're not humble enough to be like, yeah, this was my decision and I made it and it didn't work and here's what we got to do to fix it. Yeah. Well, the, other, the last thing I'll say on accountability, because I don't think I mentioned it in the, in the book, is that uh, especially for leaders, accountability allows control. It allows you to take, when you, when you say, I own this, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes I've done this quite deliberately, even though I know I had nothing to do with it, I just take it, I say, I own this, this is my fault, right? It, I take the steering wheel. And as soon as you place blame, you're, you're giving the steering wheel to someone else. And so, uh, so accountability allows for taking control of an environment and starting to steer it the way you want to steer it. Beautiful life rule. Yeah. Little little extreme ownership goes a long way. Uh, teamability attributes. Is teamability a real word? Teamability is a, a word I, I took from NSW. Okay. Uh, yeah. Although I think we missed uh, authenticity, what did we didn't miss? we? Oh, did we miss something? Yeah, I think we missed authenticity. Okay, let's talk authenticity. The only reason why I need to say it, I need to mention is because uh, the guy I talk about in that chapter, Brian McCabe, um, He's a deeply authentic guy, and he loves and has been to several of your musters. <laughs> and I'm so trying I said, to think of how I missed this. I, to, I told him I'd I'd, uh, I'd give him a shout. This out. is the so. one that um you uh there it is, there it is. Sorry, I missed it. Um, authenticity: the degree to which a person's actions are consistent with his beliefs, values, desires, despite external pressures. Is this who you gave the coin to? Yeah, and he held on to it yeah, for Brian, like yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a great story. Yeah. Um, again, get the book, read the story. Very cool story about the history of giving coins and uh, what they mean and all that. And this particular case is a pretty cool story. Um, Among all the leadership attributes, authenticity is the most important for building trust. Authenticity by definition can't be faked. It can't be copied. There's no template, no checklist of external behaviors or attitudes that are the model of authenticity. Being firm and taciturn doesn't make one any more or less of a leader than being easygoing and funny. What matters more is that is that person is authentically firm or authentically easygoing. The simplest measure of authenticity is consistency. Very, very, you know, so so important, right? Yeah. And it's really hard to fake this stuff. <laughs> like when guys aren't authentic, it's like really easy to see. And, and how I mean, you've seen these some of these folks, uh, you know, and I will. I'll, I'll just say as an example, because I've seen officers uh, who are, you know, sticky sweet to the uh, the senior leader who comes and visits. They're just like like apple pie, and then they <laughs> turn around. They're tyrants to the people underneath them. Uh, it doesn't build trust. Yeah, <laughs> freaking horrible. Trust. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That um, there's a you know that level of vulnerability there. Mm-hmm. You know, like hey, you're not going to know everything. That's okay. And yeah, I always, I always. Um, to your point, like, that's one thing that's interesting about the podcast. It's like, dude, you're on here for long enough. I don't know how many hours we have of doing this, but it's a long time. You, you, the character, playing the character, after a while, man, it's just. The real you. Yeah, the real you's yeah, coming yeah. out. So, so here's a interesting story. I was putting, when I was doing this attributes work, I was talking to a buddy of mine. He worked for one of the agencies, and one of his primary jobs was to help people develop 
alternate personalities, mm-hmm. undercover personalities. And I told him about the work I was doing. He's like, Rich, this is really interesting because when we help someone develop an alternate personality, we always make it consistent with who they really are. Because what we found is that even the best actors on the planet can't pretend to be someone else for more than 30 days. You know, most of us can't pretend for more than a few days, right? We will always revert back. And what I tell uh, people in, in, in business is that anybody can pretend to be anyone you want for an interview process, <laughs> right? Um, but the, the idea is these attributes are who we really are, right? And if we lean on these, then our authentic self comes out. Yeah, I love telling people uh, intent has a smell. <laughs> And so when you're when you got some weird alternative agenda in the back, oh, yeah. everyone can smell it, and yeah. you don't think they can smell. It. That's a weird thing. You even throw a little deodorant on it. You try and keep a little distance, <laughs> yeah. but everyone goes. You ever heard that person? You're like something just. A, they actually say it. You say something doesn't smell right. Yes. Right. Something doesn't smell right. That's when you sense that lack of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And man, the boys can see through that shit. Oh yeah. They look at that. Like, oh no. Mm-hmm. No, we're not buying into this. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry I missed that one. Um, I'm glad you were on it. And so what's the guy that came to the muster? Brian McCabe. Okay. Yeah, yeah. a couple times. Yeah, right on. Yeah, so. We'll have too. to uh, get him to another one. Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, t- I'll tell him to let me know, and I'll let you know if he's coming. So, <laughs> Those uh, are, are powerful events. Did yeah. he have a good time? Oh, yeah, he loved him. He's been, I think he's been to two or three. Right on. Yeah, we'll so. get him to another one. We can make that happen. We have the power. <laughs> Uh, so now we get into team ability. Yeah, again, I think I took that from the teams. I, I remember that being one of the attributes uh, for for SEAL candidates. Um, yeah. So and man, that's important. It is. And yeah. it's weird that some people don't get that. Right. Like you're literally joining the SEAL teams. Yeah. You may think it might be an important <laughs> thing to be a good teammate, mm-hmm. be a good team player. And this kind of falls back on what you said about, yeah, you can't say, I'm a good leader. 100%. The same thing here. Yep. You can't say, hey, I'm a good teammate. Uh, team ability is about how well people work and play together, how deeply they connect, and how effectively they cor- collaborate. Much like being a leader, you don't get to decide whether you're a good teammate. Others will instinctively make that assessment for you, and they will do so based upon how well you perform and interact with them. Uh, number one of these, integrity, the ability to act in accordance with relevant moral values and social and cultural norms. You put it, you, you get a good, um, you throw a good test at people on this one. This is yeah. the one about the person that cheated on a test. Is this right. that one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell yeah. us about that little dilemma. Well, I, I, the del- I, I will misquote the dilemma, but I, what I will say is we have to remember integrity is subjective. Um, in other words, in accordance with the group, um, doing the right thing for a Cub Scout troop is going to look different than doing the right thing for an ISIS troop. And I would submit, and this makes people uncomfortable when I say it, so I will say it, right? If you have a Cub Scout who steals $5 from his fellow scout and you have an ISIS person who runs into a building with a suicide vest, who's being who's behaving with more integrity in that situation? Mm-hmm. The ISIS person in accordance with their group. And so, so the reason why this is important is because if leaders have not defined what do the right thing looks like, the, the group's going to sort it out. And we found this in the teams. I mean, the teams, sometimes those those less well-run groups, um, uh, loyalty will supplant integrity. And that's not right either. And yep. so and so uh, leaders need to be diligent about defining what do the right thing looks like for a group, for an organization, behaving those ways, right? Because if you're not going to behave it, you're, you're, you're sunk as well. Uh, and then that, that, that will define the integrity for the group. Um, the example that you put in here is like a kid... 
is cheating on a test basically mm -hmm. and you yeah, see him cheating yeah. in a test and and then you ask like hey are you the person that's going to tell on them right or not tell like, on I, them. I think i said you've studied your your yeah, ass off right. of this thing and you see this kid cheating yeah, yeah. and on the cell phone yeah and so then eventually you give the context of like hey so so the kid cheated you studied hard he's going to get an a you're you know he's going to pass but you had to work for it and then the teacher asks you like hey i think that kid was cheating was he and you, you put you ask the question but then when you put context around it it's like, oh, his mom is sick with cancer. He's got a, this is the one test he's got to pass. He's already been offered a job. As long as he passes this test, he's gonna be able to get his mom on health insurance. And he hasn't had time to study because he's been taking care of it. It's like all of a sudden, it's like, oh, okay. I was an asshole for telling you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So uh, I always try and break it down just like, do what you say, say what you do. You yeah. know, like if I tell you I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. You know, um, Integrity. Next one, conscientiousness, the ability and inner drive to work hard, be diligent, and be reliable. Um, you give a, a story about here about, you know, a guy you, again, get the book because you've got cool stories in <laughs> here. Lots of stories. Yeah. It's, a, it's a dense book. So, yeah. 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 Um, conscientiousness matters in the context of a team because it fosters trust. This isn't an esoteric concept, no trickery of brain chemistry. It's common sense, and you understand it intuitively. Think of the people in your life personal or professional, whom you trust. Odds are most of them are dependable, reliable, and hardworking in one way or another. It's fairly straightforward. That yeah, one. yeah, that one's yeah. fairly straightforward. Like, and, and the interesting thing is, if you're one of those people, you get more work. Yeah. Oh yeah, you always get more. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. What is it? Where the, the, uh, the, the the what's the saying in the teams here? Uh, no, 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 no good, good deed goes unpunished because you're going to get more good deeds. <laughs> if you're funny. a reliable team guy, you're going to get more shit to do. Yeah, yeah. But these team ability ones are fairly straightforward. I mean, they really are. They're they're not rocket science, and the reason is because we all know what makes great teammates. I was about to say, yeah, we all have to interact <laughs> with people that yeah. are cool and people that suck. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Humility, the ability to be self-aware and transparent about one's strengths and weaknesses. Humility is often stigmatized, especially in high-performance arenas. It can be seen as a weakness or lack of confidence, a modest or low view of one's own importance, as one dictionary puts it. As an attribute, though, humility means being transparent about your weaknesses. That's not the same as false modesty or the occasional humble brag, but rather an honest assessment of one's abilities. That also means being vulnerable, admitting weakness. By definition, requires vulnerability, but it's critical in the context of team ability. One of the strengths of any high-performing team lies in understanding its weakness. Being open about your own weaknesses allows others to understand where they can help. Boom. Yeah. Uh, Working with people that are arrogant gets old. Arrogance kills teams. <laughs> it really does. And arrogance, much like narcissism, is like a vampire staring in the mirror. Yeah. You can't see it in yourself. Um, and so so I always tell people, be, beware of it in yourself because we, we're, we're victim of it sometimes. Um, and then if you are a leader and you see it uh, in your – so actually – Arrogance was always a trigger for me. I mean, I just just hated seeing, I mean, every time I saw it, it just trigger. And I was I was actually with a buddy of mine. His name is Josh Waitskin. Do you know Josh yep. Waitskin? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. So Josh and I would have lunch in New York a ton of times when, I, when he was still living there. And um, and we were talking about one time, we were talking about triggers, things that trigger us. And I said, uh, I said, oh, it's arrogance for me. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. He's like, when I see arrogance, I immediately think insecurity. Mm. And as soon as he said that, it clicked for me. I was like, that's exactly it. And I recognize that I have to approach arrogance with empathy. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something about that person that's uh, causing them to want to express the way they're expressing. And it changed my whole view of, yeah. of arrogance. That yeah. is 
it's so accurate. Yeah. I, I just had a conversation with a client this morning, and they were talking about that. And I was like, well, this, you know, this is ego. And he's like, well, I think it's insecurity. I was like, yep, yeah, well, you're right. It's insecurity, yeah. which then flares up as, yeah. as ego. Uh, just like the dichotomy that I talk about here, you say there's a sweet spot on the humility scale, and it's quite wide, but there is danger at either extreme in either too much or too little. A lack of humility often resembles arrogance. While that's almost always a byproduct of fear and insecurity, arrogance on any team is detrimental. It breeds resentment, stifles communication, and as a result, is brutal in terms of results. Too much humility, though, risks teetering into meekness, which in turn can lead to inaction. Deference in the support of empowering others is necessary for optimal performance, but there are times when you need to step up and be the alpha. You will be the expert in the room, the one who's been empowered by the deference of others, at which point you will need to take charge and perform with confidence. Great leaders understand this balance. They will defer until they've squeezed every ounce of potential out of their team, but they will not hesitate to assume control when required. Moreover, an overabundance of humility can also mask an underlying lack of confidence. A lack of confidence, real or perceived, inevitably will begin to erode trust, which in turn will undermine any team. Your own level of humility is difficult to assess. Humility is a strange thing, Sir Edward Hulse, a 19th century British politician once said, the minute you think you've got it, you've lost it. <laughs> I love that quote. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very good quote. I've got a section in uh, Leadership Strategy and Tactics where I talk about leadership vacuum and when do you step into the leadership vacuum? And, and I talk about giving it a little bit more time. And the reason you get, and this could be like, like literally two seconds, but if you jump in when there's a leadership vacuum, as soon as it shows up, other people haven't seen it yet. Yeah. And they're ready to resist it, or they already think they know what's going on. So I would always like, there's a little bit of confusion, I hear like some shouting, some yelling, like no one's really sure what to do. Give it a second. And then all of a sudden you hear the quiet. That means oh, well, people are recognizing it. Mm -hmm. And then if you say, give it that a second, say everyone, you know, get to the ground floor right now, we're gonna move out. Everyone's ready to be led at that moment. <laughs> right. So right. that waiting, uh, that's why I like that, that uh, when you said, defer until you've squeezed every out of potential. Like you want them to try yeah. and they can't make it happen. It's like, all right, here's what we're doing. Yeah. That leadership vacuum, let it, let everyone feel the vacuum, step in and make a call. That's what you gotta do sometimes. Well, I used to tell my JOs, I used to call it the irony of leadership, right? And I used to tell my JOs, you're, if you're doing your job correctly, you're working yourself out of a job. Mm -hmm. You're creating a unit that can operate without you. Yeah. And that takes humility. And and quick story about Hank and I, we were out mm -hmm. in Iraq and we were talking about some of this stuff and we said to ourselves, you know, if we're talking about growing all our leaders and if we don't um, if we do not do anything about it, we're not walking the talk. And so we said, you know what we should do? We should have them, we should send them on an op without us. And so sure enough, we we find an op and it looks pretty, pretty good, pretty easy, right? We're like, hey, tell the troop, hey, you guys are taking this one here. Uh, Hank and I are gonna sit back at the, mm -hmm. at the jock. And, um, and sure enough, they go, and one of the one of the troop chiefs uh, take, or one of the troop, uh, one of the team leaders takes the GFC position. Another takes the troop chief position. They go out. Of course, it turns kinetic, <laughs> and yeah. it's like it's, stuff's going down. And Hank and I are sitting in the jock, and we're looking at this, and we look at each other. It's like, man, if this goes bad, we're done. <laughs> like we are done, you know. But it's about. I mean, it's it, it's 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 being humble enough to then have the courage to grow your leaders. I mean, if you don't. If you're not allowing them to do what they need to do and, and make decisions and, and 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 have confidence in doing it without you, you're gonna you're 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 
you're not creating a team, you know. And and the other the collateral effect of that was that they got back and the team leader that had my job, the ground force commander, he takes his headphones off and throws them at me. He's like, I never effing want to do that again, right? Because, of course, GFC, yeah. you're like, you have like 5,000 things going on. Um, so they have an appreciation for what you bring to the yeah. team as well, right? So, um, but uh, but it takes humility. It takes courage and humility. Yeah, that was uh, something I learned from my, when I was in my second platoon, we had the best platoon commander ever. Um, best guy ever and like he took over we a platoon commander got fired and he mm-hmm. took over and like the first training mission we did he was like i was a, i was a e4 actually and he was like jocko you're running this mission i was an e4 he's like hey you're the pl for this and i was like and he me and another guy yeah another e another e4 he's like you guys are running this we we're like and totally stoked but man, we learned, and that's what I did from then on. So by the time I was on deployment, everyone had run missions. Our, yeah. our, e4, our new guys had run ops mm-hmm. as ground force commanders in training. Yeah. So when we get overseas, like the, the young lieutenants were definitely ready. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you gotta do, man. Yep. And yeah, well, there's two things that are going on. Like, man, you just wanna go out there anyways. Cause it's, just <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's true. Um, next one, humor. The ability to find the funny, even laugh when, t- laugh when times are tough. Humor is a powerful attribute. The ability to laugh, find the sliver of funny amid the tragic and the trying can be calming, comforting, empowering, and encouraging. We've all heard the joke that broke the tension, the one-liner that smoothed the edge of fear, the wise crack that distracted us from nagging pain. I just had a vision in my mind. Imagine if they put like, imagine if they just were able to grab a compilation. You know they have the YouTube things that are like uh, best one-liner for whatever. Imagine if they had like real team guy oh shit when Lord. things were going sideways and people are cracking the best It's what I miss the most. Hell it's yeah. what I miss the most. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the stuff that guys would say. Uh, so uh, so a, a friend of mine, you, you probably know him, but anyway, he's... Um, he was telling me, I was talking about this. He's like, you know, we were on our way back from an op one time and uh, we were in the helicopter and the helicopter started going down, started like having a malfunction and, and crashing. And we're sitting in this helicopter and one of the dudes looks at us and says, well, I guess we're not gonna have to clean our weapons tonight. <laughs> and everybody bursts out laughing. It's like, that's what I missed. <laughs> you know, it's that dark humor. <laughs> uh, freaking classic. Yeah. Um, next section uh, is about dynamic subordination, which we, which we already talked about. Yeah. Um, just the, the fact that, you, as you put it here, leadership shifts wherever and to whomever the leader needs to be at any given moment. Those teams understand that information challenges and obstacles can come from any angle at any time, and they're effective, meaning the teams are effective because the teammate closest to the problem can step up and lead while the rest of the group defers to that temporary leader. This yeah. is... Freaking decentralized command. Everyone on the team's got to be a leader. That's that's how we absolutely want yeah. things to go down. Um, got a section here called the others. Everyone has all of the attributes. If any of the 22 I've described seem unfamiliar, that you can't imagine that they're wired into you, trust me. They are. Remember, attributes aren't exotic quirks bestowed only upon elite performers. They're a basic part of being a human being and they're elemental. But you might have some that are like just, dim, as you use a dimmer switch, you right. might have some that are pretty dim. Pretty pretty low. Might, yes. <laughs> might need to yeah. light a fire pretty on some low. of these things. Yeah. Uh, there's three more attributes that you say you want to discuss. And you say these three are important. 
but they're also outliers. None of them fits into the dimmer switch model because each of them has an opposite that can't be ignored. Most of the attributes can be measured on a straight line that begins at zero. If you have low accountability or empathy or discipline, whatever, the dimmer switch will be at the bottom. Your level of accountability can't go lower than that. Negative accountability isn't a thing. But what if you have zero patience? What if you have less than zero patience? Then you're impatient. <laughs> so you get into these some, some of these patience and impatience. Yeah, the idea the idea was um, that these polarities uh, can both imply success. Uh, so in other words, the there are highly successful people who were patient. There are highly successful people who are impatient. And and same with the other ones. And 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 the idea is on a team. This is when you, this is when polarities matter, right? The best teams have representation on either side, right? And I, my wife and I are a great example. I am typically a patient person. My wife is typically impatient, right? That's worked beautifully in our 23 years of marriage, right? Because when patience has been required, I step up. When impatience is required, she steps up. Um, and so so whether it's patience or impatience, um, whether it's competitiveness or non-competitiveness, which really was interesting because I've never been a competitive person. You know, even when I was captain of the lacrosse team, whether we won or lost didn't bother me very much. In fact, I used to fake being upset because I was like, oh, it would probably look bad if I <laughs> I'm not, if I'm not like swearing or something. Uh, I thought that would be a detriment to me when I went to, to SEAL training because like, oh shoot, I'm not competitive. But what I recognize is that the competitive mind tends to think in a finite game, right? It tends to place rules and boundaries in, a, in an environment because you can't win or lose unless you have rules that define win or losing. The non-competitive mind, there are no rules, right? And we both know that combat or military operations, in fact, any type of teaming, requires both polarities. Sometimes it requires running up the line and winning, right? Sometimes it requires thinking outside the box. And so those are two. And then the final two, which I thought were interesting, I was really, to be quite honest, trying to figure out what it was about SEALs that distinguished us. And I was kind of landing on this vanity piece. I was like, is it vanity, right? And I was almost going to use vanity, but the problem with vanity is vanity typically centers around appearance, you know. And, well, we know there are some guys who really f- focus on their appearance. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a thing. And so that's why I kind of thought about this fear of rejection thing. And what I recognize is this is it here. This is it. Because every single one of us who made it through BUDS, we have somewhat of an elevated sense of fear of rejection. We don't want to look bad for our teammates. We just don't. And it pushes us to do things. It pushes me to jump out of an airplane at 22,000 feet, which I never otherwise would have done, right? So that can actually power you in certain good ways. Obviously, too much is bad, too little is bad. But then the opposite, right? The associates, I don't care what anybody thinks. We've seen those people, right? That These are iconoclasts. They start their own movements. They're the people who's like, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm doing this. And t- typically, people start to swarm around them. So uh, so my wife and I are like this. Like, I have an elevated sense of fear of rejection. She doesn't care what people think. And we, we, we blend together beautifully, right? So, so these polarities should be looked at as, hey, if you can have each represented, high on either one is not a bad thing have each represented and you'll have a really balanced team yeah and just paying attention to where you're at you know a lot of a lot of what's the uh when someone's an alcoholic and the first thing is like saying i'm an alcoholic Mm -hmm. so so the first thing here is saying like oh i have a high fear of rejection i need to pay attention that's right over index. you can over index on that you can over index on patience you can Mm -hmm. over index on impatience so having that um balance balance i guess we'd say now you go into you know kind of getting close to the end here of the book uh you've got decoding your palette and and you, what you say is you've got a you've got a online thing at the attributes.com mm-hmm. and you've got an assessment tool yeah i actually haven't taken it yet uh but talk us through a little bit through this tool and then 
how it works. Go yeah. and fill this so, thing out. So the tool, the tool uh, is for the the first three categories: grit, mental acuity, drive. And the reason why it's the first three is because those can be self-assessed. We we have just finished a leadership and team ability attributes tool. Um, that is going to be a three. That is the three sixty. Because again, you can't you can't just assess yourself on how humble you are, right? Or how <laughs> how selfless you are. So that's I'm a the most humblest. Uh, yeah, I'm the most <laughs> humblest. Um, the one on the website now is uh, is free uh, for those three, and you can get a score. and And the score really should be looked at as a uh, as a starting point, okay? Because whatever that score is, then the idea is to interrogate your own performance and say, okay, if I'm coming up low on adaptability, let me think about some environments where my adaptability was tested. The, the environment was changing around me. How did I do? Right? Okay, it was difficult. It was challenging. Okay, that makes sense to me. Um, and so the assessment tools can allow you some some sense on where you might stand and where your dimmer switches might lie. And then it really takes some self-reflection to uh, to really get that dialed in. Um, and then you've got this acronym to, to, to start to make adjustments to these things. You've got this acronym START, which is slow down, think, act, recognize results, and try new environments. These that's the Am I correct in saying that's the methodology to actually start to evolve and improve your attributes? Yes, because, well, the, I guess the... the, the the part that comes before that acronym is place yourself in the environment where the attribute's being tested. And then you're going to feel stress and challenge come on. So as you feel that stress and challenge, then you in, then you slow down. You think, you know, you, 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 you assess your performance. You can use that acronym to kind of say, okay, you think, again, this is what we just talked about, mm-hmm. you know, engage your conscious mind, engage your frontal lobe to start examining your performance in the moment, and you'll start to understand and, and, and develop it. Um, lots of good tools, uh, and I'll, I'm just going to fast forward. Just kind of close out the book. Um, you, you say this, and again, this isn't the closing of the book. I'll, I'll leave that for the people that get the book. But for me to close it out, it says, we are a species that in only 10,000 years evolved from cave dwellers to space explorers. Humans have the unique and brilliant gift of being able to imagine something and bring it into existence. We are only able to do this because of our grit, our mental acuity, our drive and leadership and teamwork. Understanding your attributes is one of the keys to unlocking your potential. So that's you again, that's my wrap to the book. It's not it's not wrap of the book, but you know, even there, you gotta go back. That's like going back uh, twenty five hundred years to Sun Tzu um, in saying that we have to know ourselves. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying in there is like we have to know ourselves, and in this case, know ourselves through our attributes. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's the book. You say you're working on another book right now? Yeah. So the next one is called Masters of Uncertainty, which is really what I always define SEALs as, uh-huh. uh, individuals and teams that could drop into complex environments and figure it out. And um, and I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i lay it out in about six steps. Uh, Step one is understand your attributes. Um, step two involves your identities, the identities that we, we, we define ourselves. Step three is our beliefs, and that's kind of understanding yourself. Because we all, we, all of us who do this habitually know those three things about us. And then the, uh, the other three steps are, in fact, the tools. Actually, a lot of the stuff that Huberman and I have worked on, the tools that allow someone to actually engage their own physiology to start stepping through that. And again, it's about um, it's about a process, right? We can't pre- uncertainty by definition cannot be predicted, and that's not what we do, right? It's like oh, you seals, you're you're experts at it. No, no, we're experts at the process, right? We understand when when things go into chaos, we slow down, we start working through the process and start figuring it out. And it's not always pretty, right? Sometimes it's decidedly ugly, um, but 
it's the process. So I'm going to see if I can get that kicked out here by the end of the year. <laughs> how deep are you? How, many, how much have you written so far? Uh, I'm about a third in, but it's going to be a shorter. I'm going to I'm going to take a, a this is a this attribute is a very dense book. I'm very proud of it, but uh-huh. it is dense. Um, I'm going to do a much shorter version, so do it a little bit quicker. So, so you're a third done. What is it, Tim Ferriss? Tim Ferriss, this is such a great quote from Tim Ferriss, and you've written a book, so you know this is true. Uh, when you're done with your book, you're 50 percent there. That's right, yeah. Freaking yeah. nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, I'd say I'm getting pretty good at this point. Like when I'm when I'm done, I'm feeling like I'm when I'm done when I when I'm done writing it, I'm like I'm, I'm almost good. there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so people can find you like you do consulting. Yeah. Um. You you do speaking. All that's through theattributes.com. Yeah, one-stop shop. One-stop shop. Check out all that stuff. Uh, and there, you also have social media. Yep, Instagram. Got Instagram, uh, you're rich <laughs> underscore divini. Yep. You're on Twitter. Yes. Twitter. Do, you, do you engage on Twitter much? Not much. I, I, I need to do more, but as you know, we're, I mean, we it's... It's somewhat antithetical to our normal behavior, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, Instagram, Instagram mostly, LinkedIn, um, and then Twitter occasionally too. So. And you have Facebook as Facebook well. Facebook as well, yeah. It's all on the, and it could be all found on the website. Yeah. So, you can find so it's all there at theattributes.com, and that's how people can find you, reach you, talk to you, um, and that's, I don't know, that, does that get us up to speed? Totally, man. This is, uh, this is good. Good yeah. place to stop. Echo Charles. Yes, sir. <clears throat> what do you got, man? <laughs> Questions from Echo Charles. <laughs> you. Uh, you have a your twin brother identical twin. Oh, that's right. Identical. Echo twin. has a twin brother as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you guys, you guys want me to leave? <laughs> you guys want to sit here and talk special, about being yeah, identical special twin, twin bond? I yeah. kind of want you to leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is he involved in any of this, the the stuff that you're doing? He's not. He's uh, he flew for 20 years and now he flies for FedEx. Oh, uh, right so, uh, but you know, he's. He's still a best friend. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned you yawn before, mm-hmm. like a competition nervous. or nervous. Yeah. So is that a common thing? I I, do, I used to do that too. That's yeah. why. And I th- and I thought I was like the only one. I was uh, like, yeah. something's like I wrong with you me. You were just tired, bro. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it, 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 it's literally it's it's accessing your uh, uh, trigeminal nerve, which yeah. is linked to your vagus nerve, and it's it's. It's engaging your parasympathetic system. So yawning is, I've heard, now that I've written it, it's funny, you read a book and then people start saying, oh, I yawn too, right? So I've heard, of, yeah. there's a bunch of people who've gotten back and said, yeah, no, I, I yawn as well. So Yeah, because it's yeah. kind of like, you you wouldn't think that, right? Like you you're nervous, you think you're going to be all, right. but yeah, you're yawning, so I'm like, Yeah, I thought I was wrong. weird, so I didn't yeah. say anything. <laughs> right, then I cool. talked to Huberman and Huberman was like, hey, that's why that happened. I'm like, oh, yeah. thanks, buddy. There yeah. you go, boom. <laughs> the world makes sense. Yeah. Who's born, who's older, you or your brother? I am, two minutes. Two minutes older. Did you? Who's bigger? Well, after Buds, I was. Yeah, we were fairly. Well, we were fairly even. He didn't play lacrosse. He played like a year, but um, but we were fairly identical. And then I went to Buds, and yeah, just I got really thick. <laughs> was anyone born bigger, or were you the same? Uh, we were basically the same. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Interesting. This the he twin? has two daughters. I have two sons. So oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. You beat the curse. Yes, I did. Wait, what's the curse? The curse is if you're in the SEAL teams. And they actually say it about pilots too, right? Well, well the curse know. in the SEAL teams is you're going to have girls right? Yeah. for kids. Yeah. That's right. the curse. Huh. And it's and it's pretty freaking, it's pretty heavy. It's a pretty yeah. thick curse. It's a pretty thick it's curse. It's a pretty effective curse. Yeah. Is that yeah. it, Echo Charles? Yeah, that's it. No more man. questions. Yeah, no no yeah. twin questions. There's no some secret code you got to like throw out there. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, Jocko, thank you. No psychological. People, probably, people are, probably ask you commonly, hey, what's it like to be a twin? And I always say, what's it like not to be a twin? Yeah, so, same. <laughs> Similar. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you so. don't know any, any different. Yeah. So, some, yeah. some interesting dynamics can happen with twins, right? Yeah, I would say so. More or less explainable, I think, but yeah. I saw something that if you are a twin and you marry twins, like you each marry twins, then your children are DNA-wise brothers and sisters between the whole crew. Yeah, so in a way, yeah, because they can't differentiate oh. DNA, right? So the, yeah. yeah, yeah, so that would make sense, that yeah. math, I guess. I didn't think, I never thought about that part of it. But yeah, I guess the likelihood of you having twins goes up too, or something like that. Yeah, I've it usually heard that. it typically skips a generation, or it skips it. Yeah, uh, it usually it usually skips a couple. So so like um, my sons might have twins, right? Uh, um, it skips down. So well, who knows? It's just yeah. I don't know. We don't have any other twins in our family. I don't think yeah. that I know of. Check. But who knows? Awesome, Rich. Any any closing thoughts? Hey, listen. I just, I, first of all, I, I, what you all are doing, and 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 since you've begin, since since the day one, I think the leadership stuff has always been sound. Like I told you, I think it's it's very simply put and, and digestible. And I think I, I'm I'm always excited when I can hear guys take military experience and translate it into ways that people can actually understand it. And it's not just I want to sit and tell a bunch of stories uh, because the combat part is, you know, it's it's tough. It sucks, right? So, but we can extract some goodness out of it. So. So thanks for doing that, and, and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm glad, and I'm glad you're at the. I was thinking about, you know, I knew you were running training on the West Coast, and and um and some of the ways you ran training that I heard was like, well, it's. I mean, he's testing out. I mean, if you, if you if a guy's can't get a run done before getting contact or something getting thrown into the mix, that is attribute training, right? You know, and I think that's uh, so. It's 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 exciting that you you, you read it and it resonates. It's good. Actually, I have one more question. Yeah. Do you, you know who Sam Harris is, right? Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of Sam Harris. Okay. Big fan. Yeah. Did yeah. You, has anyone ever told you you sound like Sam Harris? No, but I, I consider that a compliment. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, so. I don't know what you'd call the tonality or whatever, yeah. but yeah, every once in a while. Oh, I didn't think there that. There you go. I found that to be the case even with like videos I've seen of you. Oh. But even more so in person. Do you know what sure. ASMR is? <laughs> Do you know what it is? ASMR. I've <laughs> yeah, heard of it. Thing, it's right? like yeah, it's well, it's like you can, but it's also just talking like this, like someone, and it's uh, it's like a weird thing like on the sensory. interwebs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like sensory, and so sometimes they'll like brush hair, or yeah. and they'll record it, oh, and you can get it. Yeah, yeah. I forget <laughs> what it stands for. Yeah. But anyways, I was on Twitter when Sam Harris used to be on Twitter, which he's not on <laughs> he's Twitter not anymore. anymore. Okay. But uh, and I said something to him, you know, like oh. You know, we were making fun of each other, which yeah. we would normally do. And we, uh, if you were on Twitter, we, Sam Harris and I had a long-running um, war on Twitter of me challenging him to intellectual debates and him challenging me to fights. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> and so that was kind of our – and then what's funny is every time I'd say, like, you know, you're, you're too scared to debate me. And then there would be a bunch of people like, aha. And then there would be someone's like, this guy, Jocko, you're an idiot. This guy's a freaking <laughs> like take it seriously. And, yeah, then, yeah. and then he'd chime back like he, you, you know, you'd love to debate, so you didn't have to face me on the mats. Right. And so be like, what is wrong with you, Sam Harris? You're an idiot. Uh, so, anyways, long story short, you know, he's got a very calm, soothing voice, and yes. I made some comment about him making ASMR. But then it turned out that everyone says that about him. It wasn't even it wasn't even new. Uh, 
Huh. Because he does get... have a very calm, calm yeah. yeah, it's why his meditation app is so great. I mean, it's a, uh, it's very soothing. Yep. Yeah. There you it's go. True. So, so, I sent him a book, so I don't know if he's ready. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Echo yeah. puts you in that category. Yeah. Yep. Uh, locally. Or ASMR ish. Kind of. Okay. <laughs> maybe if the, the attribute doesn't work, I'll try that. Yeah, there you go. No one has ever told me <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. an ASMR voice. No. I, no. It's not happening that over makes here. Sense to uh, anyways, man, thanks for joining us. Appreciate Appreciate you coming out here. Uh, you know, more important, thanks for your service to the nation, to the teams. Um, you were in leadership your whole career, most of which was war. So uh, thanks for going out there and holding the line, man. Ditto, brother. Thank you. And with that, Rich Divini has left the building. Echo pondering your personal attributes. You yeah. over there? Yeah, I uh-huh. am actually. What'd you come up with? Well, Actually, to be honest, I did more than ponder just my personal attributes. I pondered like my kind of my life mm-hmm. coming up. You know how you kind of reflect on like, hey, wait, what? Why am I first? You, first, you start to think, oh, what attributes do I have and do I lack? Mm-hmm. And then you're like, why is that? Then you think of your childhood and like all this stuff. Where was I successful and why? And where was I unsuccessful and why? Kind of a thing. So it's one of those. It's good reminder because mm-hmm. the skill part, which which dawned on me some time ago, kind of like a video game, where you can just, especially nowadays, right? You can just think of a skill and be like, I want that skill. And you can get it. Go on YouTube. And you just, yeah, you, you exercise a little commitment, a little discipline. You can have that skill. Yeah, that's and boom, pretty awesome. Just like that, you have another skill. I mean, not just like that, but like you can have it. In fact, I'll even go one more and you can, you can have one of these real, like the real deals, life-changing skill <clears throat> in like three, three to four years. Example. Like, let's say I want to be a, I don't want to say lawyer, but let's say I want to be a, marketer maybe a web developer or a coder Mm -hmm. like i want to code i want to do coding now you know that's a hot like or i want to make apps yep or something like this right do it yeah you three years you wouldn't even need three years i don't think video editing video editing that's kind of what that's factually what you've done yes you didn't go to college no you you haven't even done a course have you ever paid money Yeah, I paid money for courses for sure, like Skillshare. But it's like a membership to, like Skillshare, for example, that's uh-huh. like a membership thing. So you can How look much up, is it? I don't know. I forget. I'd have to look. Did, did you do it a lot? No. Like I took What one. percentage of your knowledge came from that? Oh, 0.1%. Okay, so and it's I'm a, glad you corrected me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be you truthful. Get the, you get the attribute of being a dipshit <laughs> right <laughs> now. <laughs> No, the attribute of being very specific and precise. Yep. Anyway, it was, and actually, you know what? You're even more right than I kind of indicated because it it wasn't for video editing. It was for VFX, which is part of the video process. Anyway, Mm -hmm. true, true. Mm -hmm. 100% was self-taught, right? Right. You don't need. So anyway, anyway, the, the point is we think of skills as like something that, you know, you can get, which is true. It's right. even more true now. But even the attributes true, yeah. is the thing that what, inform the skill, as yeah. it were, which we don't. I mean, of course, I think we do think about that, but we don't think of it as something to pay attention to, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, yeah, you can work on your weaknesses and, and, and that kind of thing. But it's like not in that specific way. It was yeah. a good reminder, I thought. Yeah. And this ties into uh, what, what we talk about at Echelon Front when it comes to and you've, if I've talked about it once in the podcast, like what is your tendency? Yeah. Yeah. As a person is your tendency to micromanage, then you have to know that about yourself. 
if is your tendency to be too aggressive you have to know that about yourself yeah. is your tendency to let your ego get in the way you have to know that about yourself yeah. and if you can pay attention to those tendencies you're gonna have a better chance of correcting the issue and it's the same thing as with these attributes if you know oh you know I'm not really good at this particular deal so I can a pay attention to it hopefully improve upon it but also get people on my team that complement my areas of weakness and the part I thought is, and something I always like keep in mind too about like people who keep you keep around, right? Like you, you would say it don't have like yes men or mm-hmm. whatever. It like this kind of in a small way illustrated like how important it is to like not to have a yes men. So which one? He was talking about some ten or some uh, attributes that are like vampires. You can't see them in yourself. Well, that yeah, ego was so one yeah. Of them. And I think a lot of them are like that to different degrees. Or sorry, you narcissism. Know? Narcissism. Yeah. There's the ego. There's like even like being um, the quote about em- humility. The minute you've got it, you, the minute you think you've got a humility, you lost it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the most humble person in the world. Yeah. Like no one's more humble than me. You know. You know, Coach Adam. Yeah. Hell yeah. He, he amazing. Makes, oh. Yeah, he makes a T-shirt that says the most humblest. Yeah. Kind of funny. Yeah. So, so it's like the, the play on words. But if you keep people around, whether you be family, friends, or whatever, that are that that will, ha- and if you indicate to them, hey, I'm working on this part of it or whatever, maybe, you know, keep your eye open for this kind of mm-hmm. thing, and they can kind of help you with that there stuff. See what I'm saying? So it's like a workaround for the, for the vampire attributes. Check. All right. Well, while we're working on our attributes, which we will, let's also work on our physical and mental capacity to do more. It's true. In order to get there, you're going to have to work out mentally, physically. Agree. When you do that, guess what? You're going to need to fuel that system. <laughs> Hell yeah. And I recommend you go to jogglefuel.com and get yourself some fuel. It's true. The cleanest fuel. You yeah. know you can get different levels of fuel yeah. at the gas station? Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. one's premium, premium, one's okay, one's like, hey, bro, fill up that Corolla. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they call that the regular. Yeah, so you want to get the premium. For your your body, you want to get the premium. I agree. And there's actually a big difference. Like, let's face it. You can put the the crappy fuel in your your Mercedes if you want to. You know, they're going to recommend against it, of course. course. And you can put the good gas into your Corolla. Might be a waste of money. I'm saying you can get away with it. Yeah. Both cases. Yeah. With your body, though, with what you put in your body, you want to go with the clean, the good. I think so, too. The clean stuff. Jogglefuel.com. Get yourself some protein. Get, look, if you got to drink an energy drink, don't just drink one of those energy drinks. Don't drink one of the other. What'd you, what'd you, in your little video you made, what did you put? Extra legit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, made by most drinks, yeah, by the way. Made yeah, by extra most legit drinks. energy. Yeah. yeah. So don't drink that. No. It's got a bunch of crap in it that's going to kill you. Oh, chocolate's being all crazy. No. You drink that much chemicals, that much sugar, that much caffeine, it's going to kill you. So don't do that. Get yourself some Jocko discipline. Go. Get yourself some ready-to-drink protein. The ultimate go-to fuel. So I got some elk meat, by the way. Oh, nice. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, this is some, like, the good stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. I make up my little, I got some recipes, okay. don't worry, I'll tell, them about, tell you about them later. But yes, perfect, right? I have, okay, I got the 50 grams of protein from the elk meat, mm-hmm. right? Then I got the 30 grams with the drink. Yeah, They're ready to go. Oh man, 80, 80 grams, just like that. Boom. 
All good. You're good. No bad. No catabolic going on there. No, sir. Staying out of that zone. Uh, Joint warfare. You train in jujitsu. We talked a lot about fighting today. A little decent amount about fighting. You're doing physical stuff, man. Joint warfare. Jockofuel.com. You can get it there. You can also get a vitamin shop. You can get it at the military commissaries. Hannaford. Dash stores. uh, Wakefern. ShopRite. H-E-B. Meyer up in the Midwest. Something else coming online? Mm-hmm. GNC, heard of it? Rolling into GNC, bro. (laughs) Rolling into GNC, old school. Yeah. Iconic. Do you know specifically what's going in there? I will have to give you the actual product list. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't have it right now on me. Because I figure, and I'm just the only reason I ask, because I I, when I used to frequent GNC from time to time, I'd go in there for specific stuff. So it would be what protein, pre-workout. And any kind of vitamins. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's what GNC's for. Technically, everything you just <laughs> said, bro. General nutrition. <laughs> but no, the energy drinks not so much, right? I mean, that's I would true. grab, I would yeah, grab yeah, one if grab it one, was but there. It's not, it's not really but energy drinks is one of those on-the-go things, not yeah. a like, oh, I'm shopping not for more staple. supplements. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But I guess it's a, it's subtle. Let me ask you: Would there. you get fired up to go to GNC? Yeah. Like a little bit of a. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Hawaii. Yeah, back in the yeah. day. Bro. And that was like back in before online oh, shopping yeah. was yeah, like yeah, super sure. hardcore like it is now. It was, yeah, it was good. It was like a whole experience. Yeah. And there's a few stores that are like that where it's yeah. like you don't just go there just to buy it like a freaking CVS or something like this. You go and it's kind of like yeah. the experience. So uh, out, GNC, go check that out. Um, or actually, I think around the 20th. When is this coming out? I think February 20th, 2023, in that GNC. Go in there and just buy. Just go and get some. Just be like, get some, get in the, you know the old thing you had when you were a kid and you get a new pair of shoes and made you a little bit faster? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. New pair of running <laughs> shoes, new pair of Keds. Yeah. Do you ever have Keds? No, I never had Keds. So you had Keds or you got the Converse One Star, you got a pair of Chuck. Taylors and then the Nike with the waffle. I had like the OG Nike with the waffle tread uh, blue and yellow. Okay, bro, back in the day, when Nike made one shoe, imagine that. Oh, damn, Nike made one shoe, it was this blue shoe, it had a waffle tread on it. This that was the name of this tread. I remember the waffle tread, I don't remember the blue shoe. So, blue with a gold stripe back in the day. When you got those, you kind of like felt like you're a little bit faster. I remember that same thing going to GNC back in the day. Like yep. you're going to get a little bit uh, more jacked. <laughs> so roll to GNC. Get yourself some uh, Jocker Fuel. There we go. Yep. Also, uh, OriginUSA.com. You're going to need some American made. Look, you're not you're not looking to buy these other companies, aforementioned companies that are, <laughs> that are using slave labor to make their stuff. Mm. Right? We're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not supporting countries that have tyrannical governments. We're not doing that. We're supporting America, freedom. We're supporting the workers in America. We're bringing manufacturing back to America. All that right there you can do, originusa.com. Jeans, boots, geese, rash guards, t-shirts, hoodies, wallets, belts, boots. Origin USA. Freedom that you can put on your body. There you go. We're in the Delta 68s currently. Oh, yeah, that's right. The wore, uh, when's the last time you wore a pants to record the podcast? Oh, I've been wearing pants, but I usually wear the Kinley camouflage pants. So I don't know like if this. I've ever worn pants to record a podcast. 
I mean, wear <laughs> shorts, bro. Bro, I was noticing your the uniform, yeah. your uniform, yeah. and it's funny because you like take off your slippers too. Like yeah, yeah, I'm a big like barefoot, f- full on Hawaiian styling. Yeah, that's good, what man. We're doing, man. That's, that's good. Oh, uh, yeah. Speaking of Hawaiian style, <clears throat> speaking of Hawaiian style. Um, okay, so Jacquez store, we're representing on the path. Mm-hmm. I know I am. Mm-hmm. Discipline equals freedom. Good. There's a there's a, a good version shirt. On the shirt locker coming out. Oh, really? It's just a hint. A little Been a bit, while. Little heads up. It's a good one. It's a little bit more more like subtle. Okay. Either way. Okay. Yeah, you want to represent jockostore.com. Also, I mentioned the shirt locker, which is a new shirt every month. Some cool like new designs every month. People seem to like that one. But yeah, look at that. Check that, that one out. We I put on a, um, what do you call like a... We call it a sneak peek. Mm-hmm. It's like a little close-up of part of the design, so you can kind of get a hint of what the next design is, too, if you want to check it out before you sign up or whatever. But check. unless, just go to uh, JockoStore.com. I like it. Subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to Jocko Underground. We do what? We do about a podcast a week on Jocko Underground, the UG, as it's called. Mm-hmm. And that way we can talk about whatever we want. And uh, we have a escape platform. In case we get shut down for whatever reason, you know, we'll be there $8.18 a month. If you can't afford that, it's cool. We still got your freedom. Email assistance at jockounderground.com. Don't forget the YouTube channels. Don't forget Psychological Warfare. Don't forget Flipside Canvas. Don't forget all the books, Attributes by Rich Davini. Don't forget about that one. And then all the books, uh, Only Cry for the Living, Final Spin, all the leadership books, The Way of the Warrior Kid books. What a opportunity to make a kid's life better. Make their whole life better, by the way. Yours Mike too. and the Dragons. About Face by Hackworth. I wrote the forward on the new one. There you go. Bunch of those books. Echelon Front. We solve problems through leadership. Echelonfront.com. Don't forget about our online training platform, extremeownership.com. This is how you get better at life. You don't get better at life by you read a book one time, now you're good. Or you went to a seminar one time. Or you listen to one podcast. No, you got to interact. So go to extremeownership.com, take classes, ask questions, live interactions with me, with Leif, with the team. That's what we're doing. And if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their families, you want to help Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And also don't forget about Micah Fink, who currently, at this time, we just got reports from the field, he just killed a mountain lion with a K-bar knife. He is skinning it and making a loincloth, which he will wear on a 72-day retreat across the wilderness. (laughs) Micah Fink getting after it. Uh, If you want to connect with us on the interwebs, don't forget Rich Davini to get in touch with him or what the services he offers, go to theattributes.com. And on social media, Rich is on Instagram, Rich underscore Davini. Twitter, at Rich Davini. Facebook, at Rich Davini. Of course, Echo and I are there as well. Echo is uh, at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. Be advised, the algorithm's there. It's waiting to grab you. So just, you know, look out. Thanks to all the military personnel out there on the front lines, maintaining freedom around the world. We appreciate what you're doing right now. And also, thanks to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all first responders, you maintain our safety for us here at home. We are grateful for that. And to everyone else out there, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, know your attributes, 
know yourself. Then see where you can get better and be better by going out there every day and getting after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.